This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. All right, we're back in the hot seat. A couple of monsters. <laughs> ready to rock with a core episode of Fenomen. Yeah. yeah 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 i was supposed to do this one around halloween but it got pushed back that's all right man life yeah life uh life happens i got sure. creatures of my own all right, right, I'm, right i'm hinting at, at who the subject <laughs> is today uh it is going we are we are doing the biographical profile of the monster from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I have a, a complete <laughs> bio of the of creature, body the part? demon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be rather anatomical. Of course, I am joking. We are going to be covering the life and work, principally Frankenstein, mm -hmm. of the great Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Are oh. you ready, Brett? Are you ready to I'm, rock? I'm ready. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is this is very exciting. I mean, this is like fundamental. Uh, Frankenstein is a fundamental like archetype almost of like the horror genre and science fiction genre for that matter. So this is this is interesting. There's like going back to the source a little bit. Absolutely. And I'm ready to talk about all of it. I really don't know, though, which of us is is the Frankenstein and which of us is the monster. Because, <laughs> of course, people out. will say, is, is a Frankenstein? Well, Frankenstein's the doctor. That's right. the old cliche thing. And, you know, right. the, the monster is the monster. The monster mm -hmm. is the creature. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah. But, of course, then they go, who's the real monster? Right. And, when, and that's yeah. a, yeah, that's a cliche. Mm -hmm. But this is where it sort of comes from. 
Mm-hmm. Like you'll we'll find that she was drawing on sources, some of which we'll rec- will yeah, recognize. I'm sure, it doesn't mm-hmm. just appear completely out of n- nothing. Can p- appears completely out of nothing, really. So yeah, mm-hmm. but I don't know anything about that lineage, so it'll be interesting. Well, let me start by saying you covered John Milton, so mm-hmm. now we I, I see him everywhere. I just right. wish he would call. Uh, <laughs> but of course the. The book is actually called Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus in three volumes. And it's an epigraph, right? The first thing in front of an owl. And here it is. Did I request the maker from my clay to mold me, man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Paradise lost. Mm, so, interesting okay okay mm-hmm. yeah yeah and my impression is that the monster the creature at reads paradise lost at some point <laughs> like I, okay, okay. Mm. you know what it was plot this whole book was plausible until <laughs> <laughs> listen well i you know what i don't want to get too much further into it yeah. i'll say one final thing um before i throw you the opening question mm. and uh, we tease the after dark and do the little bits of housekeeping we do before we get into the bio proper but i have to ask uh brad what do you know about mary wollstonecraft shelley I don't know a whole lot about her. I mean, I know born, uh, I want to say 1780s, 1790s. I know Frankenstein comes out 1810s, 1820s. Couldn't really be more specific than that. Um, the The legend goes that, well, she was married to Percy Shelley. Um, I, I intentionally skipped over the middle name there because I frankly don't know how to pronounce it. Beish? Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the legend goes that uh, she wrote this book as a sort of a, uh, I don't know, it's like a game or a competition kind of thing. Um, and the impression you get is that like one night over dinner, she wrote this entire book, which of course is not the case. It can't possibly be right. She didn't just like go up to her room and come down in the morning and she has Frankenstein. Um uh, but that's kind that's about it. I, I know I don't know. I'm sure she wrote some other stuff, but I couldn't name anything else that she wrote. Right. And, you know, this is something that scholarship has been dealing with, particularly over the past 30 or 40 years, reassessing her legacy, looking at her other work. Mm-hmm. Given the nature of our show, we're going to get a, a fairly comprehensive biography uh, or a profile, and I am going to focus on Frankenstein. We'll Makes mention sense. some of the other work, but this is a case where if you go into Barnes and Noble, uh, I'm sorry for you, but if you do, hey, at least at least they're reading. But if you yeah. but if you go into a chain store, what are you going to find from Mary? It's Show? just going to be Frankenstein. There it's going to be, be Frankenstein, else. and and it's a banger. It's a certified mm-hmm. banger, and. The thing I was going to say before I threw the question to you, which I think is really important, is I can't think of a piece of media that is as ubiquitous and influential and important, which has been so uh, completely maladapted or... I don't know if they want to say maladapted, but adapted so that the book itself is almost unrecognizable. It's been so worked over 
the, the monster, as far as I know, and I've read this, you know, doesn't say they're, they're, Frankenstein never says it's alive. It's alive. Right. You know, there, there's a, just the, the, all of this iconic film cinematic stuff. It's not necessarily there in the mm-hmm. book. So, mm-hmm. so have you read Frankenstein? Gosh, it's been uh, decades. Like right. I had a monster, a period when I was quite young where I wanted to read mm-hmm. all the monster stuff. So it was like Invisible oh. Man by H.G. Wells and Frankenstein. And you Cool. Know, but, yeah. But, uh, my memory of it is very vague. Yeah. We are going to linger over it. And I'm going to do something that's a little bit unusual in this episode in that I'm actually going to start with the novel. And okay. then we're going to kind of work our way back into the biography and kind of come back to the novel. She cool. was only 18 when she wrote it. What the? F- really? Yeah, really. Oh, boy. Brad, this, oh, okay. Man. And this is, this is Art of Darkness. This episode has it all. These people were crazy. These English <laughs> romantics. Excellent. Lord Byron. Yeah. And I looked it up and I think it's Bichet. Okay. Okay. Bichet, I'm a monster. No good blood sucker. <laughs> all right. I like it. Bichet. That's what I yeah. looked up. All right. If okay. somebody, all if right. that's wrong, let me know. Yeah. Uh, Percy Bichet Shelley. Okay. I will just sort Shelley. Yeah. Right. That we've got, dude, this is everything. This is like, mm. this is like Kurt Cobain. You know, we've got, you know, poets dying young, elopements, pregnancies, miscarriages. We don't know who the kid is. Free <laughs> love. Uh, all right. Pro, you know, progressivism. Like, yeah. These people would would recognize the world that we live in now, but they were living in circumstances where like medical science was not where it is. So like they they would be talking about free love at the turn Mm -hmm. of the, you know, in the the 19th century coming out of the the 18th century. So they're talking about free love and then like babies dying at the rates that they used to die. Just like like real dark stuff and heavy and thick and also you know when we get into this one of our our ongoing gags on art of darkness is this idea that there are only like twenty five thousand people alive at a given time or fifty thousand at a given time this is one of those examples like she came from you know blue check parents like blue wikipedia link parents right we could do an episode on her father um we could do an episode on her mother and yeah and I mean, they're they're a little out of our wheelhouse. They're more sort of political, uh, cultural kind of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but but her father, no, her father actually wrote sort of like children's stories. But they were super <laughs> radical and progressive. Like, Interesting. Everything that you think about the 1960s, the utopianism and the communes and everything, they were doing it 150 years earlier in London and and throughout Europe. Um, so this episode's going to have it all. And, cool. And, and cool. We got throwing suicides Ooh. and uh, infidelity ah. and this this monster, right? Like the book is the monster too. Like <laughs> she was exercising demons and 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 vibes. So that's one of the reasons I want to start with the book. Okay. Okay. Cool. It's going to be fun. And you were right. She was born um, at the at the end of the 1700s. Um, okay. And. Uh, this actually dovetails into one of the housekeeping things I need to do. I need to talk about the the books that I have. So I yes. referenced, and if I'm a little stumbly on this episode, folks, your host, Kevin, is very, very tired. I have <laughs> had a crazy week of work. I'm, I'll do my best, but I hope you enjoy. All right. So I've got this, 
the the eighteen eighteen edition of Frankenstein with this very Ooh, cool cover, yeah, uh, introduced by Charlotte Gordon, and we're gonna we're gonna lean on this heavily. Okay. Uh, that's the principal text, and then I have this biography of Mary Shelley called Mary Shelley mm-hmm. by Miranda uh, Seymour. Okay, and uh, I'll lean on that heavily. I have a couple of her collected letters and there's sort of these crummy books that I got off Amazon that were clearly, these are in the public domain and somebody's like, well, maybe I'll make a buck. I'll just check <laughs> right. these in like the right. fonts too small. And okay, fine. Um, you got your, you got your shekels. Um, but uh, yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to do this one and I've been thinking about it an awful lot. So we've got some good stuff uh, coming your way. I have got to tease uh, the after dark yeah, for Patreon. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. That's the very best way to support the pod. We have a Telegram chat. Get in there. Talk about pens. Talk about reasonable things. Talk about the podcast. <laughs> talk about whatever whatever you feel like. Go to t.me slash Art of Dark Pod. We got about 170 people in there. And you can about imagine what a chat room of Art of Darkness listeners might might feel like. I'll post mm-hmm. this episode after. People talk about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Brad runs the Twitter, twitter.com slash artofdarkpod. All the links are at artofdarkpod.com. Every episode, we do a bonus episode called After Dark. I've got some some good stuff here. Excellent. So this is a core episode. We're going to go any number of hours. Here are the subjects I'm going to cover on the After Dark after we close out the, the free episode that we're doing here right now. I have <laughs> like a page about her phrenology after her birth so her father Mm -hmm. had a had a physician or a phrenologist come over and Mm -hmm. kind of read her chart if you will by kind Mm -hmm. of measuring her face and making impressions this is science yeah yeah mm -hmm. oh yeah and of course science figures heavily in frankenstein too so uh, you know we're sort of setting the scene here so we're Mm -hmm. going to talk about uh phrenology we're going to talk about um a scene that happened in her childhood, I don't know that she was present, but there was a case where a fellow named Aldini uh, tried to reanimate the corpse of a hanged man using Whoa. electricity, Whoa. right? And they made him kind of twitch a little bit, and the, hey. and it was stopped. Like they yeah. they were become they were all. Like the experimentation, they were like, whoa, no. whoa, 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 slow down. Could, we hung this guy no. for a reason, first of all. <laughs> That's right. That is 100% right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He was getting wild in the group chat. We, okay. had to, yeah. we had to. We gave him the rope and he did it himself. <laughs> so let's just not bring him back. Yeah, for real. But you could, you could about imagine what the mind, I mean, becoming, you know, you have the enlightenment, you have. The rational turn, people are becoming atheists or being, you know, agnostic deists sort of fashionably, you know, they think the Catholic Church is wildly superstitious, mm-hmm. um, the one true faith. And, you know, and, and they're living and then they're like, okay, let's let's take this dead man and run a current of electricity through him. When when he twitched, they were like, what if this actually works? Right. <laughs> what is this right. guy gonna want? Right, um, right, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and to this day, I mean, what do you, I think it's, is it Jason? Is it the, the, one of the Jason movies? He's brought back to life out of the grave by a bolt of electricity, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this is an old kind of idea. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, so we'll talk a little bit about that on the After Dark. Well, and we, I, frankly, we do 
I mean, when you bring somebody back to life with the paddles, mm. that you literally are shocking them with electricity. It's not like the craziest idea ever. It actually works in very, very narrow circumstances. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Brad. Mm-hmm. I, I realize I have my second window open. I have some like day job work open. I've got to close <laughs> that if I'm going to be having a happy it's good. I like, I like, I like my life. I like my work. I love sure. doing Art of Darkness. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. So then a few more uh, After Dark things. Uh, I've got a poem, Prometheus by Lord Byron. We'll read a bit of that. Oh, cool. Um, I have an essay from the book called How to Read Frankenstein. It's a short essay. Mm. I think that's going to be good. And then I've got a little anecdote about, or it's like a letter about what happened to Percy Shelley's uh, heart after he died hmm. and who ended up burying his heart heart interesting okay yeah it's, it's gonna right. be that kind of gonna cool. be that kind of episode cool. that's all on the after dark for patreon thank you to the existing patreon supporters yes, and thank if you're you hearing this genuinely please consider supporting the podcast we put in the work and it means a lot to us all right are we ready to rock brad oh yeah let's do this Okay, I got a note here. So, you know, like I said, I'm going to make my own monster out of this episode. I'm going to do something a little different. She's known for Frankenstein. We're going to start there with a mix of biography, commentary, and a bit of the book. Like I said, she wrote this when she was just 18. That's insane. So, yo, and it's it's not like you you probably would benefit from studying the GRE for a month or two. GRE words before it's not written at like an like what an 18 year old now. No. I mean, it's the word of the day is erudition, mm-hmm. right? These were learned people mm-hmm. uh, to and v- highly verbal people. Now, of course, she was precocious. She was given an, 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 uh, an education that most women, by the vast majority of women on the planet at that time, never would have received because mm-hmm. of the progressivism of her of her mother um, and her and her father. Yeah. But it's really something to to think about. It's interesting because the prose style, I think we'll see, it's it's of the period. It's definitely readable today. Uh, it's not like picking up um, Chaucer or whatever, trying to, and trying to parse it. It's like, okay, some words are spelled differently, but it's recognizable English. Mm. Um, but it does have the, the, um, the raw kind of almost naive quality of a, like a young mind. Uh, She makes these moves that are just totally surprising. The move to go into the monsters first person is I think an all time brilliant literary move. It's like the last thing you expect. Right. Uh, right. So then, so when it happens, you're, it begs a kind of sympathy. Um, well, we'll get into it. You're the yeah. you're the pro stylist, but yeah, I was reading it. I was <laughs> no, like, okay, fascinating. It's still shocking. Um, so here's what I've got from this text, the 1818 uh, book, and I and this is Penguin Classics. I'm just going to read. I'm going to read their long one paragraph biography of her, so we can zoom out and get the picture, and then I'm going to read the introduction. Maybe not all of it, but some of it. Okay. Mary Shelley was born in London in 1797, daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, famous radical writers of the the day. Mary's mother died tragically 10 days after her birth. Under Godwin's conscientious and expert tuition, Mary's was an intellectually stimulating childhood. 
though she often felt misunderstood by her stepmother and neglected by her father. She did not like her step her stepmother. Mm-hmm. In 1814, she met and soon fell in love with the then unknown Percy Bechet Shelley. And in July, they eloped to the continent. In December 1816, after Shelley's first wife, Harriet, committed suicide, Mary and Percy married. Of the four children she bore Shelley, only Percy Florence survived. They lived in Italy from 1818 until 1822, when Shelley drowned following the sinking of his boat, Ariel, in a storm. Mary returned with Percy Florence to London, where she continued to live as a professional writer until her death in 1851. The idea for Frankenstein came to Mary Godwin during a summer sojourn in 1816 with Percy Shelley on the shores of Lake Geneva, where Lord Byron was also staying. She was inspired to begin her unique tale after Byron suggested a ghost story competition. They were reading German. They were. It was a, a very in, inclement uh, summer, and so they were cooped up and reading these german ghost stories mm. to one another as as one does sure um and so lord byron was like okay let's all let's let's write our own right um so byron himself produced a fragment which later inspired his physician john polidori to write the vampire or the vampire mary completed her short story back in england and it was published as frankenstein or the modern prometheus keyword there is modern Mm. Mm. In 1818, among her other novels are The Last Man, a dystopian story set in the 21st century, The Fortunes of uh, Perkin Warbeck, Lador, and Faulkner, with, without a U, Faulkner, mm. as well as contributing many stories and essays to publications such as The Keepsake and The Westminster Review. She wrote numerous biographical essays for Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia, her other books include the first collected edition of Percy Shelley's Poetical Works and a book based on the continental travels she undertook with her son, Percy Florence, and his friends, Rambles in Germany and Italy. Mary Shelley died in London on February 1st, 1851. Oh, whoa. We, so she wasn't very, what, 50-something? 50, 50, 50? Uh, the theory was it's a brain tumor. That's what her oh. doctor thought. Oof. Yeah. So we don't typically start the podcast with the bird's eye view. No. But no. for some reason, I've been struggling to wrap my head around this life because there's so much there. And so much of the biography that I have focuses like the first third of it focuses on her parents because they're mm. such a big deal. Right. I, you know, I was sort of like, okay, I feel like in this case, giving the big picture is going to help. Um yeah, so well, Mary Mary Wollstonecraft is one of those like Susan B. Anthony, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. All mm-hmm. right. So I'm going to read some of the introduction uh, to this, to the Frankenstein text by Charlotte Gordon. Now, a little bit of this is going to give us insight into sort of where people place her and how particularly women, like where she's placed in the history of women writers. So this this author has a bit, little bit of a, an axe to grind, but I also think most of this is it's true on its face, true and important to remember that what we would call like an 18 year old girl writes the prose that I'll be reading in a few minutes. Right. Like not a normal, like not, <laughs> these, are, these are not, not 16 year olds. Like we would think of them now, not 18 year olds. Like we would think of them now. And even 
even then extraordinary people. Like right. I, I, when I was talking about, you know, 50,000 people live on the, live on the planet. Like th- this book, this biography is like, it's just, a, it's like a sea of names. It's like, Oh, Coleridge is a friend. And right. Aaron Burr, the vice president <laughs> is like exiled. And he's like friends with their family over in London. And he's just Aaron Burr's hanging around. Yeah. It's, okay. It's, it's yeah. There was one of those families. Her father struggled with money, though. Like, and that's actually how Shelley com- comes into their lives. And we'll we'll get into some of the darkness around that. Okay. Um, all right. So here's the intro to the text from Charlotte Gordon. When Frankenstein was first published in in 1818, many readers were shocked. What could be more appalling than the tale of a mad scientist creating life? What kind of person would write such a terrible story? Critics believed the novel was hostile to religion as it depicted a human being attempting to appropriate the role of God. One contemporary writer complained that the book was horrible and disgusting. He declared that the author must be as mad as his hero. He could not accuse anyone in particular, however, as no one knew the author's identity. The book had been published anonymously, and when people discovered the author's name, the truth seemed even more scandalous than the horrible story itself. The author was a woman, Mm. and her name was Mary Godwin Shelley. In the 19th century, women weren't supposed to write novels, let alone a novel like Frankenstein. Middle-class women were expected to confine themselves to being good wives, daughters, and mothers. For a woman to step outside of her proper domain was against all of society's rules. Critics murmured that Mary Shelley must be as monstrous and immoral as her story. And yet when they met her, they were surprised to find that Mary was ladylike and reserved. One new acquaintance said that he thought the author of Frankenstein would be indiscreet and even extravagant, but that he had found her cool, quiet, feminine. It was difficult for Mary's contemporaries to square the boldness of her work with its creator. Instead of being improper or masculine, she appeared to embody their ideas of what womanhood should be. It goes on. uh, These misogynistic principles were the accepted ideas of the time. Experts declared that women were inferior to men in all areas of human development and could not be educated beyond a certain rudimentary level. Another thing worth noting is that these themes are kind of in the novel. Like are the scientists, they? yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. The the scientist creates this monster, gives birth in this unnatural way. Then the monster will see, starts committing crimes and and comes comes to the scientist, comes to Frankenstein, and says, "You're going to make me a woman. I want. I need oh, really? an Eve." And oh, oh, oh. yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep. And then the and then Frankenstein ends up destroying his the the female version of the creature, okay. and the creature goes berserk because the creature has no one. Right. It's extraordinary. It's it's almost um. I mean, yes, it's science fiction. Yes, it's horror, but it it has qualities qualities of uh like a 20th century existential novel yeah, in a sense, like yeah. the, the move to put us into the creature's mind. Uh, and you could do or like a feminist, I don't even need to say the word feminist has mm-hmm. become a bit of a word, hasn't it? But you could mm-hmm. do a reading of it through, through the lens of, uh, of this stuff in any case, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's talking about uh, how, you know, in this period uh, men, 
were thought to possess the capacity for reason and ethical rectitude. Women were considered foolish, fickle, selfish, gullible, sly, untrustworthy, and childish. Wives could not own property or initiate mm -hmm. divorces. Children were the father's property. Not only, I wonder what that, what the state of that is now. I mean, I, I don't think of my children as property per se, but who else do they belong to? Right, <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, right. Property is the wrong word, Pro but in right. any case, yeah. yeah. Not only was it legal for a husband to beat his wife, it was encouraged. I'm kidding. Not only was it legal <laughs> for, <laughs> for a husband to beat his, beat his wife, but men were encouraged to punish any woman they regarded as unruly. This is helpful because we're a long way away from this. Hmm. If a woman tried to escape from a cruel or violent husband, she was considered an outlaw and her husband had the legal right to imprison her. Uh, and it goes on about how this system began in childhood. Even the great champion of liberty, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, could not conceive of girls possessing the same natural rights as boys. He argued that women were created to be the helpmates of men. The education of women should always be relative to men, to please, to be useful to us, to make us love and esteem them, to educate us when young and take care of us when grown up, to advise, to console us, to render our lives easy and agreeable. These are the duties of women at all times and what they should be taught in their infancy. The irony is that even as the upper classes were discussing Rousseau's ideas in their elegant salons, their daily needs were being met by the hard labor of their female servants. No yeah. one thought of the girl hauling the wood upstairs to the fire, uh, thought she might be too fragile for such chores. Instead, the starving classes were generally treated as beasts of labor, women and men alike. Ultimately, this iniquity would lead the working class to rise up and demand their rights. Uh, it goes on about what happened in Paris, the storming of the Bastille. Um, many have connected the revolution with the birth of Romanticism, which is the artistic movement that we're dealing with in Frankenstein, but also with Byron and uh, Shelley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a movement that promoted the rights of the individual and freedom for all humanity, including women slaves and working men and women. In England, however, there was a backlash against the excesses of the revolution. Although the English romantic poets, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Keats, and Shelley, were inspired by romantic ideals, many people were afraid that too many French ideas would disrupt the stability of English life. Nothing changes, man. We still talk about, what do we talk about? Uh, Foucault and all of this. Oh, this, there's mm -hmm. still a, it sounds a little French. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Don't paint me like one of your French girls. Right. Paint me like one of yeah. your upstanding English, English women. That's right. Fully clothed yeah. and all that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The one you make <laughs> eye contact with. Um. And so instead of protesting the, the oppression of the working classes, or for that matter, being outraged at the restrictions that women faced, the ordinary person accepted them as the standards of the day. Middle-class women cultivated their delicacy regarding weakness as an asset in their search for husbands at the same time that they were asserting their elevation over the maids. If a woman fainted easily, could not abide insects, feared thunderstorms, ghosts, and highwaymen, ate only tiny portions, collapsed after a brief walk, and wept when she had to add a column of numbers. She was considered <laughs> the feminine ideal. 
Uh, all right. Oh boy. All right. Well, she's <laughs> painting a picture. I think it's yeah, maybe yeah. a little over, possibly slightly overstated. Hard to say. It's oh well, I'm grow. Sh- I'm. I, I I don't doubt that there was that sentiment that that you know those attributes were thought to be uh, attractively feminine, but it's just like, yeah. Uh, just mm. <laughs> and then imagining women sort of some women anyway trying to like live up to that and the effect that would have on you sort of psychologically right mm. <clears throat> infantilizing right right yeah i'm gonna read more here because we're gonna get into the history of her mother and she goes on fortunately the author of frankenstein mary godwin shelley had little patience with such notions she was the proud daughter of the famous radical mary wollstonecraft the author of a vindication of the rights of women although wollstonecraft died 10 days after giving birth to mary mary was still profoundly influenced by her mother's ideas a large portrait of wollstonecraft hung on the wall of mary's childhood home the girl studied it comparing herself to her mother and hoping to find similarities. Mary's father, William Godwin, a noted political philosopher and novelist, held up Wollstonecraft as a paragon of virtue and love, praising her genius, bravery, intelligence, and originality. He even taught young Mary how to read by tracing the letters on her mother's gravestone. Except for Wollstonecraft, her mother's name was the same as hers, Mary Godwin. And the the gravestone will come back later because rather famously, the the story goes is that's where she lost her virginity to Shelley, who was married at the time wow. when she was sixteen. Whoa. Yeah, talk about in talk about liberated, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that that is so. That's pretty progressive. <laughs> yeah. I guess oh, that's yeah. an adjective you could use. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as she grew older, Mary read and reread her mother's vindication and also studied her mother's other books, including her celebration of the French Revolution, often learning the words by heart. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to get an indication here of, of why she might be precocious, why she might be driven more than the, the rest of the group when they were like, oh, well, let's let's do our own riff on ghost stories and it ends up becoming this, you know, 200, 250 page novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see here. I want to make sure I've got a little more here. Ah, yeah. Let's keep going. This is quite good. Uh, Wilson Craft scorned the idea that women were lesser beings than men. Women were not intrinsically less reasonable than men, she argued, nor were they lacking in moral fiber. For the sake of all humankind, women should receive serious educations and be encouraged to exercise their reasoning skills. A revolution in female manners will reform the world, she declared. Well, she's not wrong. Our world now today is unrecognizable uh, or barely. It's wildly different. Um. Steeped as she was in her mother's ideas and raised by a father who was grief-stricken by her mother's death, Mary tried to live according to her mother's philosophical principles. Over the course of her life, she sought to reclaim Wollstonecraft from the grave, becoming, if not Wollstonecraft herself, her ideal daughter. When she wrote her own book, she uh, reimagined the past and recast the future in a doomed effort to resurrect the dead, gazing back at what she could never regain 
but sought to duplicate in very different times. She knew it was impossible to be reunited with her mother, but still she yearned for her, and the best way she knew to be close to her was to live in accordance with her mother's philosophy, even if this meant breaking time-honored traditions. We definitely have dead parents on our Art of Darkness, How to Make an Artist bingo card, and it doesn't get more dead than your mother giving birth to you dying 10 days after you're born. Right, right, right. And then, and then, you know, there's always a bit of trying to live up to that parent. Right. And then you've got this woman who's, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft, who is like on an unprecedented kind of person in a lot of ways. Right. Absolutely. Goes on. This was a dangerous ambition as Wollstonecraft's ideas flew in the face of societal conventions. After the publication of Vindication of the Rights of Women, her enemies had called her a whore and a hyena in petticoats. Mm. Now, this is fascinating. And we're going to cover more of the raw biography out of Wikipedia, so we'll go back over this territory a bit as we go. But um, when she died, her husband, Godwin, published a tell-all memoir that cataloged Wollstonecraft's illicit sexual affairs, including the child she had out of wedlock. So Why would he do that? We're going to get into it a little okay. more. I, he was, he, these, these were principled people. Mm. And I, I think his reasoning about it was like, damn it, we, I'm going to show the whole woman that, mm, okay. that I loved and admired. And she, you know, she had a, Mary had a, an older half stepsister or half sister, excuse me. Right. By this, and people thought it was, you know, he basically, I mean, it's it's a wild tale. Um, in any case, Godwin declared that he was paying homage to his dead wife and was proud of Wollstonecraft's unconventional life. Okay. Right? Yeah. The, the, the life he described that she lived, we would not think twice about now. Right, right, the, right. These folks, they were looking toward a future that we kind of halfway inhabit. They couldn't have seen all of the other craziness. They couldn't have seen the atomic bomb or the pill sure. uh, or or the Beatles or the Art of Darkness podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> speaking of pills, yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, but they, they were kind of looking forward to like, yeah, okay, we're in California. It's 1970. And yeah, you have a child from a previous affair and, but we're going to get married and that right. this is life. Yeah. yeah. And so then some, in some ways this memoir isn't like, it, yeah, it's it's people are familiar with Wollstonecraft's ideas, but it's like she also she didn't just sit around and write these ideas and then everything else about her life was conventional. She was she was living something out. Correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So yeah. His, his attitude was that the public deserved to know the details yeah. of her unorthodox life. But the consequences of his memoir were far reaching and pernicious. Her reputation as a political philosopher was now overshadowed by her sexual improprieties. Yeah, because this would of be the, equivalent to like having an OnlyFans or something now, or like something, uh, yeah, right? Uh, it would be like uh, porn coming out. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. even that worse, worse even than that, I think now. It seems like, like it, I think yeah. you I think you can be like an Ivy League professor of political science and probably have done sex work or porn now <laughs> right, like, right i mean it would be like it, it would it yeah it, right 
take take the yeah. worst thing that you can imagine now somebody could be accused of and it would be comparable to that yeah wow. like like being accused of like being a murderer almost right right, right like right. for that period um yeah. yeah instead of being regarded as an important contributor to the public discourse she was regarded as a whore and a mm. sexual renegade her writing was largely neglected until the 1970s and she almost disappeared from our historical memory her illegitimate little girl, Fanny Imlay Godwin, I mentioned we're going to have some suicides. Here we are. One of them, uh... Became the most notorious bastard of the era. Thanks. Thanks, stepdad. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, this is helping paint a picture of her dad. Her dad was a uh, was an odd duck. Get the impression like her dad was kind of I don't know how quite how to explain it. a brainy guy I think a little brainy mm-hmm. uh maybe not always thinking through again I think an ideologue right 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 so yeah damn the consequences this is what we're supposed to do based on these uh principles that we've developed yeah sorry honey I have to make you the most famous bastard right. in England Right. Everyone, back when the word everyone has to know that you're a bastard. It's I, right. Yeah. Back right. Back when the word bastard carried some weight. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Before mm. South Park. Yeah. Uh yeah. So Godwin had attempted to protect Fanny from social ostracism, adopting her when he married Wollstonecraft. But though she and Mary were raised in the same household, which included Godwin's second wife, a lot of Marys here, by the way, Mary mm. Jane Claremont. And her two children, Jane and Charles, Fanny never recovered from the loss of her beloved mother. She would spend the rest of her life feeling unwanted un- and unloved, the odd child out in this household where none of the five children shared the same set of parents. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to leave the introduction for now. I might come back to a little bit of it. Um Here's what I want to do next. At the end of this book, well, you know what? Let's actually get into the preface of um, of Frankenstein. So this is this is how the author, this is how Mary Shelley opens the beginning of of this novel. Here it is. It's two short pages. The event on which this fiction is founded has been supposed by, and remember, 18 years old. I'm Mm -hmm. going to start over. Right. (laughs) The event on which this fiction is founded has been supposed by Dr. Darwin and some of the physiological writers of Germany as not of impossible occurrence. I shall not be supposed as according the remotest degree of serious faith to such an imagination. Yet, in assuming it as the basis of a work of fancy, I have not considered myself as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors. The event on which the interest of the story depends is exempt from the disadvantages of a mere tale of specters or enchantment. It was recommended by the novelty of the situations which it develops and, however impossible as a physical fact, affords a point of view to the imagination for the delineating of human passions more comprehensive and commanding than any which the ordinary relations of existing events can yield. I have thus endeavored to preserve the truth of the elementary principles of human nature, which I have not scrupled to innovate upon their combinations, the Iliad, the tragic poetry of Greece, Shakespeare in The Tempest and Midsummer Night's Dream, 
and most especially Milton in Paradise Lost, conform to this rule. And the most humble novelist who seeks to confer or receive amusement from his labors may, without presumption, apply to prose fiction a license, or rather a rule, from the adoption of which so many exquisite combinations of human feeling have resulted in the brightest, uh, in the highest specimens of poetry. The circumstance on which my story rests was suggested in casual conversation. It was commenced partly as a source of amusement and partly as an expedient for ex exercising any untried resources of mind. Other motives were mingled uh, with these as the work proceeded. I am by no means indifferent to the manner in which whatever moral tendencies exist in the sentiments or characters it contains shall affect the reader. Yet my chief concern in this respect has been limited to the avoiding uh, to the avoiding the enervating effects of the novels of the present day and to the exhibition of the amiableness of domestic affection and the excellence of universal virtue. The opinions which naturally spring from the character and situation of the hero are by no means to be conceived as existing always in my own conviction, nor is any inference justly to be drawn from the following pages as prejudicing any philosophical doctrine of whatever kind. Hmm. I, I'm not done, but I'm not my character. <laughs> yeah. I don't agree. Retweets are not endorsements. Right. <laughs> right. right. Run right. and cover a little bit. Yeah. Um, it is a subject also of additional interest to the author that this story was begun in the majestic region where the scene is principally laid and in society which cannot cease to be regretted. I passed the summer of 1816 in the environs of Ge Geneva, the, se the season was cold and rainy, and in the evenings we crowded around a blazing wood fire and occasionally amused ourselves with some German stories of ghosts, which happened to fall into our hands. These tales excited us in us a playful desire to Im of imitation. Two other friends, a tale from the pen of one of whom would be far more acceptable to the public than anything I can ever hope to produce. He's talking about Byron. Mm -hmm. And myself agreed to write each a story founded on some supernatural occurrence. The weather, however, suddenly became serene, and my two friends left me on a journey among the Alps and lost in the magnificent scenes which they present all memory of their ghostly visions. The following tale is the only uh, one which has been completed. Hmm, okay. So it's a preface that's it's it's out of it's not in the world of the novel. It's an author's preface, kind of running yeah. cover for what's to come, but also a little bit boastful. Like I'm the one who I finished I my story. Right, 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 right. Mm. <laughs> interesting. That is pretty interesting. I mean, yeah, there's a bit of a uh, what a content warning, as we call it. Not not so much that this will horrify you, but like, uh, hold on, this is a story. It's not you get it's not true right. right 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 yeah okay very good here is the uh and we're going to come back to frankenstein quite a lot and then now we're going to get into the biography proper but first i'm going to read the chronology uh that's at the end of this book just to give you an idea of like events to come and how gnarly her life was and how oh, rock this and roll. Is, this hmm. is her chronology. Well, this is the chronology around Frankenstein. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's not her complete chronology. But again, you have to remember, so this is a this is a novel. 
it really is as rock and roll as the novel will ever be. Like okay. Brett Easton Ellis, yeah, he had pretty rock and roll. American Psycho, you're a rock star, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, DFW, our most popular episode of two, uh, of the year, by hey, the way, on yeah. Spotify. What are they? Spotify wrap up is that? Yeah, wrapped. Spotify wrap. Yeah. Brad, Brad had the most popular episode. Hey. Of the year. Yeah, I'm wounded. <laughs> yeah, I gotta get it. You know what? Now I lost the bets, so and I have to wear a do rag for, <laughs> for for somebody. All. For somebody, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting though. Spotify rap. So next year, I gotta, I gotta see if I can top you, Brad. That's good. We'll this see. is a challenge. No, no good. friendly competition is what you know mm. makes the show makes the show so good. Uh, well, that some people are saying, many people are saying. Uh, but in any case, but people really like that DFW episode. But yeah, this is rock and roll. Sixteen years old, she's losing her virginity to a, a, like an unknown poet who's already married, who is has some money, who's maybe going to help her father, who, who you know, and she's she's eloping to the continent and hanging out with Lord Byron, who Lord Byron was like paparazzi famous already, like he was a like a rock star they're hanging out in switzerland in geneva and it's it's cold and rainy and and then uh mary's sister's pregnant by byron i mean this is like this is like destroy the hotel room rock and roll right 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 it it seems a little just because of the period in their language it it doesn't feel like like led zeppelin in seattle right Right. destroying the room right but it's it's a vibe like that if I can get any one thing over, it's that and like the the legitimate greatness of of Frankenstein as a as a novel and and uh, how interesting her life is um, and how much she suffered. Like, like mm-hmm. of all, we've it's going to be hard to top. Like we've had some real characters on this podcast, some of whom have done it to themselves, others have sort of had it done to them. But uh, Mary Shelley went through it. All right, mm-hmm. so this is the chronology. Most of the entries in this selective chronology construct a narrative around the conception, production, publication, and reception of Mary Shelley's novel, tracing the first incarnation of the Frankenstein phenomenon between 1814 and 1832. I also have to say, I'm pretty sure like the theatrical adaptations started really early. Like this oh. thing has been adapted. Hell, when I was over in London, the last time I was over in London, I saw a production of Frankenstein uh that was like a modern kind of retelling where it was done in alley so there were seats on either side and we were facing the audience on the other side and the play was played in the middle and after the first act you came back from intermission and it was some sort of like a student production you came back from intermission every single chair uh had a vr set underneath it and like the climax of the play, you put on these VR headsets and watch the climax in in VR. So oh, a bit okay. of a bit of a gimmick, but it wasn't the yeah. worst night I've ever spent in the theater. And that was Frankenstein circa 2019 in, right. in London. So it's huh. It's still happening. It's still alive. All yeah. right. Yeah. 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 Um, so in any case, here is the uh, yeah, right. Uh, Frankenstein phenomenon between 1814 and 1832, including both both the book reviews between 1818 and 1832, and the flurry of theatrical adaptations between 1823 and 1826. All right, so here we go. July 28, 1814. Having recently declared their love for each other, the 16-year-old Mary Shelley, accompanied by her slightly younger stepsister, Claire Claremont, she wouldn't have been called Mary Shelley at, the, at that time, of course, but right. um, 
And the 21-year-old uh, Percy Bechet Shelley, uh-oh, age gap, five years, uh, <laughs> despite being married to Harriet Westbrook, elope to the continent for what later became known as their six weeks tour. Yeah, that's, there you go. We're going to go take a six weeks tour. Six weeks tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. December Dang. 28, 1814. Uh, Mary attends Andre Jacques uh, Garnerin's lecture in London on electricity, galvanism, gases, and phantasmagoria, revealing that she was interested in matters scientific and spectacular prior to conceiving and publishing Frankenstein. Well, we can take a big, long detour about this period in science and the demonstrations that were done. Maybe the closest thing we have right now is like what Musk does with the that Cybertruck right like an apple like an apple reveal like back when steve jobs was doing it was doing it it would be like that but for smaller groups and they would like electrocute the group to show the group the power of electricity and they're sort of like half theater half science i mean yeah it's it's like bill nye the science guy but like he's on tour all the time and he's halfway like a circus performer so Bill Nye, the science guy, basically, this is that, yeah. that kind of thing. But that was super popular at the time. Huh, cool. Yeah. Sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, yeah, they would do these tricks where like a guy would show up with like a battery or we would produce electricity somehow and everybody would hold hands and he'd zap the group zap them, and they just right, couldn't right. believe it. They just right. was, blew their freaking minds. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. now we conduct seances of many hours over the the airwaves as yeah. if it's nothing uh, over through thin air, fugazi, fugazi. Right, Here right. Oh, and when it's got a, um, yeah, and when it has to like update, you're like, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. One thing goes wrong. You go, my supercomputer right. is <laughs> restarting. It didn't work for five seconds. Five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it is crazy. Um, okay. So March 6, 1815, their daughter, is born prematurely and she dies. So she's pregnant. They have a daughter. She loses her her first daughter. Uh, late August, 1815, Mary with her stepbrother, Charles Percy and Thomas Love Peacock visit Oxford and sees the rooms where, according to Claremont, Percy Shelley, together with his fellow student, Thomas Jefferson Hogg, poured with the incessant and unwearied application of an alchemist over the artificial and natural boundaries of human knowledge. Mm. January 24th, 1816, Mary gives birth to William Shelley, who is near her side during much of the composition of Frankenstein. March 1816, Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, begins her relationship with Lord Byron. 1816 May, William, their son, and Claire now pregnant with Byron's child, depart London for their journey to Switzerland to meet with Byron. May 13, 1816, Mary, Percy, and their party arrive at Lake Geneva. Have you ever been to Switzerland, Lake Geneva? It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, sure. Highly recommend it. May 27, 1816, Percy uh, and Byron meet for the first time, Mary having met Byron in London a month before everybody's pregnant or has a child. <laughs> so that's, yeah. uh, it's like yeah, the free, you say free love. Uh, nothing's free. So. <laughs> right. There's no, there's no free lunch. You're going to wash dishes. Yeah. 
something. Yeah. It's coming yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. Somebody yeah. wants a favor. But mm-hmm. really, we kind of take like Tinder culture, hookup culture, free love culture. This is all taken for granted. This is well mm. before the pill. And nobody's, well, maybe I, I don't know. These women are not going to go and get abortions by and large. Yeah. Like, it's just yeah. not. So it's like free love and kids. Right. Okay. Right. Kids are going to happen. Yeah. I don't even kids. know exactly what they were doing for like, there were probably some degree of prophylactic measures, but um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting the impression Byron was not too worried about prophylactics. <laughs> it's super, real quick here. Yeah. If they yeah. were, yeah, they might want to rethink it. It's it's too late now. Right. That's what. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was one of my favorite uh, moments in the podcast so far was when Gwyn said, that's like being a little pregnant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron Gwyn coming back for the book club for Patreon. Oh, yeah. Very soon, actually, it's December this coming three. weekend, yeah. December third. We're going to do Blood Meridian. That'll be evergreen, recorded on the Patreon. It's going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. All right, um, moving on with the chronology. Uh, June 15, 1816, Byron and Percy by Bechet, Shelley, and possibly Byron's doctor discuss the principle of life. The ghost story competition begins at the Via Diodati. And Mary is apparently the last to conceive a tale. This is how it how it went. She, everybody else was like, "Where's your story, Mary? What's your ghost story, Mary?" And she just could not come up with one. Mm-hmm. So she was the the last in and the last out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but she finally begins with the words, "It was a dreary night of November," which became the first sentence of Volume One, Chapter Five of the novel. Volume One, Chapter Five. I'm. I will read from later. That's where he makes the. That's where he finally animates the the creature. Oh, okay. So okay. that's that's where she started, but it, that would eventually be the fifth chapter. You don't know it was right from the beginning. No. I, very very few, if any, novels. Maybe Bukowski with right. with uh, Post Office. Very few novels are just. Here's the first line. Right. Here's the middle. Yeah, here's yeah. the end. I'm yeah. done. Yeah, you fiddle, you, you fiddle around and you figure it out. You poke the poke. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a process. You piece it together, much like a mad scientist. Yeah, piece yeah. it together. You, you a give monster. it life. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, June twenty uh, third, eighteen sixteen. Mary apparently writes her story while Percy and Byron take their boat tour around Lake Geneva. Uh, See you, Mary. You, you take care of the kids, okay? Me and me and my homie, we're gonna go on a little boat tour. <laughs> yeah, a little boat tour. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. I'll, I, I'll just leave it. Leave it there. It's a beautiful lake. You would want to sail around the lake. Oh, I'm sure. It's yeah. it's a pity that uh, that Shelley didn't learn how to sail better. Like mm. this would come back to to bite him. Uh, it, it does not end well. Mm. Uh, July 24th, Mary enters Write My Story into her Geneva journal, her first extant reference to what became Frankenstein. July 29th through August uh, 1816, Mary writes her story. August 21st, Mary and Percy talk about her story, which may not have had the outside frame or the inside uh, Safi narrative at this stage. So it's a frame story. Right. It's the Frankenstein recounting what happened and then it's letters and yeah. 
Okay. Um, August 29th through September 10th, the Shelley party departs Geneva, returns to England, and Mary settles in Bath with the pregnant Claire Claremont. Uh, by this date, Mary resumes drafting her full novel. So they're hiding out in Bath. They're, it's mm. like we, she's pregnant, not married. Right, like, right, right. I'm, I'm, she's not married. Be, she wouldn't be married because he hasn't, he still has a wife. I mean, they're like, they're like fugitives, <laughs> like right. teenage rock and right. roll fugitives. Right, 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 like, right. You know, and she's like, I gotta, write, I gotta write my monster story. She's right. like 18 years old. I gotta write my story about my monster. <laughs> yeah, but she's got a kid. She's dandling a kid on her knee. She's already lost one, right? Yeah, yep. I mean, she's yep. already lived. I mean, she's already she's, had a yeah. life of, worth of experiences at this point. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She continues drafting the novel. Then on October 9th, 1816, her half-sister, Fanny Imlay Godwin, commits suicide. Hmm. She has drafted the novel. Within two weeks of that, she finishes. Later in October, uh, she entered in her Bath journal that Mary writes her book. The first reference to Frankenstein as a book or novel. Mm. Something so sweet about this, man. You remember being 18 and just being like, you got your own journal and you go, yeah. Brad oh, yeah. writes this book. I mean, that's this is pretty, I mean, <laughs> pretty and cool, we still, man. we are still passing this thing around. It's very that's cool. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, oh my gosh. This is one thing we maybe don't talk about on this podcast is that we're legitimately like book lovers. Mm-hmm. Like somebody on Twitter today posted that they found for three dollars, yeah, a U.S. first edition of Under the Volcano yeah. with the cover. The only damage is the dust cover. It has the original dust cover, yeah, yeah. And it's the dust dust cover is in like fair condition, but it's like from the fifties. Right, three dollars. I looked it up. That's that thing wild. is worth. 1500 something like that yeah you know yeah. and i said at least tell me it's not marked up inside no i think they said it was it looks like it wasn't even red wow you don't wow. even know so yeah somebody the the crazy thing is that like some estate got rid of that probably in right. just some bulk estate right grant we grant i gotta get, get rid of grandpa's stuff get rid of dad's stuff whatever yeah. and then the bookseller that's a bag fumble <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They just missed that somehow, right? Yeah, just the, the, didn't register for them somehow, or who knows what happened? Slipped through it, the cracks. It might have been. It might have been like an estate sale, yeah. Where they just they don't even. It doesn't get yeah. into the they hands buy, of buy somebody. The crates. Yeah, I appraised books for like two years in university. It is not that hard. You just right. have to develop an eye. You have yeah. to know what's good, and then you have to just look for first edition. <laughs> Right, right. I have a, first, I have a, I have a, um, what is it? First edition, second printing. So it, it looks exactly the same as that one that you posted, mm. but I don't think the value is anywhere. And it's got a bit more dust cover damage than that one, but it's the same. It looks exactly it the same. It might be worth something, but not yeah. probably not into the no. thousands. Yeah. No. Um, okay. A few more pages of this chronology. Uh, November, she finishes drafting the Justine episode in the novel. December, she appears to have finished a version of the chapter on Safi's arrival and language instruction, although Safi was initially called My Mauna and then Amina. And we'll go over the novel so this all makes sense. Mm -hmm. December, Mary and Percy receive the news that Percy's first wife, 
Harriet Westbrook Shelley had committed suicide by drowning herself in the serpentine in London or the serpentine. Yeah. Whoops. Probably because not in no small part because Percy was out running around with uh, some young woman. Yeah. I I mean, maybe, maybe not your honor. Yeah. 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 You'd think that it contributed Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. and he told her he knew she knew. He claimed, we'll see, because we're going to get into the weeds with all of that and the Mm -hmm. bullshit that he fed Mary. He said Harriet was unfaithful. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence of that. He was just a a poet. (laughs) You know, I mean, he was just just like (laughs) that he felt he there's no reason to believe he was not not in love with Mary. He fell in love with Mary. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, he just there. There was damage. (laughs) Collateral damage. Yeah. And then you do kind of wonder, I mean, that that scene, that's that's a nice little theatrical dramatic scene, that scene where Percy and Mary find out. Right. Do you celebrate? Like, how do you react to that? Right. And that's all happening by letters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, They're mm -hmm. all they're all writing each other letters all the time. They're having these are people who had correspondences. Right. Like, right. The co- maybe the only comparable thing now today, I mean, it would be like social media would be the comparable thing. Yeah. Um, or podcasts like this. You and I have yeah. a, an, an ongoing correspond- we correspondence. We do have Yeah. Zoom correspondence. Yeah. There you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Thank you for listening in on our, our, our correspondence. Um, yeah. That is heavy. We'll, we'll get it. We'll get into it. Um, that happens on December 15th, December 30th. Mary and Percy are married in London. Yeah. 15 days later. Why wait? I mean, (laughs) she's dead forever. Right. Exactly. We're still alive. (laughs) Poor Harriet. I mean, you got to feel for her. Yeah. Yeah. Claire Claremont in January gives birth uh, to Lord Byron's child, Allegra. February, Mary continues to work in the draft. March, they move into Albion House in Marlowe. Uh, Twenty-seven, I believe that's in London. Uh, it might still be in Bath, but it sounds like London. March 27, Percy is denied custody of his and Harriet's children, Yante and Charles, by order of the Chancery Court. Can only imagine why. April, Mary corrects the draft of her novel. April through May, Mary transcribes and restructures her draft. Is this good? Are you are you getting are you yeah. this? I like yeah. that it's a combination of of biography and facts about this super important novel that we're going to fixate mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Um, she restructures her draft in two volumes into a fair copy in three volumes to be submitted for anonymous publication. Percy will submit the manuscript as the work of his friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, May. By this date, Percy submits the fair copy to the London publisher, John Murray, who likes but does not accept the novel for publication. We you, we think you're very talented. It's just not right for us. Yeah, it's, it's not, not right fit. for for our small press in Des Moines. Right. <laughs> it's not right. We, we like wouldn't want to betray the... Uh... <laughs> Our our aesthetic, right? Which is, it's which is it's good, it's good. But does it have to have? Does the monster have to talk? 
Right, right. I don't think people are and, comfortable. And what's about what's at the electricity back then? I don't even believe in electricity. So what's that all about? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Can we take out this section about the monster? <laughs> <laughs> the creature. <laughs> right. The demon. Can we take it out? Yeah. Can yeah. we give them can we give the monster a love interest? Can he not kill the second monster that he yeah. makes? Yeah. I yeah. think it should just be a nice story about a doctor out in the country. <laughs> I'm seeing I'm seeing franchise <laughs> possibilities, Mary. I think the monster's misunderstood. If he can get a lady monster, mm-hmm. have you met my wife? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fun. He he likes it, but you know, does does not accept the novel for publication. August 3rd, 1817, Percy asks his publisher, Charles Ollier, and Percy was never famous in his life, his own lifetime, I don't think, Mm -hmm. um, to publish Frankenstein, but Ollier declines the offer within three days. I'm sure they read the whole thing. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) August 18th, 24, the publisher Lackington, Hughes, Harding, Maver, and Jones agrees to publish Frankenstein. Well, that's great. You got a full house there. Mm-hmm. Got five guys. The publisher. <laughs> Shouldn't that be publishers? Something. Holy yeah. hell. Yeah. <laughs> do we do we cheat them and how? I'm gonna I'm gonna read this again. I'm gonna read this. this is a new acting warm-up. Okay. Yeah. The publisher, Lackington Hughes, Harding, Maver, and Jones. <laughs> the human torch was denied a bank loan. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, sorry, Mary. We have to take we can't put your name on the title sheet. The publisher's name. It's it's a lot of names, frankly. Yeah. So we yeah. there's not enough ink after the public. We're, it's like it's like Mary. We're going to publish you. (laughs) (laughs) We're all going to publish you. Hey, that's great. It's great news for Mary. I'm very happy. No, it's good. Uh, September. So she's going to get published. She finds out in August. She's nine months pregnant. In September, their daughter, daughter Clara Everina Shelley, is born. William would not survive. Clara would not survive. Mm -hmm. September 24th. Mary gives Percy carte blanche to read at least one set of proofs of the novel, which has started to arrive by this time. Middle to late October of 1817, the British critic announces uh, as in the press a work of imagination entitled Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus in three volumes. October 1817. And that would be like an announcement of like a Hollywood movie. That would be like, whoa, this is what's coming. Right, right. Mary visits John Hampton's monument near Oxford and then revises the Oxford section of the Frankenstein proofs accordingly. Uh, For details on these changes, it goes on. Okay. October 28th, Percy writing from Marlowe to Monsignor's Lackington and company. Oh, that's good. He just, that's, I like Percy. Reveals (laughs) even though he's, yeah, that's what I would do. Lackington and et cetera. Yeah. Reveals that changes were made in the Oxford section as well as in the earlier Holland section of the Frankenstein proofs. Uh, 1817, November, the official publication date of the Shelley of Shelley's history of a six week weeks tour. Um, and it's the couple members of the Shelley circle publish a number of other major books around this time, including William Godwin's Mandeville, Percy's Leon and Cynthia. Uh, and later republished as the Revolt of Islam. Thomas Love Peacock's Rhoda 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 Daphne. Wow, 
and Lee Hunt's <laughs> foliage. They're not making Whoa, it easy on you there, Kevin. Rhoda Daphne. That's a tough one. <laughs> I love uh, these people's names too. Lord Byron, Thomas Love Peacock. I mean, it's good. It's all it's all great. Yeah. That Thomas Love Peacock is he's the most English man of all the <laughs> history of the Englishmen. Right. Thomas Love Peacock. Yeah, yeah. If, if nominative like, determinism yeah. is real, man, that is a yeah. life you're going to yeah. live. As yeah. a husband of uh, Mrs. Peacock from Clue, I think. <laughs> Imagine giving your child the middle name Love. Right. I, I think it's great. I mean, it, again, it's, cool. yeah. it, it's helping to paint a picture of this period, which I right. think maybe people don't quite understand yeah. Yeah. how how much has changed but also how nothing has changed mm-hmm. uh all right november 24th of 1817 mary's father finishes his reading of a proof copy of frankenstein mm-hmm. december 1st the literary panorama and national register announce announces that a work of imagination entitled frankenstein will be uh published toward the close of the present month january 1st Frankenstein, it's published on January 1st, hmm. is published anonymously in three volumes by Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, yeah. uh, and is priced at, oh gosh, approximately $4.13 in okay. US dollars in 1818, uh, okay. when the pound equaled about $5, uh, yielding uh, a net profit of, oh God, I don't know. In any case... <laughs> It, it's got all these. It's, just, it's not. It's not real yeah, money. It's not the greenback. Right. That's right. <laughs> mm. In any case, you know, she's. It's. It's sold as like a like a cheap novel. I mean, if it's right, being sold right. for under five dollars, it's being sold as like almost pulp. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, because it it wouldn't. Well, no, I take it back because it's saying approximately four dollars thirteen cents in U.S. dollars in eighteen eighteen. So that means it was probably pricey. That'd be expensive. Man, that would be expensive. Yeah, I'm flipping yeah. that around. They wouldn't yeah. have had pulp books or whatever back then. So I totally got that. Around. I'm like, oh, I love books. And then I'm making all these weird, goofy statements. <laughs> but uh, yeah, good. I'm glad I paused over that. Yeah. Um, in yeah. any case, yeah, no, everybody's not going out there, out their door to rush to buy a copy of Frankenstein right away. It would be right. something you'd have to like, you know. Yeah. In any case. up for. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, January 2nd. Percy sends a copy of Frankenstein to Walter Scott, who reviews the novel in Blackwood's Edinburgh uh, Edinburgh Magazine. Hmm. All right. So she's getting reviews. La Belle Ensemble, or Belle's Court and Fashionable Magazine, prints a mainly positive review. The Edinburgh Magazine and Literary Miscellany, a new series of the Scots Magazine, prints a mixed review. Uh, March 1818, the gang... Mary, Percy, Claire, three children, and two servants sail from Dover to Calais on their way to Italy. Uh, more positive reviews, so mainly positive. The Gentleman's Magazine prints a positive review. The Monthly Review prints a negative review. Ah. The Literary Panorama and, Emotion- and National Register prints a mainly negative review, also hinting that it was written by Mary Shelley. Ooh. And then it goes on, right? It's it's talking about the reviews, okay? Um yeah, and then in September uh their daughter Clara dies in Venice. Mm. So now they're down in in Italy. Uh April of 1819 John William Polidori's Geneva Vampire Story is published as The Vampire: A Tale by mm. Lord Byron. 
<laughs> in New Monthly Magazine and prefaced by an extract of a letter from Geneva with anecdotes of Lord Byron and company. So that, that <laughs> helps to give an impression of kind of who Lord Byron is, right? Yeah, yeah. We yeah. have our own Lord Byrons online now, don't we? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And Lady Byrons. Yeah. Got a shout out yeah. to the Lady Byrons. June uh, 1819, Mary and Percy's son, William, dies in Rome. Jeez. Bam, bam. September and then June of the, the next year, like, uh, yeah, ugh, pain. So you've got this novel that's coming. It's a wild success, really. And like, yeah. oh, man. Yeah. Jeez. God, you'd, you'd give the book back for the kids, I yeah, assume. For sure. The children. Yeah. And then in November, uh, Percy Florence Shelley is born and he would survive. Okay. And he okay. would live to the end of the, the 19th century. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. If I, I'd have to look at the exact date, but yeah. uh, first translation, Frankenstein's, they're already translating it. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Frankenstein, Ule Promethe Madan. So obviously German. Is translated uh, from the English, uh, published in Paris. July 8th, 1822, Percy drowns after his boat sinks in the Gulf of La Spezia. Yeah, that's... I mean, that is a... Tough stretch. Eighteen. Yeah, she said. She said. How many? Wait. How many children? Three children died. Three children. Eight. Yeah. So she's already lost a child. Eighteen. Eighteen. Child dies. Eighteen. Nineteen. Another child dies. Eighteen. Nineteen. Son is born. Eighteen. Twenty two. So three years later, yeah. Yeah. husband dies. Wow. Wow. You got a three year old. Yeah. Jeez. <sighs> I mean. Can't catch what a, a break, life, dude. Mary can't no. catch a break. Mary cannot catch a break. Um, and now already 1823, Richard Brinsley Peake's Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein opens at the English Opera House, the Lyceum Theater in London, for a run of 37 performances. For this and other theatrical productions, and it goes on. Sorry about that. Um, now, in 1823, and this is something that's really critical about the Frankenstein business, is that there are multiple editions. That's why having the 1818, the, the raw, you want the like the unfiltered mm. version, you got to get this because she would revise it. It was that important. Right, like, right. If, you, if your book sells 200 copies and you're revising it in yeah. your 50s and 60s, you read it, yeah. wrote it when you're 18, you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? <laughs> Unless you, right? This really, yeah. really mattered. This, right. this was going to, she knew this was going to live on well past her. Mm. Um so yeah, in August of 23, the second edition of Frankenstein with the name Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley on the title page nice. is published in two volumes by G and W.B. Whitaker in 500 copies uh, and priced at 14 sterling. There's a little S, I assume it's sterling. There are at least 123 variants in this edition of the novel, probably introduced by William Godwin, who oversees its production because Mary Shelley has not yet returned from Italy. Dad's taken over. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a family affair now. Hey, hey, okay. That's. I mean, you know, might as well have your dad doing it. I mean, yeah, he's, 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 he's no he's slouch. Familiar, no, and he's familiar with the publishing process. Yeah. Um, 
August 1823. We've never done one of these chronologies like this before. Is this is this working? Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, Yeah. we only have like uh, two more pages of it. Um, Henry M. Milner's Frankenstein or the Demon of Switzerland opens at the Royal Coburg Theater in London for a run of eight performances. Okay, so that doesn't run that long. August of 23, Mary returns to England after having lived in Italy for five years. Now she talks it with their hands. <laughs> August 1823. Mary attends the Lyceum to see Peake's presumption or the fate of Frankenstein, finds herself famous, and is delighted that the playbill presents the nameless monster as blank. Just a blank line. Oh, really? So she, nice. she comes back to England and she's famous now. Nice. She goes to see the adaptation of her story, her little ghost story, (laughs) and she's a household name now. You'd love to see it. It's nice because it's like she's she suffers so much in her life, man. And so it's nice to see that it happened for her in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And and they attended a lot of theater when they were young. They weren't like there every day or every week, you know, but they were they would go to the theater um, as people in London still do. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. September 1823. Humgumption or Dr. Frankenstein and the Hobgoblin of Hoxton opens at the... <laughs> I like that they keep calling the monster the demon of Switzerland. The Hobgoblin yeah. of Hoxton. Yeah, I just, I, just, I just love that it's called Humgumption. Like, what the heck? <laughs> what does that even mean? Humgumption. <laughs> this episode's definitely called Mary Shelley's Monsters. Okay, okay. Humgumption. Uh, at the New Surrey Theater for a run of six performances, Presumption and the Blue Demon opens at Davis's Royal Amphitheater for a run of two performances. That's not much of a run. No, no, not really a run. <laughs> it's more of a light jog. It's more of a, it's, it's more of like stepping outside to get the mail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a run of two per, two performances. I mean, they did they did it at two and they did it at seven thirty, right, and then they right. went home, and then that was... and never spoke of it again. <laughs> the theater. <laughs> and I've never been a part of anything like that. Uh, so fun. September 1823, the London Literary Gazette reports that the English Opera House's Frankenstein continues to scare the children. Excellent. Yeah, Oct- excellent. <laughs> October 20, 1823, Richard Brinsley Peaks, another piece of presumption, opens at the Adelphi Theater for a run of nine performances, presumably related. Mm-hmm. Uh Knights, this is July 1824, Knights Quarterly Magazine prints a mainly positive review. Okay, fine. December 1824, Frankenstein, or the Modern Promise to Pay, opens at the Olympic Theater for a run of four, four performances. I wonder if, like, so now that what are these are like adaptations and like weird riffs, it's it's yeah. it, it's definitely painting the picture though of what this is like Beatlemania, right? But it's right, Mar- Mary Shelley, any little, any little bit of it, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of these mm-hmm. probably have the monster, like, you know doing some little dance number who knows well it gets better listen to this one jean toussaint mare and antoine nicolas barode's le monstre et le magician opens at the theater de la porte saint martin in paris for a run of 94 performances that's a that's a run that's that's a a trot that's a good run that's that's what you want that pays a few bills 
Mm-hmm. Uh, July 3rd, 1826, Henry M. Milner's The Man and the Monster, or The Fate of Frankenstein, opens at the Royal Coburg Theater for a run of eight performances. So they must, these impresarios must just be like hiring playwrights or writing their own adaptations, taking this character. Presumably there were no intellectual property laws, or you could just sort of take the character. She named Frankenstein after this castle in Switzerland. Like, Lynn, like I think there's a castle okay. called Frankenstein in Switzerland. Oh, really? I was wondering yeah. where the name came from. Yeah. Yeah. Let it, me just yeah. double check. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, you do wonder kind of like, the, yeah, does she make any money from this, from these, all these adaptations? I mean, I guess I she really, might have, yeah. it may have, she got, she got paid an exposure, right? So people maybe yeah, like, yeah. went and bought yeah. editions of the book. Yeah, yeah. you're going you're gonna to get more copies of the book. I, I don't know if there was licensing or what at the period. Um, it might have something in this biography. I don't recall yeah. uh, reading about it. Yeah, um, but I, I figure some money would end up in her hands. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, after Shelley died, she would oversee his literary estate and he would become a household name after the fact. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and they were they were already living with servants and things, you know, they were already kind of comfortably, I, I guess, I, you know, I don't know what you would call it, but middle class or upper middle class. I mean, yeah, Shelley came from money. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, okay. Yeah. So yeah, um, I, I just yeah. quick Shelley traveled through Europe in 1815, uh, 1815, moving along the river Rhine in Germany and stopping in Gernsheim, 11 miles away from Frankenstein castle, where two centuries before an alchemist had engaged in experiments. So there you go. That's where she got the name from. Yeah. Very cool. I was looking at that on the Wikipedia, Brad, I'm going to stand up, use the, use the restroom. Tell me, before we finish the chronology, just tell me where you're at with the overall Mary Shelley vibe right now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm still uh, in uh, reeling from the fact that she wrote this so young. I mean, it's 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 hard to even <laughs> to write anything uh, good at age 18 um, is uh, remarkable. And to write something like this, that's is, is sort of so unique and, and fully realized is, is while you're meanwhile, like, you know, ch- children and fleeing, you know, the, the, the moral sort of strictures of the time and, um, caught up in this sort of, um, what must've at times been a little bit scary, you know, but romantic adventurous lifestyle is pretty amazing. Um, and do you think it's it's sort of interesting that, um, you know, she stands, I, I imagine, in the scholarship for the longest time, if you were to take Byron, um, Percy Shelley, and Mary Shelley, she would be sort of the third rated of these artists, right? And yet, I think now the interest is much more on Mary, even academically, probably, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and when you think about influence, I mean, I can't, right. I, we I, we haven't covered Percy. We haven't covered Lord Byron. Um, right. They're going to so get they don't matter. I mean, if, if they yeah, mattered, they would have been covered. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, because we could do 100 episodes a month, if only. Right. Uh, no, these episodes take time, yes, folks. Sir. They take yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, in any case, yeah, you're right. I mean, and when you think about our modern culture, our contemporary culture, and how every every monster story points to this. Um, on the After Dark, I'll talk about this essay 
and read from this essay at the end of this volume of Frankenstein that I have, where she talks about how to read Frankenstein and points out the, the doppelganger effect that yeah. like Frankenstein is the monster is Frankenstein. And there's this doubling relationship. And then you have Frankenstein's wife and the female creature and the way that like psychologically Mary consciously or intuitively kind of paired these characters that comes right through to the work of someone like David Lynch, yeah. uh, where this dop this uncanny doubling is a fixture of contemporary of art. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. I don't know that Mary originated that, but this is a wildly popular novel where that's very, very obvious. Yeah. I mean, you look at the, you know, even the cover, if you find us on YouTube, we're at youtube.com slash at art of dark pod, you know, this cover has, the creature mm -hmm. sort of looking back at itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's this quality and there's a philosophical quality to this idea of like, and obviously with AI now, AI is a Frankenstein story, right? What are right. we creating? Is this thing going to be beautiful or is it going to be ugly? Is it going to make the world ugly? Is it right. going to come back to haunt us? Is it going to hurt us? Right. All of these anxieties she was writing about over 200 years ago. Right, uh, right, right, right. It's all right there in plain English that you can read without needing a dictionary at the yeah. or at the Soros for yeah. for most of our Art of Darkness <laughs> listeners. I know we have some <laughs> some listeners abroad for yeah. whom English may not be their first language, and I just want to say, super jealous of y'all. <laughs> I I wish I could get this, this fucking thing out of my head. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm only half joking, but uh, yeah, there you go. So good. Enjoy. You should read Frankenstein mm. eventually. All right. If you, have, if you have not read it, you definitely should. All right. We're almost done with the chronology. Uh, let's see. John Kerr's The Monster and the Musician, uh, Magician or the Fate of Frankenstein runs for performances. This is very important. Halloween. 1831, the third edition of Frankenstein, revised, corrected, and illustrated with an engraved Ooh. title page and uh, frontispiece and a new introduction is published in one volume as part of the standard novel series by Henry Colburn and Richard Bentley in 4,020 stereotyped copies at six uh, sterling. Mary 4,020. That's, that's a run <laughs> mm -hmm. much bigger than you'd, be, you'd be happy to sell that many copies of a novel today. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mary having sold her copyright for the new edition for 30 pounds, this stereotyped 1831 edition was reprinted with new title pages uh, in 1832, 1839 and 1849. Okay. I'm going to do a few little bits of research here in the background. I just want to go like, inflation calculator okay it gets tricky going back that far plus does it jumping, jumping uh yeah plus jumping from one currency to another well i just want to see what like what would be the value of 18 18 dollars today dollars today god see Let i think see. it's at least 20 i think it's at least 20x let me see <clears throat> And Anymore. take this with a grain. Take this with a grain of salt. Yeah, four dollars and eighteen eighteen is worth almost a hundred dollars today. Yeah, okay. And that that wouldn't surprise me if, like, the first edition of a novel at that time before mass production. I don't know. Yeah. Stephanie Leahy, friend mm -hmm. of the show, 
She'll be coming back for another episode next year, who is oh, yeah. a, at Cambridge now uh, and, and a historian of the, you know, the medieval period and a, and a historian of books, I think. I mean, I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I'll let Stephanie speak for herself. But Stephanie, if you know anything more about this, we want to hear from you because it's very, very fascinating and interesting. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, does, it doesn't surprise me that it would be that it that expensive yeah yeah i guess it doesn't shock me either i mean the production costs were probably it's it's wasn't physically easy to make a book so you can imagine mm. them being being a lot more expensive than they are today yeah i'm gonna look up the inflation of 30 pounds sterling <laughs> 1818 well this would have been like 1831 yeah this stuff is fascinating yeah. okay officialdata.org Ah yes, that's uh, that's a, that's, a uh, that's a reputable website. It's a fi- it's an official. Yeah, yeah. So it says she sold the rights for like four thousand two hundred pounds, if that's be- to be believed, which seems okay. rather seems rather uh, small. But that's just for that edition. So I don't know. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if it's twenty times that, say, no, know. no, because it, it, thirty pounds in eighteen thirty is worth. 4,000. Oh, I see. Pounds. Okay. I'm sorry. Again, yeah. this is not the word of God. I'm just sort right. of like, uh, right. it's, 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 it, it, is, it does get interesting, right? Is, is there a market mm. for this? Did she get, she was famous. Did she get rich? You know, it's mm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, maybe we'll get into it when, when you read from the book a bit. Um, the Morning Chronicle in November of 1831 reports that the d- demand for the ninth number of the standard novels containing Frankenstein and the first part of the Ghost Seer, having been so great as to absorb on the first day the whole supply, we are requested to inform those who are disappointed in their applications for that volume that another impression has been produced and copies may be had either at the publishers or at the retail booksellers. Sold mm. out. Sorry. Nice. We had nice. to do another run. Yeah. yeah. November 19, 1831, the London Literary Gazette prints a positive review of the 1831 edition. Uh, and that's it. All right. Nice. So that carried cool. us through like her life during that period and kind of the the ongoing legacy of, of the novel Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to change tact and go into the novel. And I'm going to read from that chapter four. Okay. You ready? Yeah. And then it. when this is done, we're going to go, we're actually going to go back to the Wikipedia and I'm going to start blasting through her biography and get into okay. the, the biography proper. Okay. I just felt, I don't know what it was, this volume on Frankenstein and Frankenstein is such a looming, important <laughs> thing mm-hmm. the temptation is like well mary is so much more than that book frankenstein right. and she right. has these other novels it's like okay but yes at what at the end of the day like right what is the thing yeah. and why is this thing so ubiquitous right. let's explore shall we sure yeah oh and it's perfect it's november right now see there's a reason we, we didn't do this in uh october all right yeah yeah it all yeah. makes sense all right It was on a dreary night in November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. 
It breathed hard and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion and I had selected his features as beautiful, beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscle and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, lassitude succeeded to the tumult I had before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness, but it was in vain. I slept indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw, saw Elizabeth in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her, but as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of the flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead. My teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed. When, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me. Um, but I escaped and rushed downstairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night, walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demoniacal corpse to which I had so miserably given life. Dang. Right? <laughs> that's good. It's amazing. That's quite good. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's just like, yeah, and then of course she cites uh, Coleridge's "Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner" on the next page. Yeah, okay. Well, there you mm. go. So that's nice. that's a bit about the prose, and there's nothing about a, a bunch of you know wild bolts of electricity. There's nothing about it's alive, it's right. alive. It's right. It's existential. It's you. One gets the impression she's clearly writing this idea that he gave 
part of his life and his health and his sanity over to this creature. And of course, this creature wakes up and it's just a gibbering. It's like a, you know, it yeah, it doesn't like have a, language. It's a zombie. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like an infant in a in an adult's body or something. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. powerful. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's quite good. Okay. All right. Let's uh stop worrying about what the dollar used to be worth. <laughs> let's not talk of such things. Uh and I'm just gonna I'm gonna get into the uh you know the full bio here. First I'm gonna have a little sip of water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's gonna that. be good. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of uh, threads in old Duder's head here. <laughs> Who are you doing next? Who are you covering next, Brad? Uh, Nina Simone is my next oh. subject. A little bit of a Ooh. left turn for us, but it's good. That's she's, a story was, with plenty of, plenty of monsters in that story, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's Some real. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is where I do the, the business from Wikipedia and then also the, uh, the great uh, Miranda Seymour biography. Little dry that biography, but it's thorough. Yeah, um, it's one of those. It doesn't really read like a novel, but I kind of respect it. Like sometimes biographies can be a little casual. Yeah. This right. is like on this day, this letter was sent. Right. This is what it said, <laughs> right? Like I, real, yeah. real history hours. Yeah, yes. I dig it. Yeah. Um, so Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin in Somerstown, London, in 1797. She was the second child of the, of Mary Wollstonecraft, as we know, and the first child of William Godwin, who's described as a philosopher, novelist, and journalist. And now I've got something from the biography that kind of explains their, uh, I guess, what we'll call progressivism or their lib- their liberalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. I kind of this is a fun. Uh, paragraph on the evening of uh on an august evening godwin and his, and his wife sat cozily reading a favorite book the sorrows of young werther mm. we'll be doing goethe at some point mm-hmm. uh godwin wrote uh fondly in his journal relishing the prospect of his first child's arrival i have no doubt of seeing the animal today and uh there's the uh, footnote that I'll read. Odd though it sounds to our ears, animal was a word frequently applied to babies. Uh, in- <laughs> a, l- a little animal. <laughs> what is it? What's the line from Home Alone? Merry Christmas, you filthy yeah, animal. animals. Filthy yeah. animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in 1795, Wollstonecraft had reported to Emily of Fanny that my animal is well. And was being weaned. So that's fun. Yeah. Let's let's yeah. let's return to that. Let's start calling babies animals. Yeah. I like, I like that. Mary reported to him the following morning. She allayed his anxiety with a calm request for a novel or a newspaper to while away the tedium of waiting. So there she's quite pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh ideally, Godwin would have liked his wife to be attended by a male doctor, probably his friend, the chemist and surgeon Anthony Carlyle, but Mary overruled him. A midwife was all she required. Fanny's birth had given her no trouble. She expected to be up for dinner the following day. Godwin was still working in his room uh, that afternoon when a note from Mary arrived telling him that Mrs. Blenkinsop, an experienced midwife from the Westminster Lying In Hospital, was in attendance and a safe delivery was confidently expected, but that I must have a little patience. Strangely, they were the words which her mother had spoken just before her death. It took nine hours for the baby to be born. 
That's a relatively short labor, I think. Godwin was summoned in in shortly before midnight to see not the expected William, but a healthy baby daughter, a new Mary. It was a joyful moment, lovingly recalled in several of his novels. A short time later, the midwife asked him to send for assistance. The afterbirth had not come away. It was two in the morning, but Godwin was sufficiently alarmed by Mrs. Blinkensop's manner to take a carriage across London to the Westminster Hospital. And um, the name is uh, misleading. It was like a dispensary. It wasn't like a lying. It wasn't a place you would go to like stay the night. It was more like a um, like a pharmacy. Oh, okay. um, but there were surgeons attached to it, apparently. So uh, in any case... Um, let's see. He brought back Dr. Poignant and only member, uh, the only member of the Royal College of Physicians who also held a license as a midwife. Poignant shared Mrs. Blenkinsop's concern. He went to work at once and continued for a period of hours until he believed all of the placenta had been pulled free. He probably worked with his bare hands. Yeah. Yeah. If they're like riding a horse across town and yeah, 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 yeah. Oh boy. Yep. Yeah, Mary told Godwin the next day that she had never known such pain. All right. Both Anthony Carlyle and George Fortis, a doctor Mary had known and trusted for almost 15 years, were reassuring when they visited the Polygon where, where they lived that day, a Thursday. All was going to be well. Fanny was dispatched for a short holiday with the Revleys. Godwin felt easy enough to go back to his work room. Sunday was a turning point. Godwin had invited his sister to dine at the Polygon with her friend, Louisa Jones, a young woman who was being considered for the post of nurse to Mary and Fanny. He came back from a visit across town to hear that his wife had been suffering from shivering fits. The guests were hastily put off. Mary asked Godwin to eat in the little ground floor parlor instead of the dining room on the first floor, which was directly below her bedroom. Perhaps she wanted to avoid alarming him. Her next shivering fit was so violent that the floorboards rattled. The following day, Fortis gave Mary the heartbreaking news that she must stop feeding her baby in case her milk poisoned it. She tried to join in the laughter when puppies were brought to drain her overflowing breast. By now, a terrible play was in progress. Mary seemed to believe she would recover. Godwin had been quietly informed that there was little hope. On Wednesday, summoned by an anxious Basil Montague at Godwin's request, Anthony Carlyle arrived to take charge of the frightened household. His sweetness and consideration had helped them all to endure, Godwin Godwin told him later. He was a hero among men. Carlyle, later knighted for his services as surgeon extraordinary to the Prince Regent, was renowned for his kindness and for an uncommon faculty for making friends. He was not, however, regarded with much respect by his fellow surgeons. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, this is a little bit a quote. As a surgeon, he was far inferior in every way to his colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. Oh, man. (laughs) That's a... That's terrible. If, you know, if you're remembered by history and that's it, that's 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 rough. I mean, some people belong in administration, man. Some yeah, people yeah, should be yeah. managers and yeah, fundraisers sure. and yeah, yeah just keep the, ni- keep the knife out of his hands. Give him a pen. Take the knife right, away. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take the scalpel away. Uh, he was notoriously erratic in his diagnoses. It does not follow that any other doctor could have done better. And it's purpural fever. It was common enough to wipe out whole wards of women at the time. 
But by 1797, only one Scottish doctor, Alexander Gordon, witnessed an outbreak in Aberdeen, had made a tentative connection between the birth attendant and the rapid spread of infection. All poor Godwin could gather from the many doctors who attended his wife at the Polygon during the dreadful last 10 days of her life was that the afterbirth had been insufficiently extracted. In fact, had it been left in place to expel itself naturally, Mary might have survived. The disease was introduced on the hands that endeavored to save her. Mm, Jeez. Yeah, this was like like post people thinking that demons caused everything and pre like actually, you know, antibiotics and washing your hands. And it's kind of a weird period in in medical science. Mm. This is something that Godwin would write in one of his novels, novel he wrote the following year. Um, Great God of heaven, what is man and of what are we made? Within that petty frame resided for years all that we worship, for there resided all that we know and can conceive of excellence. That heart is now still. Within the whole extent of that frame, there exists no thought, no feeling, no virtue. It remains no longer, but to mock my sense and scoff at my sorrow, to rend my bosom with with a woe, complicated, matchless, and inexpressible. I never loved but one. I never loved but Marguerite. Of course, he's writing about his own, yeah. writing about Mary. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. Well, so, and he's going to rush to to find another uh, wife, but we'll get well, to it. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. he's got, yeah, there's two kids. He's responsible for two kids now, right? One's an infant. So that's right. kind of how it And not even, not even biologically his. Not that. Oh. Oh, I the mean, first one. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. Fanny. Yeah. Yeah. He's adopted her, but mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Heavy man. Heavy. Yeah, yeah. And somehow like all very relatable. Okay. Mm-hmm. Godwin was left to bring up Mary along with her older half sister, Fanny Imlay, Wollstonecraft's child by the American speculator, Gilbert Imlay. Oh, and she's an American. Oh, jeez. jeez. <laughs> oh, Gilbert, what did you do? Yeah. Um, he was an American businessman, author, and diplomat. Very oh, good. Boy. Okay. Uh, A year after Wollstonecraft's death, Godwin published his memoirs of the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women, which he intended as a sincere and compassionate tribute. However, because the memoirs memoirs revealed Wollstonecraft's affairs and her illegitimate child, they were seen as shocking. So here's what happens. It's October 1797. Mary was highly enough esteemed for so sedate a publication as the gentleman's magazine uh, to publish the following tribute. Her manners were gentle, easy, and elegant. Her conversation intelligent and amusing without the least trait of literary pride or the apparent consciousness of power above the level of her sex. And for soundness of understanding and sensibility of heart, she was perhaps never equaled. Her practical skill and education was even superior to her speculations upon that subject. Nor is it possible to express the misfortune sustained in that respect by her children. This respectful attitude did not survive the publication in January. So it's October of 97. In January, he publishes this memoir. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's also a bit rushed. Yeah. Uh, Of 1798. 
Rousseau's confessions pale beside the unflinching candor with which Godwin presented details which most of his readers would have preferred not to know or to seem not to know. These memoirs did not allow for the luxury of hypocrisy. Fanny's illegitimacy was as frankly acknowledged as the fact that Godwin's own daughter had been conceived out of wedlock. Mary's suicide attempts, which had previously been the subject of rumor rather than certainty, were no longer left in doubt. Railing against the double standards of women like Elizabeth Inchbald, Godwin did more in, in the short term for her cause than his wife's. The last nail hammered into the coffin of Mary's reputation was his simultaneous publication of the letters she had written to Gilbert Imlay at the height of their affair. Like this guy's like, we're going to air it all out. Right. I mean, there's, 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 there's sort of, you got a principle on one hand and the other hand, it's like, you know, not every detail of this is the entire world's business. Like, right. I, I don't right. know. It's kind of use your inside voice. You don't have to say everything that comes to your head. You don't have to publish every letter. You right. don't have to publish screenshots of every group chat. Right. You could, every, have a yeah. you could have a paragraph even referring to the fact, maybe implying that she had lovers or whatever, but like, you don't have to like, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A little over the top. Right. Uh, and then publishing the letters to her lover, like, like during the affair, why? the father of your, <laughs> I wonder if there was I wonder if there was a well we we could spend a lot of time on this. I just wonder if there could was have been any, a financial. Yeah, that's what I was just gonna say. If he thought he could make a few bucks off of it, I mean I don't think yeah. I, that's I, the case. Ugh. I don't know though. Good I mean, Lord. I think he had a sense of how historical everything was. Mm -hmm. Like she's a, it's very heavy and strange. Um the monthly reviews contributor, one of the mildest, waited until the autumn issue to wonder what on earth Mr. Godwin could have been thinking of when he exhumed a history, which we must read with pity and concern, but which we would have advised the author to bury in oblivion. Blushes would suffuse the cheeks of most husbands if they were forced to relate those anecdotes of their wives, which Mr. Godwin voluntarily proclaims to the world. Others were less kind, notably the Tory journals who already viewed Godwin as a political outcast and his wife as a threat to womanly virtue. The new anti-Jacobin reviews index for 1798 noted under the heading prostitution, see Mary Wollstonecraft. Oh my God. <laughs> Hannah Moore, whose educational views were not radically different from Mary's own, opened her 1799 book on female education with attack an attack on the female worder, as she is described by her biographer, for daring to defend adultery. Mm. Mary's friend, the philanthropist and biographer William Roscoe, pitied her the fate of being mourned by a husband with a heart of stone. Mm. Scandal and hostile reviews had the predictable effect of making the memoirs more discussed than read. By 1801, the anonymous author of The Vision of Liberty was ready to believe that Godwin had told a story of brothel feats of wantonness being her spouse he tells with huge delight how oft she cuckolded the silly clown and lent oh lovely peace herself to half the town mm. god this mimis makes me wonder like did godwin have like a little bit of a fetish for this kind of like he wanted to be humiliated i you know i yeah i anyway. i really don't know 
Right. I really do not know. Yeah, it's it's a mis- somewhat mysterious. You mm-hmm. can even tell the biography doesn't quite know. I think again, I think that he, I don't know, he was some somehow he was, pr- he was grieving and out of his mind. Well, that's he probably, probably part of wanted it. to just share with the world and just get it out there. I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the her her vindication wasn't republished until the 1840s. Wow, uh, you know, there's a lot of damage. Um, that was under her reputation. Sure. The his mem- this memoir cost Godwin several friendships and helped to identify him as a cold blooded monster. Uh so yeah, that happened. Wow. Okay. Meanwhile, little Mary knew nothing of this. Sure. Um, it is hard to be sure at what point and to what degree Mary felt that her own birth had robbed her mother, who was only 30, 38 when she died of, of life. Mm. Frankenstein's creation of a child he perceives as abhorrent might tell us something dark and troubling about Mary's view of herself. We don't know, but yeah. we, you can sort of, you know, speculate. Um, and uh, yeah, and that that business about the corpse of the dream he has, Frankenstein, about the corpse of his dead mother. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. So moving on. Uh, just going to. Okay, Art of Darkness. This is, you know, we don't have to go looking for the dark stuff. No, no. All here. All right. Mary Godwin read these memoirs in her mother's books and was brought up to cherish her mother's memory. Her earliest years were happy, judging from letters, but Godwin, her father, was often deeply in debt. Feeling that he could not raise the children by himself, he cast about for a second wife, as most people would do. In December 1801, he married Mary Jane Claremont, a well-educated woman with two children of her own, Charles and Claire. Most of Godwin's friends disliked his new wife, describing her as quick-tempered and quarrelsome, but Godwin was devoted to her and the marriage was a success. In the biography, they say she kind of divided people. Some people thought she was fine, great even. Others really didn't like her. Mary never really got on with her with her stepmother. Um, Mary Godwin, in contrast, came to detest her stepmother. Uh, William Godwin's 19th century biographer, Charles Keegan Paul, later suggested that Mrs. Godwin had favored her own children over those of Mary Wollstonecraft. Okay. Well, you're going to be a step parent, right? Yeah. It's tough. Are you, you're, you know, you got two kids of your own. You got two kids, one of whom isn't even your husband's. You're mm-hmm. going to favor your own children. Probably it's a little bit, prob- and well, I, and yeah. any anything that doesn't go exactly right is going to be perceived that way anyway. So it's yeah, it's it's a tricky situation for mm. sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, together the Godwin started a publishing firm called M.J. Godwin, which sold children's books as well as stationary maps and games. However, the business did not turn a profit, and Godwin was forced to borrow substantial sums to keep it going. That's never good when you got to borrow money to keep your business going. Like, if we had to borrow money to do this podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that would yeah. not be that's no, no, no not that's sustainable. Not, that's not good. Not no. not sustainable. Yeah. He continued to borrow to pay off earlier loans, compounding his difficulties. It's good use like, of the word com- I, compounding. 
I like to imagine that his his children's books were like um, we see these kind of now. They're sort of like radical radical politics children's books. Like he's got yeah. like anarchist yes. <laughs> children's yep. books. Yeah. yeah, that I mean that's that's what he was doing. He was trying to teach you know different different values and yeah. 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 I don't know that it was with such a heavy hand, but probably, uh, right. probably yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, definitely. Hmm. All right, uh, in. By 1809, Godwin's business was close to failure, and he was near to despair. He was saved from debtor's prison. Uh, so again, you can't just go bankrupt here. Right. Like you're going to end up in Australia right. or in prison. Yeah. Uh, if you can't pay your debts, Ugh. like that's fun. And you're running your little bookstore. Right. You got <laughs> a brood of children in this big messed up family, this big unconventional family. Mm-hmm. And your daughter's the most famous bastard in the country. Right. You're mm-hmm. running a little bookshop. Right. You got all these high flown ideas in your head about free love and right. how things should be. Yeah. There's a tell all and- memoir by, by, you know, your wife's tell all memoir about all of her indiscretions that you wrote. There floating around that yep. you wrote. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and her letters to her lover, you know, before you married her. Yeah. Oh, Good. We're living oh, large here. Boy. This is the oh, environment William that marries Godwin. Yeah. Godwin, William Godwin. But he was saved from debtor's prison by philosophical devotees, but by, by his Patreon supporters, <laughs> such as, <laughs> hey guys, really, please. Yeah, no kidding. Um, such as, we're going to need to call a lawyer at some point. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, love to mm. visit Australia, but I don't want to be sent there. <laughs> hey, gun, we, we have, they're not sending anybody to Australia by gunpoint. Anymore, Brad. They're, I think no, they're actually I keeping know, people from kidding. leaving the country. But that's probably at certain <laughs> at certain points. I don't know. We have we have Australian <laughs> listeners and listeners yeah. in New Zealand too. I was seeing some New Zealand numbers. It's cool. really cool. Shout out to everybody down under. Mm-hmm. We appreciate y'all. Uh, it's just cool. Um, yeah. So uh, he, he. This is funny. His philosophical devotee Francis Place lent him further money. Ah, yes. <laughs> so it sounds like he's not getting grants. He's getting loans. <laughs> Got a little, mm. got a little cult thing going on. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, a real cult would be giving him money, Brett. That's true. Yeah, I think he's like a respected. He's a respected radical philosopher and figure. Uh, yeah. You know, and so so like, oh, you need you need ten thousand dollars. All right, I'll I'll lend it to you. You know, next to no interest, and yeah. pay me back when you can. Yeah. All right. So don't because I don't want you to go to prison. All right. <laughs> Though. Mary Godwin received a little formal education. Her father tutored her in the broad range of subjects. He often took the children on educational outings, and they had access to his library and to the many intellectuals who visited him, including uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Aaron Burr, the former vice president of the U.S. (laughs) And Elvis Presley. (laughs) Right, right, right. That's wild. John Lennon. What was Aaron Burr? Jimi Hendrix. Right. <laughs> we don't have to get too into it. What that? What was Aaron Burr doing over there? He'd been but exiled, he, right? Yeah, he had been. He yeah. had been exiled. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, Brad, I, I pick my battles with episodes like this sure. because yeah. you know it's like, I, yeah, I can totally. No, you can go off on uh, any tangent, right? It's, yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody expects you to know the yeah. detailed history of Aaron Burr. He was put on trial for treason, acquitted, and he fled America and his creditors well, for Europe. Uh, as you do there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if we'll ever do an Aaron Burr episode. 
but there you go. Probably not. Different podcast. Yep. Uh, Godwin admitted that he was not educating the children according to Mary Wollstonecraft's philosophy as outlined in her works, but Mary Godwin nonetheless received an unusual and advanced education for a girl of the time. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think reading Frankenstein, we can see that. Yeah. Uh, she had a governess and a daily tutor and read many of her father's children's books on Roman and Greek history in manuscript. Yeah. For six months. Receiving, it, mm-hmm. Sorry, she was receiving an advanced education for our time, let alone... <laughs> yeah yeah you have to pay mightily for an education like this now or you have to provide it yourself as best right. you can and no youtube videos aren't going to do it <laughs> sorry sorry yeah sorry guy who says a liberal arts degree is worthless guy <laughs> on the internet who thinks a high school degree in youtube is comparable to a full, a, like a philosophy bachelor's degree from Yale or Stanford or even a right. public school. Sorry. Yeah. 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 It really is not the same. And I'm kind of sick of pretending that it is. <laughs> like at the end, yeah. You, if you're going to go get like a marketing degree from a state school. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you still, you're still going to learn a lot of rigorous stuff. Yeah. You get a philosophy degree or a history degree or a degree mm-hmm. in English mm-hmm. from a, from a good school, even like yeah. a, a decent school. Yeah, you're going to be you putting can't, some work in. You can't replicate that experience on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, and 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 I love that we can do this podcast and we can contribute meaningfully to people's general sort of arts education and history, historical education. But yeah. there is a de- my point here is that there's a degree of rigor involved. Well, and you're, you're also you you know you got to you've got to produce things too. You've got to write papers and you've got to like you know yeah mm-hmm. it's, it's a different yeah, animal. Right. Right. Yeah. You probably could do it on all on YouTube, but you'd have you'd also have to be somewhat insane. You'd have to like you'd assign be, yourself a syllabus and like mm-hmm. and actually yeah. follow through it. But then who's right. gonna grade and respond? It's just a wildly different right. experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh in any case, fun. So uh let's see. Uh for six months in 1811, she also attended a boarding school in Ramsgate. Her father described her at age 15 as singularly bold, somewhat imperious, and active of mind. Her desire of knowledge is great, and her perseverance in everything she undertakes almost invincible. I have to say, go ahead. I just said nice. Oh, yeah. Their their facility for language is such a delight. It reminds me of just, maybe I take back what I said about English. Like, there is some... Okay, it's the operating system we have. You can do a hell of a lot with this thing. Oh, yeah. Some, oh, yeah. Yeah. And these folks took it seriously. What a way to describe a 15 year old. In June 1812, Mary's father sent her to stay with the dissenting family of the radical William Baxter <laughs> near Dundee, Scotland. And a dissenter, uh, is there a specific? It has to do with um, uh, religion dissenting from the Anglican Anglican Church. Mm -hmm. Um, They separated from the Church of England. Uh, Yeah. To Baxter, he wrote, I am anxious that she should be brought up like a philosopher, even like a cynic. Mm -hmm. Scholars have speculated that she was sent away for her health to remove her from the seamy side of the business or to introduce her to radical politics. My understanding, too, in the biography is that, like, she helped out around the store and was apparently very good at it. She could tally and take money and yeah i mean sure why not yeah look around i don't know not sure i'll 
I'd get a half and half of 15 year olds could probably handle a four hour shift at a, <laughs> like a retail bookseller in a busy city like London. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, without freaking out or like hiding in the bathroom on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mary Godwin reveled in the spacious surroundings of Baxter's house and in the companionship of his four daughters, and she returned north in the summer of 1813 for a further stay of 10 months. In the 1833 introduction to Frankenstein, she recalled, I wrote then, but in a most commonplace style. It was beneath the trees of the grounds belonging to our house or on the bleak sides of the woodless mountains near that my true compositions, the airy flights of my imagination, were born and fostered mm -hmm. now we are going to meet somebody who's going to figure very heavily into the remainder of our story the man who would give mary her name mary mm -hmm. shelley we're going to meet percy shelley and this section just really smacked me in the face when i was reading this let's see they're describing the house in london Mary was unhappy. Jane was restless. Fanny has always kept her thoughts to herself. Godwin, closeted in his study, was too obsessed by his financial problems to notice the storm which was brewing under his roof. So out of touch was he with the situation that he complimented himself on the satisfactory way in which his educational methods appeared to be bearing fruit. I have again and again been hopeless concerning the children, he wrote complacently to a new friend in March of 1812. Seeds of intellect and knowledge, seeds of moral judgment and conduct I have sown, but the soil for a long time seemed ungrateful to the tiller's care. It was not so. The happiest operations were going on quietly and unobserved, and at the moment when it was of the utmost importance, they unfolded themselves to the delight of every beholder. The friend to whom Godwin sent this glowing account in March was Percy Shelley. And it was a wish to impress that caused him to boast of his success as an educator to this new disciple and potential provider of financial assistance. <laughs> Shelley, age 19, had eloped the previous August with Harriet Westbrook, daughter of a prosperous and fashionable coffee house owner. Mm. Five months after being sent down from University College, Oxford, for printing heresies in a pamphlet flamboyantly titled the necessity of atheism. Whoa. He's an edge edgelord. Yeah. Yeah. 19 year old poet edgelord. It's, it's just him on the front with his fedora, just tipping his fedora. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Poetic atheism. Mm. Po poems about nothing. Uh, <laughs> still my favorite line from, Exa from, uh, from uh, Lebowski. He's a nihilist. Yeah. He, what what is it? He's an honest. He doesn't believe in anything. That must be exhausting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the all time bangers, man. It's so funny. It's just so funny because it, it sounds exhausting to a guy like Lebowski. Right. It's forced. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a perfect line, dude. Yep. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um. His father, well, none too happy, and this is Percy's father, well, none too happy about this, had been made much angrier when he, his expelled son announced that he was not interested in being the heir to a handsome estate in Sussex, a baronetcy, and the castle 
built by his grandfather, preferring to settle for an annual allowance with no strings attached. His contempt for Timothy Shelley dated back to 1807 when young Percy, then a schoolboy at Eton, heard reports of the corrupt electioneering methods which had helped his father to re-election as MP for East Shoreham. Money, 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 yeah. money. Yeah. The Shelley family's grandest friend and neighbor, the Duke of Norfolk, had invited the boy up to his Cumberland estate in December of 1811 in the hope of making him see sense. Brief rapprochement ended when Shelley was found to have been posting secret communications to Helen, one of his younger sisters, urging her to, to support him. He had already accused his mother of an adulterous relationship with a music master. This was the last straw. Summarily banished from the family circle, Shelley was in need of a new father figure. Visiting the poet poet Robert Southey after his short stay with the Duke of Norfolk, Shelley uh, thought his wish had been granted. Southey told him that his recently discovered hero, William Godwin, author of political justice, was not, as he supposed, dead, but running a bookshop in London. Hey. Hey, dad. (laughs) <laughs> will you be my, my right. dad <laughs> right. uh yeah shelly had already dispatched and these two they deserve each other what they're what's gonna happen this is fun yeah. shelly had already dispatched two letters to godwin even before he rashly tried to enlist the sympathy of his little schoolgirl sister in the first he presented himself as an ardent godwinian eager to learn and to be of use Godwin had a long experience of confused, excitable young men who wanted to be his protégés. He asked for more clarification. The second letter, written uh, on the 10th of January, was far more promising. Here, Shelley presented himself not as a protégé, but as a potential patron. Ooh, there you go. Godwin's replies grew noticeably warmer. You cannot imagine how much all the females of my family, Mrs. G and three daughters, are interested in your letters and your history, he informed his still unseen friend in March. By July, he could tell Shelley that all the ladies thrilled to the sight of the well-known hand on a letter and that they were on the tiptoe to know his latest news. (laughs) If Shelley wanted a father figure, Godwin was happy to play that role to a young man whose generosity might yet be the saving of the bookshop and his honor. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then they get into a little back and forth and Shelley's a 19 year old, uh, fabulous and storyteller and poet and bullshit artist. Right. And, you know, has the backing of yeah. a rich family, spoiled rich kid. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Eaton in Oxford got kicked out of Oxford for writing a, an incendiary pamphlet and right. da Right. All right. And and not a very good sailor. Not a very good sailor. We're going to find out. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. He should have spent less time uh, thinking about atheism and more time thinking about sailcraft (laughs) (laughs) or whatever they call it. Right. Yeah. Um, So there we go. Mary Godwin may have first met the radical poet philosopher Percy Bechet Shelley in the interval between her two stays in Scotland. By the time she returned home for a second time on the 30th of March, Percy Shelley had become estranged from his wife and was regularly visiting William Godwin. That is a hell of a life. If you're 19 years old and already estranged from your wife, you're... (laughs) Yeah. They grew up fast in those days. You're living life on turbo mode. Right. You're like, 
<laughs> like 48 years old in our 38. Right. I guess if you could be yeah. estranged from your first wife by 35 and yeah. that's now yeah. that's like that. I can see that still a little fast. Right. Right. 19. Jeez. <laughs> Take my wife, please. <laughs> Can't even drink at a bar. <laughs> Can't fucking can't get a rental car, right? <laughs> oh, oh, I tell you what, Barry, uh, the old ball the old chain, bag, the old bag, bags really got me down. Known her all eight months, man. <laughs> really breaking my balls. I'm gonna write a poem about this. <laughs> get fucking nineteen year old Bill Burr. <laughs> <laughs> bitching about yeah that's so funny he, bill burr i get the impression he's happily married yeah uh <laughs> oh boy that's pretty pretty amusing that's funny uh so and he so he's estranged from his wife and was regularly visiting william godwin whom he had, he had agreed to bail out of debt mm. percy shelley's radicalism particularly his economic views which he had imbibed from William Godwin's political justice had alienated him from his own wealthy aristocratic family. Mm. Nothing like this happens now today. No, no. We have no uh, you know, economically radical young people who come from extreme wealth. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know anything about never, that. Never, never met one. Thing. I've never met or dated one, ever. <laughs> um they wanted him to follow traditional models of the landed aristocracy, and he wanted to donate large amounts of the family money to schemes intended to help the disadvantaged. Yeah, they love that. Mm-hmm. Percy Shelley, therefore, had difficulty gaining access to money until he inherited his estate because his family did not want him wasting it on projects of political justice, social justice. Yeah. After several months of promises, Shelley announced that he either could not or would not pay off of all of Godwin's debts. Godwin was angry and felt betrayed. I, this is tough to like paint Godwin in a bit of a pathetic light, but it's a little pathetic, you know. Like, yeah, you're hanging all your financial. I was like nineteen year old kid. This nineteen year old edge lord who comes right. from like a, an aristocratic family. And you're you're talking up your daughters to him like uh, like you're at a market almost. Yeah. It's like kind of kind of mm, yeah, not yeah. great. No, I'm with you. All right, so now he and Mary are have met one another, and it was in Shelley's account Mary who took the initiative. Oh. Mary's own version suggests that his behavior prepared the ground. On the evening of the 26th of June, Jane and she accompanied him to Mary Wollstonecraft's grave at St. Pancras. Jane made a tactful retreat. It was then, yeah, don't be cock-blocking, Jane. Uh, (laughs) It was then Mary remembered that Shelley opened at first with the confidence of friendship and then with the ardor of love, his whole heart to me. Encouraged by her sympathetic manner, Shelley let his imagination loose on the past That's a diplomatic way to say he's a bullshit artist. Mary was given a vivid account of his unhappy Eaton school days and of how Timothy Shelley, troubled by his son's increasingly erratic behavior, had taken advice about having him dispatched to a private madhouse. Hmm. 
Shelley had a habit of converting his father's threats into acts. It seems unlikely that Sir Timothy would have taken such drastic measures. He told her of his early obsession with magic, with death, and with chemical experiments, material which would find its way into her creation of Victor Frankenstein. Hmm. Questioned by Mary about his marriage, Shelley hinted that Harriet had been unfaithful, and even that the new baby might not be his. There's no reason to suppose that he had any reason to uh, suspect Harriet. The first written mention of her supposed unfaithfulness appears over a year later, and the source of the allegation was not Shelley, but a gossipy friend of Godwin's. But Shelley, when excited, was capable of saying whatever came into his head. It is quite possible that he told Mary any lies necessary to win her sympathy. What matters is that Mary believed him. Godwin had brought her up to suppose that honorable men always told the truth. Truth. Ha ha ha. Ho ho. Mary, by the age of 16, had absorbed the most inspiringly progressive aspects of her parents' beliefs while discounting the revisions Godwin had made in his later writings. Like Shelley, she thrilled to the boldness of her father's role as a challenger of conventions. Like him, she preferred to forget that Godwin's 1805 preface to Fleetwood had painstakingly rejected the idea that he wanted man to supersede and trample upon the institutions of the country in which he lives. The chief institution he had in mind was marriage. To his daughter, Shelley's marriage offered marriage offered a challenge to act boldly in the name of love and political justice. She wanted to fulfill her destiny, to show herself as the true heir to her parents. Isabella had defied the church to marry the man she loved. She would be bolder still. Shelley seemed hesitant compared to him. Mary, uh, excuse me, Shelley seemed hesitant. Compared to him, Mary glowed like a young priestess, a flame and certain in her grasp of the situation. Dang. Her understanding, okay. Shelley told Hogg, was made clear by a spirit that sees into the truth of things and affections preserved pure and sacred from the corrupting contamination of vulgar superstitions. No expressions can convey the remotest conception of the manner in which she dispelled my delusions, the sublime and rapturous moment when she confessed herself mine, who had so long been hers in secret cannot be painted to mortal imaginations. Subsequent hmm. references by Shelley to the following day as having been his true birthday suggest that this was the day on which he and Mary first made love. The discreet northeastern corner of St. Pancras Churchyard would have seemed an appropriate setting, as if Mary Wollstonecraft was presiding over their union. Her grave was conveniently shaded by willows. Mm. All right. That's a pretty so, that's a pretty poetic like scene. Right, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I, I like it. Uh, Shelley is a bullshit artist, that's fine, but it's a it's a it's a nice little theatrical kind of poetic moment. 16 years old and 21. She's her mother's daughter. Never mm -hmm. met her mother, really. Right. Uh, at her mother's grave. And yeah. a married man takes yeah. her. She gives a married man her virginity. And right. and the race is on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, huh. Right. So uh, let's see. On... 26th of June, they declared their love for one another, uh, and so forth. Virginity, 
Godwin described herself uh, as attracted to Shelley's wild, intellectual, unearthly looks. To Mary's dismay, her father disapproved and tried to thwart the relationship and salvage the spotless fame of his daughter. At about the same time, Mary's father learned of Shelley's inability to pay off his debts. Mary, who later wrote of my excessive and romantic attachment to my father, was confused. She saw Percy Shelley as an embodiment of her parents' liberal and reformist ideas of the 1790s, particularly Godwin's view that marriage was a repressive monopoly. Tell me about it, which he had argued in his 1793 edition of Political Justice, but later retracted. Mm. Just so funny. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's that off. You know, this wouldn't be the first time in history that somebody had sort of like wild socio-political views, and then like when the rubber meets the road, it's like, no, actually, like <laughs> I just like to do this how we normally do things. Yeah. Yeah. So they secretly plan. Uh, to elope hmm. and uh, she's she's already pregnant by the time they do this um, Mary had already packed a small box with her first writings her letters from Shelley her father and her closest friends she also strangely packed a letter from Harriet asking Mary to persuade Shelley to come back to her how sad shortly after wow. four in the morning on the 28th of July Shelley sent word uh, that the chaise was waiting for them at the end of his street. Mary, at the last moment, became certain. She went to his rooms, then ran back to Skinner Street. A letter of farewell was written and propped on Godwin's dressing table. At just after five, unobtrusively dressed in black silk gowns, and she's going with um, Claire. The two young girls tiptoed down the stairs and out along the silent street to the corner of Hatton Garden. She was in my arms. We were safe, Shelley wrote with his usual sense of drama. The strain, possibly, uh, excuse me, the strain and possibly the first stages of pregnancy made a poor traveler of Mary. Stops had to be made at every stage. Man, what if she got pregnant on her mother's grave? Right. I mean, we're <laughs> we're dealing with some real like Promethean forces. We're dealing with some almost pagan, yeah, some heaviness. Yeah, yeah. In any case, um, stops had to be made at every stage on the road to Dover so that she could rest. Shelley, convinced that they were being pursued, hired four horses at Dartford to increase their speed. The journey, nevertheless, took almost 12 hours. They left Dover shortly before dusk in a hired fisherman's boat manned by two sailors. Just before dawn, a thunder squall struck the boat and a heavy rolling sea swept in, almost capsizing them. Shelley prepared himself to die while Mary, mute with terror, leaned against his shaking knees. The squall subsided. That's probably when she got the ick. Yeah. The squall subsided. <laughs> um, no, she she loved him. Um, the squall subsided, however, and she even managed to sleep a little as a steady wind blew them nor- toward the Calais shore. To Shelley, wide-eyed and watchful, a bright omen for their future seemed to appear as the sun rose slowly up, streaking the sky above the wide, wet sands with light. Yeah, what an the, adventure they're on, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. They're going so hard. Yeah. Um, the news of their flight was to the Godwins devastating. Sure. In one impulsive moment, Mary and Jane had undone all the careful years of securing their good reputation. So she, she's gone with Jane um, and preparing them for respectable marriages. So there's a, there's a little bit of hypocrisy here. I learned it from you, dad. Well, yeah. I mean, right. There's parents are these like wild radicals. And then like, you know, then you want your kid to be like, 
a, like a total normal, but like, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and his wife, Mrs. Godwin, she lamented having tried to make ladies of such an ungrateful pair better. She now felt to have brought them up on an inferior footing as befitting our poverty. They would never have attracted Mr. S's attention and they might now be safe at home. Yeah. Never let, Hey, listen, it's like poet rules are like vampire rules. If you open your door to the poet, <laughs> that's right. You're going to get a poet. You're right. You're, right. You know, and I'm right. not saying not every poet, not all yeah. poets. Yeah. But you open the door to the 19 year old radical poet from yeah. the money family, right. who's already estranged from his first yeah. wife at 19, right? That, thinking that, that he's going to get you a bunch of money. Yeah. That dude's stealing something. It might be a sandwich, it might be a bottle of wine. It might, it might be, be two of your daughters. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's like you said, there's nothing's free. We said right. that earlier. Nothing's right. free. Yeah. Um, this paragraph is a banger. Shelley, who had burst into their lives like a comet, had presided over the devastation of all their hopes. He had given far less financial help than he had promised. He had wrecked the reputations, the spotless fame of their daughters. Harriet, whom they did their best to reassure, passed on the wonder uh, the wounding gossip that Godwin had finally raised money for his business by selling two children to Shelley for 1500 pounds. And who, who in the public wouldn't believe that when you've got that memoir, right? Where uh, Mary Shelley's mother's pictures, like next to the word prostitution in the dictionary or whatever that was, you know, yeah, this is it's almost like a like a Kardashian level of, in, you know, kind right. of scandal. And I don't follow the Kardashians, but it's right. kind of like that vibe, you know. And then yeah. now, and of course, we already know the full story because of the Frankenstein monster way I'm doing this episode. But like, yeah, then to think that Mary eventually comes back and is giga, you know, giga famous for this right. work. Like, <laughs> it's like a celebrity family already. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Wild. So in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. It's just no, I very see it. strange. Yeah. Okay. Uh so let's see here. Yeah, on the 28th of July, 1814, the couple eloped and secretly left for France, taking Mary's stepsister Claire Claremont with them. Uh, after convincing Mary Jane Godward, who had pursued them to Calais, that they did not wish to return, the trio traveled to Paris and then by donkey, mule, carriage, and foot through a France recently ravaged by war to Switzerland. It was acting in a novel, being an incarnate romance, Mary Shelley recalled in 1826. Godwin wrote about France in 1814, the distress of the inhabitants whose houses had been burned, their cattle killed, and all their wealth destroyed has given a sting to my detestation of war. As they traveled, Mary and Percy read works by Mary Wollstonecraft and others, kept a joint journal, and continued their own writing. At Lucerne, lack of money forced the three to turn back. They traveled down the Rhine and by land to the, the Dutch port of Maas-Louis, uh, arriving at Gravesend, Kent on the 13th of September, 1814. The situation awaiting Mary Godwin in England was fraught with complications some of which she had not foreseen. Either before or during the journey, she had become pregnant. She and Percy now found themselves penniless, and to Mary's genuine surprise, her father refused to have anything to do with her. That's just, man, oh man. It's like, what's good for the goose is not always good for the gander, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah I, this is how it should be. 
but not you. Not you, right. The couple moved with Claire into lodgings at Summerstown and later Nelson Square. They maintained their intense program of reading and writing and entertained Percy Shelley's friends, uh, such as Thomas Jefferson Hogg and the writer Thomas Love Peacock, our favorite, oh, yeah. our favorite uh, yeah. old TLP. Yeah. Uh, Percy Shelley sometimes left home for short periods to dodge creditors. <laughs> as you do. Yeah. The couple's distraught letters reveal their pain at these separations. Pregnant and often ill, Mary Godwin had to cope with Percy's joy at the birth of his son by Harriet Shelley in late 1814 and his constant outings with Claire Claremont. So he's he's like hanging out with Claire. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, There you go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Shelley and Claremont were almost certainly lovers which caused much jealousy on Godwin's part. You have to understand, like, conceptually, they're all above it. They're all trying to be above it. They're trying to live that free love. They're they're trying to be ethically non-monogamous in the parlance of our times, right? But they don't have that language. And, yeah. Yeah, somebody should have taught them about polycules. There there you go. They're definitely dealing with some sort of, uh, yeah, yeah. All these problems would have been resolved. You just put it in put it in writing, and then that that makes it easy. No, nobody's feeling then everybody can everybody can agree. Yeah. yeah, so just write a contract. Um, Shelley greatly offended Godwin at one point when, during a walk in the French countryside, he suggested that they both take the plunge into the, a stream naked. This offended her principles. She was partly consoled by the visits of Hogg, whom she disliked at first, but soon considered a close friend. Percy Shelley seemed to have wanted Mary Godwin and Hogg to become lovers. Hmm. Mary did not dismiss the idea since in principle, she believed in free love. In practice, however, she loved only Percy Shelley and seemed to have ventured no further than flirting with Hogg. I got friend zoned Hogg by the free love uh, boy. Boy, oh boy. (laughs) On the 22nd of February, 1815, she gave birth to a two month premature baby girl who was not expected expected to survive. Mm-hmm. On the 6th of March, she wrote to Hogg, My dearest Hogg, my baby is dead. Will you come to see me as soon as you can? I wish to see you. It was perfectly well when I went to bed. I woke in the night to give it suck, but it appeared to be sleeping so quietly that I would not awake it. It was dead then, but we did not find out till morning. From its appearance, it evidently died of convulsions. Will you come? You are so calm a creature, and Shelley is afraid of a fever from the milk, for I am no longer a mother now. Oof. Mm-hmm. Like, mm. yeah. so young. The loss yeah. of her child in- induced acute depression in Mary Godwin, who was haunted by visions of the baby, but she conceived again and had recovered by the summer. With a revival in Percy Shelley's finances after the death of his grandfather, Sir Bichet Shelley, the couple holidayed in, in Torquay and then rented a two-story cottage in Bishopsgate on the edge of Windsor Great Park. Must be nice. Yeah. Little is known about this period in Mary Godwin's, uh, Godwin's life. My grandp- grandparents all dead. Everybody's dead. I got a hot dish. Like, <laughs> yeah, I got a little money for my, my maternal grandfather. He had 11 kids. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, I've, yeah. Got, I've got hundreds of cousins. I'm wealthy in family who I never right. see or hear from. Right. <laughs> 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 the Hibernian menace, yeah, is, yeah, as they as they say on certain corners of Twitter. Um, but yeah, I just it's just like 
and again, how many people? Yeah, I mean, how many people? This is just a thing that happens, man. There are people who yeah. have wealth, people who don't have wealth, people who have family, yeah. people who don't. It's like, oh, grandpa's dead. Oh, let's go rent the house. Right. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Grieve I mean, briefly. What are you gonna not me... spend the money? Like Yeah, what are you gonna do? <laughs> You're gonna donate to donate it to progressive and radical causes to, yeah. to back back up the bullshit that you write about? No, no, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> rented a rented a house. Um I do I do think actually at some point Shelley went and was like he was invested in Catholic uh, the one true faith, the Catholic liberation in Ireland. And, you know, he put his money where his mouth was a little bit, but yeah, as a general rule, like, okay. They, so, okay. Windfall. Grandpa's dead. Hallelujah. Hmm. Um, little is known about this period in Mary Godwin's life for her journal from May of 1815 to July of 1816 is lost. At Bishopsgate, Percy wrote his poem, Alaster or the Spirit of Solitude. And on the 24th of January, 1816, Mary gave birth to a second child, William, named after her father and soon nicknamed Wilmouse. In her novel, The Last Man, she later imagined Windsor as a garden of Eden. Okay, so we're coming up to the Frankenstein period, which we've already sort of covered, but we're going to go into depth. Um, we have to meet Byron uh, because he's going to be a character. Um, I knew a guy like in and around college. Who had long hair, and he called himself Byron. Like that oh, was really? the name he gave himself. Yeah, he was in. Whoa. He was really into it. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. all right, all right yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, I think he might have got somebody pregnant in our the house that we rented down by the. I think he was oh, he was boy. he was living he was living the story in his right? own. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't really know. This is a yeah. long time ago. Um, so this is describing Claire. Vivacious, good-looking, and with, as she remembered, a bright color. Claire was now almost 18. Mary had found love with a poet who, much though Mary and Claire admired him, was far from being a household name. Shelley, in the spring of 1816, was better known for the scandals he had caused than for the privately printed Queen Mab and the as-yet-unpublished Alaster. Byron, famous enough already to think of himself as literature's Napoleon, was in London and alone. After a stormy estrangement from Annabella Milbank, his wife of a year, (laughs) he was rumored to be living in unconventional intimacy with his married half-sister, Augusta Lee. Each time Claire walked along Piccadilly, she saw people waiting outside the curtained window of 13 Piccadilly Terrace for a glimpse of Byron. Scandal only added to the fascination. Byron also happened to have an influential position on the Committee of London's Principal Theatre, Drury Lane. Claire, who had already tried her hand at writing a play, decided to approach him. Hey, a playwright, one of us, one of us. If he could help her to become an actress or a playwright, well and good. If he could be persuaded to take a more personal interest in her, so much the better. (laughs) Yeah. Later on in life, Claire liked to remember that she had been a timid girl. There was nothing shy about her assault on Byron. Reminiscing in old age to her attentive American visitor, uh, Edward Augustus Silsby, she claimed that her landlady's sister had given them a very proper and formal introduction. The letters tell a different story. Using assumed names and giving herself a hint of the noblewoman by stamping the letters with a pretty seal, both Mary and she had been given by by Shelley, Claire laid siege until she gained her wish, permission to visit Byron alone at his house sometime late in March. And boy. 
Okay. And you're going to visit the famous poet alone at his villa. Yeah. Um, you, you get know. the idea. So right. she, she set her sights. And who knows if there was maybe a little bit of a jealousy thing, like you've got a poet, I'm going to get the bigger poet. Right. I'm right. Gonna, you're, you're, you're dating uh, Ringo. I'm going to date George. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see here. So in May of 1816, uh, Mary, Percy, and their son traveled to Geneva with Claire, Claremont. They planned to spend the summer with the poet Lord Byron, whose recent affair with Claire had left her pregnant. In history of a six-weeks tour through a part of France, Switzerland, Germany, and Holland, she describes the particularly desolate landscape in crossing from France to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. The party arrived in Geneva the 14th of May, 1816, where Mary called herself Mrs. Shelley. They're not married. Byron joined them on the 25th of May with his young physician, John William Polidori, and rented the Via Diodati close to Lake Geneva at the village of Coligny. And it looks like this, it's still there. It's a a mansion in the village of Coligny Coligny near Lake Geneva. Hmm. Wonderful. Wonderful. I wonder if if it's privately owned. You can look it up. Um, okay. Let's oh, Villa Diodati. That's uh, Diodati is the name of uh, John Milton's only good friend. Hmm. I wonder if it's related at all. Uh, Percy rented a smaller building called Maison Chapuy on the waterfront nearby. They spent their time riding, boating on the lake, and talking late into the night. And this is where we're going to get into Frankenstein. And I have, is it this book that I want to read from or the other one? I think it's the other one. We got we to gotta get into it because that's the, that's the moneymaker. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is it really page 153 that I want to read from? You know how, how difficult it can be to keep these episodes organized when you, when you construct them, Brad? You, oh, you yeah. know. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Here we go. There's a method to the madness that it's like, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. if you type the wrong, if in those notes, you put the wrong page number, you're, it's it's a problem. It It's a serious <laughs> problem. Uh, I always keep a bunch of these things, little, little sheets sure. of paper inside. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Few periods in Mary's life have been so eagerly discussed as the summer during which Frankenstein was conceived. Unfortunately for us, her daily record of life at Geneva occupied the last pages of the Lost Journal of 1815 to 1816. She must have drawn on these entries for the vivid account which she wrote in 1828 as her contribution to Thomas More's The Life of Lord Byron with his letters and journals. Tactfully presented by Moore as having been Shelley's wife in 1816, Mary's identity as his source of information was concealed. She was quoted extensively, but only as a person who had been among Byron's circle. Writing out her recollections for Moore, Mary shifted and compressed events for dramatic effect in the confident belief that nobody would contradict her version. Claire, for reasons which will become apparent, was by 1828 only concerned with being excised from Byron's history. Shelley and Byron were dead. John Polidori, oh, surprise, the, the poets died young. The romantic poets died young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be a cliche, but right. yeah, you know, I, sorry, I'm a, an English romantic poet 
from the 1800s. I have to die young. Yeah, if you, if you make it out, out of your 20s, yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah, for real. 27 Club. Yeah. Uh, John Polidori, the young doctor who accompanied Byron to Geneva, had killed himself with a massive dose of prussic acid at the age Whoa. of 21. Whoa. Yeah. Mary may never have known that canny John Murray had invited John Polidori to keep a diary of his travels with Byron. Edited and then transcribed by the doctor's sister, she destroyed the original. The diary was eventually published in 1911 by Polidori's nephew, William Michael Rossetti. This, together with a few details which Polidori published with his gothic tale, The Vampire, provides a skeleton outline against which to set Mary's recollections. But Polidori also has to be treated with caution. He noted Shelley to be a 26-year-old consumptive when he was actually 23 and had been cleared of the disease. He believed Mary and Claire to be full sisters. Polidari was, however, sufficiently in Byron's confidence to know on the day after they all first met that Claire was his mistress and that Mary was not entitled to be called Mrs. Shelley. That sets the place a little bit, but also gives you an idea of what I meant when I talked about this biography, not reading like a novel, but being rigorous. Like It's like, she has this account, he has this account. It was published 50 years after she died, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, right. whoa, okay, we're right. getting into yeah. the weeds. It's good. Yeah, you got all these facts. All Every one of them has got a little asterisk, asterisk next to it. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Um, here we go. It proved a wet and ungenial summer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the if if Mary Shelley's life was a, a 1980s movie, be like her on the cover. Mary Shelley's wet in a genial summer. <laughs> <laughs> Weekend at Mary's. Weekend at Mary Shelley's. Sounds kind of hot. Maybe I don't know what. Ungenial yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, but it's just, <laughs> just it's like a like like a Corvette. She's next to a Corvette, and makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So she remembered in 1831, the incessant rain often confined us for days at the house, sitting around a log fire at Byron's villa, the company, and they call it a mansion on Wikipedia, by the way, mm. the company amused themselves with German ghost stories, which prompted Byron to propose that they each write a ghost story. Unable to think of a story, young Mary Godwin became anxious. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. During one mid-June evening, the discussions turned to the nature of the principle of life. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated, Mary noted. Galvanism had given token of such things. It was after midnight before they retired and unable to sleep. She became possessed by her imagination as she beheld the grim terrors of her waking dream, her ghost story. Nice. Nice. And here's what she said. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasms of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half vital motion. Frightful must it be for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. Mm. She began writing what she assumed would be a short story. I wonder how many big novels started as short stories. Probably not a few. No, that's a lot of them. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. The first play that I wrote that did anything for me started as like a short play. And then all, yeah. all it took was some instructor I had said, this is turn this into a funk play. Like, oh, I'll go home yeah. and do that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With Percy Shelley's encouragement, she expanded this tale for her first novel, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. All right. So got a little more here from the, the book, and then we're going to get into the authorship of Frankenstein and look at Frankenstein a bit more. How you feeling, Brad? You hanging in there? These yeah, episodes yeah. can go long, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is good. This is, this, I really like this description of, there's two things about the sort of description of this idea that came to her that are interesting. One is I just like to hear about the, once you, writing is a such a, strange process is you can sit there and kind of bang your head against the wall for hours or days or weeks and then suddenly it occurs to you what to do and that can be the full story or it can just be like in a novel it could be just part of it right figure out a chapter this happened to me like the other day i figured out a chapter that's what's got to happen and then all of a sudden it's like it possesses you it's like it's all you think about for a little while it's it's it completely preoccupies you and then that description when she describes her waking dreams really interesting because the book gets criticized. Frankenstein gets criticized for being um, uh, like an offense to God, right? You've got this this doctor who's playing God and how like scandalous and offensive that is. And in that description, she's basically pointing at like the power of the story is the inherent terror of that like betrayal of God. Right. We see we see this a lot of times where like a, a work gets criticized for having some sort of like um, taboo um, theme and like a smart read of it is usually that, oh, like the author is aware that it's taboo and why. And we're trying to understand why it's taboo and why it makes us feel that way instead of, you know, what I, you, know you get my right. meaning like, right. Yeah, it's like, yeah, man, why don't you read the book? <laughs> you would yeah. actually understand why that bothers you. Maybe. Well, and then also like yeah. fandoms will get accused of not being savvy to it. Like the the way right. that they'll attack uh, people, you know, like uh, they'll do a meme where it's like Tyler Durden and um, Patrick Bateman. And yeah, it's like, you know, characters that you're not supposed to emulate that guys think are cool. And it's like, that's right. not that's not what most like maybe yeah, in the bell curve. There are probably some idiots who think like. Tyler Durden is is the shit, but right. no, we like these guys. Yes, a little ironically, like we right. don't. It's there's a little wink of irony, or we know we're not. They're antiheroes. We understand right. this, right? Right. But right. It's, yeah, it's exactly. fun to post Bateman gifs. Sure, it's yeah. fun. Yeah, like yeah. I don't. It, it doesn't well, mean and, I want. And, and in those cases, it, in fight clubs, it's, it's direct. Sometimes it's a it's a manifestation of like a part of the psyche, right? So you bring it out and you exaggerate it and we all kind of relate to it because like, you know, well, we don't have to do a breakdown of Fight Club and American sure, Psycho, sure. but like, that's, that's a know. different podcast. Yeah, right, yeah, totally. right. you're totally right. And yeah, and certainly the authors are aware, right? Mm -hmm. Everything isn't prescriptive, <laughs> right? Like, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a, it, it can be a warning. Like Frankenstein yes. is a warning. It is yeah, a, it's, it is it's a literally, cry. it's literally a story about why you shouldn't try to play God, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, on one level, on one, on, on one yeah, level, there's right. a lot of, yeah, yeah. Sure. So we're going to get a little bit about what's going on here. So they're in Geneva. Mary was still in ignorance of Claire's pregnancy. Shelley had known about it for at least a month after his lake voyage with Byron. He had thoughtfully added a clause to his will, bequeathing a princely 6,000 pounds to Claire 
and the same sum again to an unnamed person of her choice. He may, as the editors of Mary's Journal suggest, have discussed Claire's situation with Byron during the boat trip and concluded that since Byron was unwilling to take any financial responsibility, he ought to do something himself. Claire's pregnancy was the likely subject of the talks, which Mary recorded taking place between Shelley and her stepsister the day after their return from the mountains. On the 2nd of August, Shelley and Claire went up to Diodati. Mary would have liked to go with them, but Lord Byron did not seem to wish it. She wrote with evident perplexity. Shelley returned with a letter which had arrived from the lawyers. The news was not good. His father was prepared to keep a promise to increase the, his annual allowance by 500 pounds and to lend him 2,000 pounds, but only if he returned to England. Grand schemes for a year of Eastern travel would have to be dropped. Fanny, a week later, sent a letter so heartbreaking in its anxiety about Godwin's finances and so wistful in its pleas for stories of the great Lord Byron that Mary and Shelley decided to find some token of their esteem. Fanny, on the day she died, was still wearing the pretty little gold watch which they bought for her in Geneva. Poor Fanny. Oh. On the 21st of August, and saying the day she died, the day she killed herself. Right. Uh, yeah. On the 21st of August, Mary noted that she and Shelley had a long discussion about her story. A week later, Fanny fulfilled her promise of sending them, among other books, their own copy of Coleridge's three recently published dream poems. Remembering the violent effect it had worked on him, Shelley read Christabel aloud to Mary before they went to bed. This, not the earlier occasion specified in the preface, may have been the moment when Mary's imagination at last took flight, quickened by Shelley's reading and by her recent journey to a landscape of terrifying isolation and grandeur. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Yeah, Just a little bit about, um, uh, you know, Shelley, Percy Shelley kind of helped midwife the the story somewhat. Like she, she didn't just have it in her head. There was some, there's conversation. It's not, right. not like they co-authored it at all. That's not what I'm saying at all, but there were, yeah. she was batting the idea around. Well, she's in a, for, you know, she's, she's, it's interesting because she had this really good education and then she sort of gets plunged into this kind of like free love, you know, she's hanging out with Lord Byron, the Pope, the, you know, the, the acknowledged great poet of his day and Shelley, who would later on become understood to be one of the great poets of his generation and talking late into the night. Like it's, you know, we kind of mocked this for some of the, like the behavior and the hypocrisy, but like that is a quite a scene to be, find yourself par part of a very heady scene as being Mary Shelley being 18 years old. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of, I mean, there's darkness there too, but it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's yeah. what I, I wasn't kidding about it being like rock and roll. Yeah. Rock yeah. And roll. I mean, it's it to you could read it as like the, the Stones rent, uh, renting a villa in France to record an album, you know. But instead, mm -hmm. it's these rich poet brats, you know, and these middle class radical daughters getting getting pregnant and right. like having kids and telling each other ghost stories. And one of the all time great novels comes out of it. Right. Not that she yeah. set out; it's not like she's like, oh, we're going to record an album in the studio. But it's just this right. fertile ground for creativity yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah very interesting all right uh so let's see here she later described that summer in switzerland is the moment when i first stepped out from childhood into life the story of the writing of frankenstein has been fictionalized several times and has formed the basis of a number of films uh this is interesting 
In September 2011, the astronomer Donald Olson, after a visit to the Lake Geneva Villa the previous year and inspecting data about the motion of the moon and stars, <laughs> concluded that her waking dream took place between 2 and 3 a.m. on the 16th of June, 1816, several days after the initial idea by Lord Byron that they each write a ghost story. Huh. So that's how, I mean, if there's an astronomer like visiting where you came up with your idea <laughs> hundreds of years later to figure out precisely yeah. when it happened to yeah. the hour based on the orientation of the stars, you might have a banger on your hands. You <laughs> might have a hit. Right. <laughs> you you stamped your mark on history. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now there's a huh. bit about the authorship. Well, her husband, Percy, encouraged her writing. The extent of Percy's contribution to the novel is unknown and has been argued over by readers and critics. Mary Shelley wrote, I certainly did not owe the suggestion of one incident, nor scarcely of one train of feeling to my husband. And yet, but for his incitement, it would never have taken the form in which it was presented to the world. She wrote that the preface to the first edition was Percy's work, as far as I can recollect. There are differences in the 1818, 1823, and 1831 editions, which have been attributed to Percy's editing. Okay. Uh, writing on the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, literary scholar and poet Fiona Sampson asked, why hasn't Mary Shelley gotten the respect she deserves? She noted that in recent years, Percy's corrections visible in the Frankenstein notebooks held at the Bodleian Library in Oxford have been seized on as evidence that he must have at least co-authored the novel. In fact, when I examined the notebooks myself, I realized that Percy did rather less than any line editor working in publishing today. All right. Okay. So there's some bit of contest about the final form of the novel and how much Percy was, was involved. Yeah, but uh, sure. there you are. Okay. Okay. So now they're going to return to England. They're going to return to, to Bath. Um, which uh, lovely town? You ever been to? You ever been no, over no. over there? Well, you I gotta not, go. To, you gotta no. go to Bath. Bath no. is where the, uh, the the old Roman baths are. Okay. Ancient, yeah. And it's yeah. a famous museum. It is a beautiful old town. It's like I think it's like ninety minutes by train from London, maybe two hours. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting place. Um, is it is it Jane Austen who uh, has a, had a house in in Bath? It sounds I mean, right, but man. yeah. What is Jane sure. Austen's connection with Bath? Between the years 1801 and 1806, Jane Austen called the city of Bath her home. Ah, yeah. Okay. The writer grew so fond of the ancient city that it found its way into two of her published novels. Okay. Yeah. There you go. And then the the once stayed at a hotel in Bath with like a huge heated pool underneath it. And sure. it's like huge for England. It's just like, yeah. oof, it's a, a scene, man. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds it's fun. Cool. Yeah. Good food. Very interesting little little town. Um. <clears throat> okay. On their return to England uh, in September of 1816, Mary and Percy moved with Claire Claremont, who took lodgings nearby to Bath, where they uh, hoped to keep Claire's pregnancy secret. All right. Yeah, a little more from the... Oh, boy. Like refugees. They're like rock and roll refugees, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a fascinating little click. Were there potentials for like... <clears throat> I mean, I don't understand... I understand. I have some sense of like the moral sense of the of the time, but are there like legal repercussions for any of this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. as I mentioned earlier, uh, Shelley's unable to get his children. Right, right. right? There's yeah, sc there's scandalous stuff can happen around this that can. I don't know exactly know how much they were they were risking. 
I mean, yeah. I don't know if they're gonna they're gonna throw you in in prison for adultery. Uh, apparently not. Yeah, like it wasn't quite that repressive, but yeah, the consequences are are real. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Listen to this. Claire's condition was already becoming apparent when the trio left Geneva at the beginning of September. Any idea of returning to Bishopsgate was ruled out by the distressing news that the bailiffs had swooped after they had left the house and sequestered the possessions they had casually left there, expecting Peacock to protest their interests. A decision was taken that, well, Shelley went to London to obtain the money due to him from his father and to give Byron's manuscripts to his publisher, the girls would find discreet lodgings in Bath. The Godwins must be kept in the dark. They were all agreed on that. Better and more prudent to tell them Claire was in poor health and that Bath had been recommended as a suitable place for, for recovery. Duplicity could, in such circumstances, be argued into a form of kindness. Eh, mm. Dad doesn't need to know. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Two poets? One poet. One <laughs> unknown. But now we got a known poet. Right. Yeah, boy. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Claire had already been dumped once when she was unceremoniously dispatched to Linmouth's uh, Linmouth the previous year. Uh, even Mary reluctantly had to agree that she could not be abandoned now when they had already committed themselves to caring for her and Byron's unborn child. It was hard to bear. For three months, Mary had known a state of perfect happiness, living in a landscape which enchanted her, among company which had been more stimulating and exciting than any she could remember. Now she must put all this behind her and live in dull seclusion in a fashionable town where she knew nobody and nobody knew her. That, of course, was the precise reason for going there. But the cause, the lovesick, ungrateful, and self-willed cause, was her stepsister. There were times when Mary wished Claire to the other end of the earth. <laughs> okay. So they, they end up moving to Bath, which is sort of how they can hide out. I mean, it's far enough away from, from London. It's like out West. It's, it's almost in Wales, sort of off toward Wales. Um, it's like the West coast ish. All right. So here we go. Ah, uh, let's see. At Colony, Colony, Mary Godwin had received two letters from her half-sister, Fanny Imlay, who alluded to her unhappy life. I'm going to look up where Colony is. Yeah, it's in Switzerland. Yeah, okay, of course. All right. See, Switzerland's tricky because you got Italian names, you got German names, you got yeah. French names, you got <laughs> like, there'll be like Latin names. It's all over. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. Sure. Um <clears throat> An actual democracy, by the way, they do they do referenda. They yeah. will actually vote on issues. <laughs> so it's that's very wow. very difficult to emigrate. Has, to, has anybody to else Switzerland? Uh, has anybody else tried that? A lot of people have claimed they tried. They've tried. <laughs> right. I don't remember on on voting on uh, everybody having a casino in their phone, but now everybody. <laughs> I don't remember voting on whether Disney should be allowed to be a sports bookie. Right. But, <laughs> it's democracy, Brad. Right, democracy right. just ha democracy's a thing that happens while you're podcasting. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're voting on it right now and we just don't know. I mean, we did elect the senators who were bribed to allow that to happen in the span of 10 years. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Nobody cares. No. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Except the Swiss. The Swiss care. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good Getting back on track. Different pod, different <laughs> podcast. Um, 
Oh my God. I need to, you know what I need to do is I need to get AI to generate an image of Mickey Mouse as a bookie getting increasingly angry at you for not paying off your debt. <laughs> Mickey's going to break your fucking knees. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice watch you have there. Yeah. You know, Mickey, just Mickey Mouse is like this like satanic 1940s mob bookie. Right, 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 yeah. right. Getting more, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Getting yeah, angrier yeah. and angrier because <laughs> you because <laughs> you got you got to you got to keep vote or you got to keep uh, you know putting money down on the Gophers. <laughs> you should know better by now, Couchman. <laughs> All right, we have fun. So, in any case, uh, Mary had received in Switzerland two letters from her half sister Fanny Imlay, who alluded to her unhappy life. On the 9th of October, Fanny wrote an alarming letter from Bristol that sent Percy Shelley racing off to search for her without success. On the morning of October 10th, Fanny Emily was found dead in a room at a Swansea Inn, along with a suicide note and a laudanum bottle. Swansea would be, uh, that would be Wales. Okay. Mm. On the 10th of December, Percy Shelley's wife, Harriet, was discovered drowned in the Serpentine, a lake in Hyde Park of London. So these suicides are bam, bam. Yeah. Her own her own half-sister, the, the famous bastard, poor yeah. thing, uh, yeah. kills herself. And then, yeah, here we are. Let me see. I want to make sure I get it right. Yeah. Shelley was back at Bath on the 14th of December after a meeting with Lee Hunt. The following day, a letter came from his friend Thomas Hookham, uh, whom he had asked to undertake a search for Harriet. The contents were shocking. A body found in the Serpentine had been identified as that of Harriet Smith. This, it appeared, was the name under which Harriet Shelley had been living since early September at lodgings near her family's home in Chapel Street. A newspaper report published in The Times on the 12th of December declared that Miss Smith had been missing for six weeks and that she had been far advanced in pregnancy. Oh, her husband was alleged to have been abroad. It was assumed that she had been seduced in his absence. It is just possible that the unborn child was Shelley's. No record exists for the period when he was in London prior to the journey to Geneva. Did he seeking uh, to comfort Harriet at a time when he was leaving the country for an undetermined period make love to her? It is not much less likely than the generally accepted view that Harriet had an affair with an officer and when he was called abroad, returned to live with her family until her condition became noticeable. Claire, in an old age, insisted that this had been the case, but her memory was unreliable and her source information was probably Shelley himself. Hmm. It it goes on. Hmm. But in any case, tragic. Whoever the yeah. father was. Yeah, um, for sure. Oh, my gosh. Tragic. Tragic. And oh, and I you you have to wonder what Mary felt. Sure. Like, yeah. damn, dude. I mean, it's like, yeah, when the hangover of the 60s ended, we got the 70s. Right. Right. Like, there's, you know, a lot of lot of babies were conceived in clouds of bong smoke. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Right. And um, uh, a lot of real estate licenses were acquired in the 80s. <laughs> like, yeah, right. The party, the party ends at some point. Right. right? Right. There's that great speech in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where it's like where you can see the wave roll back. 
Yeah. Like, you can only yeah. take this thing so far. Yeah. And now we're seeing in the life of Mary Shelley, we're seeing that wave and Peer and Percy. So we're seeing that wave roll back a little bit, at least. Yeah. Your sister kills herself and you're the father of your child. Uh, his wife kills herself and her unborn child. Yeah. Who, which might be your lover's child which might also be his yeah yeah yeah, yeah. this is art of darkness the podcast about the dark side of kevin uh, the dark side of creativity dark I'm kevin. Kevin, the dark side of kevin i told you at the beginning of this episode i've been i'm a little tired i'm a little overworked yeah, right now it. but i love doing the show this is yeah. so much fun brad i hope you're having a good time yeah, i hope absolutely. the audience is having a good time you know reminder find us at artofdarkpod.com we are there we are on telegram t.me slash art of dark pod patreon.com slash art of dark pod brad man's the twitter the x Twitter.com slash Art of Dark Pod. And we did have that Spotify wrapped stuff happen. That was pretty fun. We it was fun to see. It's nice yeah. to nice to know everybody's out there. We appreciate you all. Yeah. And uh season boy, three, we, we grew a lot. Yep. We did. This is yeah. yeah, we do each season goes by the calendar year because that's all we can remember. We're not right. gonna <laughs> do any funny business it's january 1st to the end yeah. of the year so we season started four in, is, mm-hmm. we started in 2021 so that it was season one 21 that kept it easy for us oh it, i just realized that that's so nice <laughs> I, it's in, 20, be, in 2030 it's gonna be it's all confusing it's pandemonium it's all yeah. right yeah yeah <laughs> Well, we'll have other problems by 2030. Yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) We'll have other other things to worry about. We'll be we'll be working for the mouse. We'll be working collecting collecting debts. Yeah, we'll have to pay we gotta pay the legal bills for that bit you just did about the about the AI. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Mouse. All right. Uh why don't you Tell people I'm going to use the bathroom one more time, sure. Brad. Uh, tell the tell the, the good listeners, tell our our beloved, our our cherished listeners mm-hmm. uh, all over the world. Tell them uh, what we have coming up in in 2024. Give them tease them. Give the taste sure. of treats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we got a couple more episodes uh, left in uh, season season three, 2023. But after that, we're 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 going to uh, start season four with. The full AOD treatment of William S. Burroughs. People who've been following along will know that uh, the first, very first episode we did was my attempt to cover um, William S. Burroughs, but we didn't really know what we were doing. So we tried to do it in an hour. And as you know, you can't really do an episode uh, like this in this kind of depth in an hour. So we're going to do that. Um, we're also going to talk about. Uh, uh, Kevin's going to run and do an F. Scott Fitzgerald part two. We did our live. Uh, first live episode in St. Paul uh, earlier this year, and we did. You know, we we don't do four hours live. Nobody wants to sit in the, sitting in a chair for four hours. Um, so we're going to follow up and f- complete the uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald story. We're also going to be talking about Robert E. Howard, the man behind Conan the Barbarian and many other creations, as we, we will soon learn. Uh, other people we're going to be talking about: uh, Wagner, uh, the Marquis de Sade. Marshall McLuhan, we're ta- we're doing two back-to-back Shakespeare episodes, one on William Shakespeare and the other Edward de Vere. We're going to solve this conundrum. We're going to solve this uh, conflict about who the real William Shakespeare was. Um, we're going to talk about David Bowie, Felicuti, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, Wittgenstein, 
And uh, I believe we're going to be talking about Cormac McCarthy in the fall of next year. Not to mention, of course, um, Patreon exclusive After Dark episodes for each and every episode we do. Countless dark room episodes, some of which are already on the calendar, but I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, spill the tea on that quite yet, um, as well as the continuation of the uh, bookends reading club. So you've got a lot to look forward to on our darkness in season four. Gonna get even darker in season four. Yeah, it's gonna get weirder. Yeah, I, I don't like reading about all these dead babies. No, right? this is a lot. A... This one is maybe the highest. Like, this might be the most lot of children dead, who did not of, make did, it to the end of the yeah. story. Children and mothers, and it's yeah. it's gnarly, yeah. gnarly. And yet they're modern. They're moderns. These are modern yeah. people. Well, somehow. especially I mean, especially these people, right? That we're mm-hmm. talking about. They're they're yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're right on the edge of modernity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's wild. All right. Let's uh, let's press on. See if we can get. Oh, God. I'm looking at my outline. Oh, <laughs> page nine of 24. Oh, boy. Oh, All right. OK, well, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to see I can sort of, sort of speed this thing up a little bit. See if I can, <laughs> can bring us in for a for a smooth landing. Okay. Um, Both suicides were hushed up. Harriet's family obstructed Percy Shelley's efforts, fully supported by Mary Godwin, to assume custody of his two children by Harriet. So Harriet's family's pissed. Rightly. Yeah. His lawyers advised him to improve his case by marrying. So he and Mary, who was pregnant again, (laughs) geez, take a break, man. Just get (laughs) like, geez, dude, write a poem. Go write a poem. Right, right. Yeah. They, They got married on the 30th of December at St. Mildred's Church, Bread Street, London. Mm. Mr. and Mrs. Godwin were present in the marriage, ended the family rift. Okay. Oh, nice. Okay. Claire Claremont gave birth to a baby girl on the 13th of January, at first called Alba, later Allegra. In March of that year, the Chancery Court ruled Percy Shelley morally unfit to assume custody of his children and later placed them with a clergyman's family. Also in March, the Shelleys moved with Claire and Alba to Albion House at Marlow, Buckinghamshire, a large, damp building on the River Thames. <laughs> you just assume it's a damp <laughs> building. If it's on the Thames, it's damp. <laughs> Yo, the place that we lived in when I was over there yeah. was like, oh, my God, it was, dude, it's such a dump. It's like, and it was not cheap either. Like, I remember it, the first rain came, and you may have heard it rains in London. It rains yeah. a lot in London. Yeah. Like, a real rain came. Mm-hmm. Water just through the ceiling, really, just right down. Had to set buckets down. Oh god! And it was November. It was November right. one year, and um, just the heat went out. Just the yeah. heat goes out, and yeah. you'll call. You'll call over there, and somebody will be like, "We'll get the part. It'll be, it'll be a week, right. two weeks right. later. You have right. No heat, no hot water. We're like taking oh showers. God. This is 2006, right? <laughs> You're like taking showers over, yeah. you know, at the like the equivalent of like the YMCA, just right. to one like get warm. And that yeah. was fun. Rush. That was fun yeah. times. Yeah, fun yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. In any case, um, damp on the Thames. There, uh, Mary Shelley gave birth to the, her third child, Clara. Uh, at Marlowe, they entertained their new friends, Marianne and Lee Hunt, who worked and worked hard at their writing, and they often discussed politics. Lee Hunt, uh, best known was well, James Henry Lee Hunt, best known as Lee Hunt, was an English critic, essayist, and poet. And he co-founded 
the Examiner, a leading intellectual journal, journal expounding oh. radical principles. Ah, yeah, awesome. Okay. okay. Uh, early in the summer of 1817, Mary Shelley finished Frankenstein, which was published anonymously in January of 1818. Reviewers and readers assumed that Percy Shelley was the author, since the book was published with his preface and dedicated to his political hero, William Godwin. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to read a little bit. Then I'm going to read a summary of, of Frankenstein. I'm going to read right. some from Frankenstein. Then I'm going to get us into the the Shelley's untimely demise mm-hmm. and uh, kind of blast through the back half of her life before we, we close down the main episode, okay. just to give you an idea. We're not okay. going to go for another three hours. Don't worry. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So here we go. Frankenstein is an 1818 novel. Frankenstein tells the story of Victor Frankenstein, a young scientist who creates a sapient creature in an unorthodox scientific experiment. Shelley started writing the story when she was 18, and the first edition was published anonymously on the 1st of January, 1818, when she was only 20. Her name first appeared in the second edition, which was published in Paris in 1821. All right, so we sort of know this background. All right. Uh, Let's see. After thinking for days about her story, Shelley was inspired to write Frankenstein after imagining a scientist who created life and was horrified by what he had made. And really, one wonders, and I'm sure critics and uh, academics have pointed this out, this how it could potentially be seen as um, it's like she's had had children. She sort of created life and then they die. Right. And that's there's deep horror, deep. Right. Right. You know. Yeah, and it's yeah. So it's this p- thing that has the potential to be beautiful, miraculous, and then like it takes a turn, and then suddenly it's like as much pain and horror as you can experience. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's it's possible she used some of that energy. I'm sure. Yeah, and and then her imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is from Wikipedia. Though Frankenstein is infused with elements of the Gothic novel and the Romantic movement, Brian, all this has argued for regarding it as the first true science fiction story. In contrast Mm. to previous stories with fantastical elements resembling those of later science fiction, Aldous states the central character makes a deliberate decision and turns to modern experiments in the laboratory to achieve fantastic results. The novel has had a considerable influence on literature and on popular culture. It has spawned a complete genre of horror stories, films, and plays. And since the publication of the novel, the name Frankenstein has often been used to refer to the monster rather than his creator or father. So don't don't say he's a Frankenstein. No, he's a Frankenstein monster. Unless you're talking about scientists who are monsters, then you could say he's a Frankenstein. Frankenstein. That's right. And you'd be right. And there are there have been monstrous scientists and there are monstrous scientists. Science Mm -hmm. is not a uh, an ideology. It's a practice. It's a thing Mm -hmm. that you do. It's not a thing that you think or believe in. We'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. I'll let you, you can make up your own mind about who the real monster is. Um, but it is, it's sort of like she created like the mad scientist idea. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's, you know, I whether think. or not it's, whatever, whether or not it's the first, you, you'll always, if you spend as much time trolling around in Wikipedia and like uh, literary history related, you'll find about 15 different claims for the first science fiction novel. So which which is really the first, but I, I do think she did come up 
sort of create this trope of the mad scientist. There probably were stories about like crazed alchemists and crazed like wizards doing things before, but I'm not sure that there's a prior mad scientist um, story proper. So, yeah. Yeah. Impressive. I mean, and the the amount of reach that this has, I mean, mm-hmm. you, it's one of these things you'll prepare an episode and sometimes you're like, oh, I see this everywhere. This has been right. everywhere in my right. cultural consumption from yeah, and horror it gets, movies. Something to, like it, it gets so disseminated that like you just stop recognizing it, you know, and then you, doing an episode like this, it's like, oh, yeah, that's everywhere. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. All right. So we are going to kind of blast through the structure of the book because I think it's okay. important. So uh, Frankenstein is a frame story written in epistolary form set in the 18th century. It documents a fictional correspondence between Captain Robert Walton and his sister, Margaret Walton Seville. Robert Walton is a failed writer who sets out to explore the North Pole in hopes of expanding scientific knowledge. During the voyage, the crew spots a dog sled driven by a gigantic figure. A few hours later, the crew rescues a nearly frozen and emaciated man named Victor Frankenstein. Frankenstein has been in pursuit of the gigantic man observed by Walton's crew. Frankenstein starts to recover from his exertion. He sees in Walton the same obsession that has destroyed him and recounts the story of his life's miseries to Walton as a warning. It's even explicitly a warning in the novel. The recounted story serves as the frame. Um, Victor begins by talking about his childhood. He's born in Naples, Italy, into a wealthy Genevan family. He has younger brothers. They're sons of Alphonse Frankenstein and the former Caroline Beaufort. From a young age, Victor has a strong desire to understand the world. He's obsessed with studying theories of alchemists. Though when he is older, he realizes that such theories are considerably outdated. When Victor is five years old, his parents adopt Elizabeth Lavenza, the orphan daughter of an expropriated Italian nobleman whom Victor later marries. Victor's parents later take in another child, Justine Moritz, who becomes William's nanny. Weeks before he leaves for university in Ingolstadt in Germany, his mother dies. So we have a dead mother of scarlet fever. Victor buries himself in in his experiments to deal with his grief. At the university, he excels at chemistry and other sciences, soon developing a secret technique to impart life to non-living matter. He undertakes the creation of a humanoid, but due to the difficulty in replacing the minute parts of the human body, Victor makes the creature tall, about eight feet in height, and proportionally large. Despite Victor's selecting its features to be beautiful, upon animation, the creature is instead hideous, with dull and watery yellow eyes and yellow skin that barely conceals the muscles and blood vessels underneath, as we read. Repulsed by his work, he flees. While wandering the streets the next day, he meets his childhood friend, Henry, uh, Henry Clerval, and takes Clerval back to his apartment, fearful of Clerval's reaction if he sees the monster. However, when Victor returns to his laboratory, the creature is gone and all this stuff is like somewhat comic in a way i mean it's like you didn't have a plan you're just right. gonna bring this thing to, it's very much like kind of our relationship to god and how much anxiety people have about this wait you just threw us here and where are point. you yeah where did you right. go right are you're That's our creator like we we need it's very much that philosophical yeah. kind of I, that thread of like are we alone does our creator hate us why would you mm. make why would you make us and give us this much pain i mean that's right. a that's a real it's real heavy the- theology sure. hours here, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, on on art of darkness. I mean, these yeah. are real questions that everyone at some point in life 
more or less wrestles with, whether whether it's framed in that exact language or not. Yeah. You know, people struggle with this. Why am I here? Why did you make me? You owe me an answer. Right. That's a very big theme from the monster. You owe me a woman uh, version right. of me. Right. And you owe me answers. Right. Why right. did you abandon me? Right. You know, why, you know, why, you know, you made me and you're repulsed by me. Right. Yeah. You just, it made me to be cruel to me. Like what's well, the, and, what was, and yeah. how about, how about thinking about her relationship with her father at this time too? Right. You made me this dad. And right. now you're, you're disowning me and you're right. Right. You won't want to come back to England. You don't want to talk to me. Right. I, I thought I hide out. out. I have to yeah. evade you. I have to hide from you, which is what he ends up doing with the monster and everything. He has yeah. to hide from. So there's this, there's a lot going on. This monster, this, this creature contains multitudes. Right. And, right. And right. because it does, it's, well, it probably explains in part its widespread appeal. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that. That's yeah. No, that's great. This is I've never thought about Frankenstein on this level. And I'm glad we're doing this because that's it's becoming some so much more of a, a richer text as we go here. Mm. Yeah. So he returns to his lab. The creature is gone. Victor falls ill from the experience and his nurse back to health by Clairville. After a four month recovery, he receives a letter from his father notifying him of the murder of his brother, William. Uh, upon arriving in Geneva, Victor sees the creature near the crime scene and becomes convinced that his creation is responsible for the murder. Justine Moritz, William's nanny, is convinced, convicted of the crime after William's locket, which contained a miniature picture of Carolyn, is found in her pocket. Victor knows that no one will believe him if he tries to clear Justine's name, and she is hanged. Ravaged by grief and guilt, Victor retreats to the mountains. While he hikes through Mont Blanc, Mer de Glace, he is suddenly approached by the creature who pleads for Victor to hear his tale. And then we get into the creature's narrative. And briefly, it's just intelligent and articulate. The creature relates his first days of life living alone in the wilderness. He found that people are afraid of him and hated him due to his appearance, which, which led him to fear and hide from them. And it goes on, while living in an abandoned structure connected to a cottage, he grew fond of a poor family living there, um, secretly living next to the college for a month, months. The creature learned to speak by listening to the family and taught himself to read after discovering a lost satchel of books in the woods. And I think one of the books he reads is Paradise Lost. Right. <laughs> um, when he saw his reflection in a pool, he realized his appearance was hideous and it horrified him as much as it horrified normal humans. Oof. All right. So here's I want to read um I want to read from the creature's narrative. Um I believe it's volume two. Let me see. I want to make sure I'm getting it uh right. Um yeah, this is always worth uh re reading and rereading. Yeah, here here it is. And it's all in it's all in quotes. Let's see. I'll just read a bit of the uh, the sort of monologuing from the the demon. I expected this reception, said the demon. All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated, who am miserable beyond all living things? Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You purpose to kill me. How dare you sport thus with life? Do your duty towards me, and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind. If you will comply with my conditions, I will leave them and you at peace. But if you refuse, I will glut the maw of death 
until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends. Abhorrent monster, fiend that thou art, the tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes. Wretched devil, you reproach me with your creation. Come on then, that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed. My rage was without bounds. I sprang on him, impelled by all the feelings which can arm one against the existence of another. He easily eluded me and said, be calm. I entreat you to hear me before you give vent to your hatred on my devoted head. Have I not suffered enough that you seek to increase my misery? Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me, and I will defend it. Remember, thou hast made me more powerful than thyself. My height is superior to thine, my joints more supple. But I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee. I am thy creature, and I will be e even mild and docile to my natural lord and king. If thou wilt also perform thy part, the which thou owest me, O Frankenstein, be not equitable to every other and trample upon me alone, to whom thy justice and even thy clemency and affection is most due. Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Mm. Goes on. Wow. You get a sense of the sense of the writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It gets it. It reaches a, a pitch that's almost yellowish. Kind of, it starts to get a little maudlin and over the top. But it's it's fitting and it's consistent. It totally it stays there, and you're like, ah, yeah, I'm yeah. going with this. Yeah, this yeah. is like, oh, it, it's operatic and dramatic and yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like a lot it. of subtext and there's a lot of like, I like yeah. it. I like and it's it. it's got action and it it, it moves right. And then you start to see too, like the. I feel like it's been a long, long time since I saw the the um, sort of classic Hollywood cinema adaptation. But it felt like in that one, the monster is. I don't know if you you know a dumb brute is exactly the word, but like it seems like it's a little bit more of a senseless kind of like uh stumbling through life and i think at one point i think it was cut out of the original but like the monster sees a flower floating in the river and then he like has an encounter with a young girl and he throws her in the river like just like just like he threw the flower in right like oh that must you know so like yeah, yeah. that's Whereas what i mean is, about like it yeah. your impression of it won't match the text if you've never read it it's right it's not what it seems to be yeah, There's a lot yeah. more going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, the creature demands that Victor create a female companion like himself. Uh, he's thirsty, man. <laughs> he argues that as a living being, he has a right to happiness, which that's a, a serious political idea. That's still, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, life liberty, right? Right. And, you know, there you go. Mm -hmm. Um the creature promises that he and his mate will vanish into the South American wilderness, never to reappear, if Victor grants his request. Should Victor refuse, the creature threatens to kill Victor's remaining friends and loved ones and not stop until he completely ruins him. Fearing for his family, Victor reluctantly agrees. The creature says he will watch over the progress. So then Victor's narrative re uh, resumes and... Uh, he goes back to England with his friend Clairvaux. They separate and in Scotland. Victor thinks the creature is following him. He works on the female creature uh, on Orkney, uh, which is a place. Um, Scottish Orkney. Uh, 
Oh yeah, it's an island. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Orkney Islands. I think it's like Norse. I think it's, Scot- I think it's Scottish. Yeah, it's isn't Scots, it? Old Norse. It comes from like Old Norse. But yeah, it's it's Scotland, way up there, way up there mm-hmm. in Scotland. Yeah. Um he has premonitions. He fears the female will hate the creature or become more evil than he is. <laughs> He's like, oh no, I'm gonna make a female version of this. <laughs> this guy's already trying to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> this one's gonna what is this one gonna want right it's a million things i could say yeah. and i'm not gonna say a single right. one of them right? no. i'm just gonna whip on by that but yeah he's, he's on, rightly but... rightly uh anxious about having well, yeah two it didn't go it didn't go yeah. so well the first time so yes there you go yeah uh even more worrying to him is the idea that creating the second creature might lead to the breeding of a race that could plague humankind mm. he take He tears apart the unfinished female creature after he sees the creature who had indeed followed Victor watching through a window. The creature immediately bursts through the door to confront Victor and tries to threaten him into working again, but Victor refuses. The creature leaves but gives a final threat. I will be with you on your wedding night. Victor interprets this as a threat upon his life, believing that, that the creature will kill him after he finally becomes happy. Victor sails out to sea to dispose of the of his instruments, falls asleep in the boat, is unable to return to shore because of changes in the winds, and ends up being blown to the Irish coast. When Victor lands in Ireland, he's arrested for Clairval's murder, as the creature had strangled Clairval and left the corpse to be found where his creator had arrived. Victor suffers another mental breakdown and wakes up to find himself in prison. However, he is shown to be innocent, and after being released, he returns home with his father, who has restored to Elizabeth some of her father's fortune. In Geneva, Victor is about to marry Elizabeth and prepares to fight the creature to the death, arming himself with pistols and a dagger. The night following their wedding, Victor asks Elizabeth to stay in her room while he looks for the fiend. While Victor searches the house and grounds, the creature strangles Elizabeth. From the window, Victor sees the creature who tauntingly points at Elizabeth's corpse. Victor tries to shoot him, but the creature escapes. Victor's father, weakened by age and by the death of Elizabeth, dies a few days later. Seeking revenge, Victor pursues the creature through Europe, then north into Russia, with his adversary staying ahead of him every step of the way. Eventually, the chase leads to the Arctic Ocean and then on towards the North Pole. And Victor reaches a point where he is within a mile of the creature, but he collapses from exhaustion and hypothermia before he can find his quarry, allowing the creature to escape. Eventually, the ice around Victor's sled breaks apart, and the resultant ice flow comes within range of Walton's ship. At the end, we have Captain Walton's conclusion, because it's a frame story, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of Victor's narrative, Walton resumes telling the story. A few days after the creature vanishes, the ship becomes trapped in pack ice and several crewmen die in the cold before the rest of Walton's crew insists on returning south once it's freed. Upon hearing the crew's demands, Victor is angered and, despite his condition, gives a powerful speech to them. He reminds them of why they chose to join the expedition and that it is hardship and danger, not comfort, that define a glorious undertaking such as theirs. He urges them to be men, not cowards. However, Although the speech makes an impression on the crew, it is not enough to change their minds. And when the ship is freed, Walton regretfully decides to return south. Victor, even though he is in a very weak condition, states that he will go on by himself. He is adamant that the creature must die. Victor dies shortly thereafter, telling Walton in his last words to seek happiness and tranquility and avoid ambition. Avoid ambition. Mm. Don't make a monster. Yeah. Walton discovers the creature on his ship. It is. It's like a movie, isn't it? Of yeah. course. 
Yeah. Now that now Walton has been told the story and Walton's confronted by this creature, this right. eight foot tall monster that this fucking crazy scientist made. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And, and one wonders, like, does Walton believe him? Right. Right. Walton, is Walton like, are you, you're full of it. Oh no, it's on the here ship. Is it, here it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Walton discovers a creature in the ship mourning over Victor's body. The creature tells Walton that Victor's death was not has not brought him peace. Rather, his crimes had made him even more miserable than Victor ever was. Um, and then I won't read the very end of the description because I want to I want to save that for the end of the pod. Um, yeah, but now, uh, right right at the end of the novel, people don't know this. Frankenstein's monster says, "You can just call me Frankenstein. That's fine." <laughs> yeah, that's the last line. You can just call me Frankenstein for hundreds of years. <laughs> Just call me, just call me Frankenstein. No, it's Mister Frankenstein. Don't doctor, doctor Frankenstein. It's I have a I have a doctorate in I have a doctorate in um in education. You don't have to call me Doctor Frankenstein. I'm not. We don't stand in formalities here. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, I've choked you to death. Right. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. All right. So yeah, worth worth a reread and worth looking at again. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a fascinating novel. I'm so glad that I got to do this episode so that I can sort of like cover it. Um we'll read a little more from the novel uh as we go. And there's a lot. The Wikipedia on this is just um it's its own. It accounts for a number of the pages that I have. Sure. Um so I'm just gonna sort of like bounce through these. Just real quickly, why is it called Modern Prometheus, right? It's a subtitle, Mm -hmm. though modern editions now drop it. Prometheus, in versions of Greek mythology, was the titan who created humans in the image of the gods so that they could have a spirit breathed into them at the behest of Zeus. Mm -hmm. Prometheus then taught humans to hunt, but after he tricked Zeus into accepting poor quality offerings from humans, Zeus kept fire from humankind. Prometheus took back the fire from Zeus to give to humanity. When Zeus discovered this, he sentenced Prometheus to be eternally punished by fixing him uh, to a rock of Caucasus, where each day an eagle pecked out his liver, only for the liver to regrow the next day because of his immortality as a god. Um, As a Pythagorean or believer in an essay on abstinence from animal foods as a moral duty by Joseph Ritson, um, this is another thing, like vegetarianism was also a thing Ah, among these people. So again, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, big yeah. nothing changes energy. <laughs> right, right. You're telling me these people are also vegetarians? Yeah, they were doing really? yoga mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. breath work. Yeah. No, they were just oh, fucking dude. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't need yoga. It's right, no, right. The only breath work was, you know, Lord Lord Byron just right, you know, <laughs> yeah, huffing getting and it, puffing. Getting yeah. it in. Yeah, yeah. Huffing and puffing. That's right. <laughs> Well, anyway, Mary Mary Shelley saw Prometheus not as a hero, but rather as something of a devil and blamed him for bringing fire to humanity and thereby seducing the human race to the vice of eating meat. Percy wrote um, uh, several essays on what became known as vegetarianism, including a vindication of natural diet. Okay, so there you are. Byron was particularly attached to the play Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus, and Percy Shelley soon wrote his own Prometheus Unbound the term modern Prometheus was derived from Immanuel Kant, who described Benjamin Franklin as the Prometheus of modern times in reference to his experiments with electricity. Okay. Okay. Great. 
Cool. Okay. That's so, and we'll read in the after dark, we're going to read some of that, um, one of the Prometheus poems um, when we close out the main episode. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to plow through the remainder of the bio. Um, you're doing great. Get us, oh, good. Are you yeah. good? I hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, I, I really, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, my, yeah. my, my whole perspective of Frank, of Frankenstein as a text has changed. This is cool. Oh, good. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. At Marlowe, Mary edited the joint journal of the group's 1814 Continental Journey, adding material written in Switzerland in 1816, along with Percy's poem, Mont Blanc. The result was the history of a six weeks tour published in November 1817. That autumn, Percy Shelley often lived away from home in London to evade creditors. We talked about this, the threat of debtors prison combined with their ill health and fears of losing custody of their children contributed to the couple's decision to leave England for Italy on the 12th of March, 1818, taking Claire, Claremont, and Alba with them. They had no intention of returning. One of the party's first tasks on arriving in Italy was to hand Alba over to Byron, who was living in Venice. He had agreed to raise her so long as Claire had nothing more to do with her. And the Shelleys, then who, who could have seen that coming? Claire and Byron, it's not working out. That's a pity. The Shelleys then embarked on a roving existence, never settling in any one place for long. Along the way, they accumulated a circle of friends and acquaintances who often moved with them. They're kind of hippies. It's a, yeah. it's a road show. Yeah. The couple devoted their time to writing, reading, learning, sightseeing, and socializing. The Italian adventure was, however, blighted for Mary Shelley by the deaths of both her children, Clara in September 1818 in Venice and William in June of uh, 1819 in Rome. These losses left her in a deep depression that isolated her from Percy Shelley, who wrote in his notebook, My dearest Mary, wherefore hast thou gone and left me in this dreary world alone? Thy form is here indeed a lovely one, but thou art fled, gone down a dreary road that leads to sorrow's most obscure abode. For thine own sake, I cannot follow thee. Do thou return for mine. Hmm. Good poet. For a time, Mary Shelley found comfort only in her writing. The birth of her fourth child, Percy Florence, on the 12th of November, 1819, finally lifted her spirits, though she nursed the memory of her lost children till the end of her life. Italy provided the Shelleys, Byron, and other exiles with political freedom unattainable at home. Despite its associations with personal loss, Italy became, for Mary Shelley, a country which memory painted as paradise. Their Italian years were a time of intense intellectual and creative activity for both Shelley's. While Percy composed a series of major poems, Mary wrote the novel Matilda, the historical novel Valperga, and the plays Proserpine and Midas. And just real quickly, um, uh, Matilda deals with a father's incestuous love for his daughter. Oh, boy. Okay. plot of this is narrating from her deathbed matilda a young woman barely in her 20s writes her story as a way of explaining her actions to her friend woodville her narration follows her lonely upbringing and climaxes at a point when her unnamed father confesses his incestuous love for her this is then followed by his suicide by drowning and her ultimate demise her relationship with the gifted young poet woodville fails to reverse matilda's emotional withdrawal or prevent her lonely death whoa so this is is a yeah yeah it's a it's a 104 page novella yeah so okay yeah the story may be seen as a metaphor for what happens when a woman ignorant of all consequences follows her own heart while dependent on her male benefactor matilda has also been seen as an example of redefining female gothic narratives 
okay. important characteristic of this redefining genre often includes female narrators having more control over the story than was common at the time. Okay. I'm glad we took that little detour because it's, you know, I, ha I haven't devoted a lot of time to, you know, the other works, but they're out there. And if this episode has inspired you at all, and you, you know, you like Frankenstein, there's more. And now that you know the biography a little bit, you can sort of see where maybe some of that, um, you know, comes from. I've got a little bit about this novel, Valperga, which is, it's called Valperga or the Life and Adventures of Castruccio, Prince of Lucca. It's an 1823 hmm. historical novel set amongst the wars of the Guelphs and Ghibellines. Hey, the um, Gelfs and the Ghibellines. The Gelfs and the Ghibellines. They're back. I'm feeling Gelfy. I'm feeling like I'm I'm feeling like a Gelf tonight. And of course, no. this is Dante. Dante. Right. And she and she would refer to Dante all the time. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, now is she is she a white? Is she side with the white Gelfs, the black Gelfs? Uh, listen, no, I don't know. So I'll, I'll read. No, I have yeah, right. I don't even remember what Gelf is, which way is up. Right. Um you know what guy can't tell my Gelf from my right. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was good. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was great. Yeah, Gelf is a perfectly fine way to ruin a nice walk. Is to, to quote Oscar Wilde. Another subject we've done. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I guess it got good reviews. And um, through the perspective of medieval history, Shelley addresses a live issue in post-Napoleonic Europe: the right of autonomously governed communities to political liberty in the face of imperialistic encroachment. She's no slouch. I mean, she's writing yeah. these these novels and these works that are like politically relevant to their day. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, she's writing these like, yeah, Frankenstein had been published, but I'm not sure how big it had quite become yet. And so she's right. a writer. She's a yeah. writer. She's not yeah. like a one hit. Like, yeah, you're not going to. She didn't ever outdo this. They're not going right. to have the other stuff in every single bookstore everywhere. But, mm -hmm. you know, it only takes one of these to make your name forever. And there's more. There's more happening, too. And they're not all like, here's another monster story. Right. She didn't just you know. do the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And she wrote some plays, too. She wrote Valperga to help alleviate her father's <clears throat> financial difficulties mm. as Percy refused to assist him further. She was often physically ill and prone to depression. She also had to cope with Percy's interest in other women. Since Mary Shelley shared his belief in the non-exclusivity of marriage, she formed emotional ties of her own. And, you know, probably various affairs, in, you know, happened. Mm -hmm. um, certainly on Percy's side, I would imagine. Um, in December of 1818, the Shelleys traveled south to Naples, where they stayed for three months. In 1820, they found themselves plagued by accusations and threats from former servants whom Shelley had dismissed in Naples. The pair revealed that in Naples, Percy Shelley had registered as his child by Mary Shelley, a two-month-old baby named Elena Adelaide Shelley. They claimed that Claire Claremont was the baby's mother. So there's scandals, right? Oh, and there's boy. different interpretations. Oh, okay? boy. All right. So they, they can't escape this. They're just, they're, it's, they're, they're always in it, right? Yeah. They're, yeah. they're yeah. it people. There's always something going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, After Percy, leaving, is, they, Percy mm, is just like, just no consideration for the consequences of anything. It doesn't seem like. I tell you what, man. I mean, the poet poet resident on Art of Darkness is Jason Gallagher, and he seems like yeah. a stand up, put together dude. He does, right? Yeah. So, yeah. and he's, he's he's he has a teaching positions, and so again, not all poets, but Percy yeah. 
Percy is like, he's the, he and Lord Byron, they were playing the part. Yeah. They are yeah. going to be that thing. And yeah. It's hard to imagine Percy being like, you know what? I don't know if I should do that. Right. Just having that moment of like, hmm, nah, yeah. I'm not going to go there. No filter. No, no filter. <laughs> All in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after leaving Naples, the Shelley settled in Rome, the city where her husband wrote, the meanest streets were strewed with truncated columns, broken capitals, and sparkling fragments of granite or porphyry. porphyry. Uh, the voice of dead time in still vibrations is breathed from these dumb things, animated and glorified as they were by man. Rome inspired her to begin writing the unfinished novels, Valerius, the reanimated Rome, uh, where the eponymous hero resists the decay of Rome and the machinations of superstitious Catholicism. Mm. <clears throat> the writing of her novel was broken off when her son, William, died of malaria. Shelley bitterly commented that she had come to Italy to improve her husband's health, and instead the Italian climate had just killed her two children, leading her to write, May you, my dear Marianne, never know what it is to lose two only and lovely children in one year to watch their dying moments, and then at last to be left childless and forever miserable. To deal with her grief, Shelley wrote the novella The Fields of Fancy, which became Matilda, dealing with a young woman whose beauty inspired incestuous love in her father, who ultimately commits suicide to stop himself from acting on his passion for her daughter while she spends the rest of her life full of despair about the unnatural love I had inspired. Okay, we got that. Summer of uh, 1822, a pregnant Mary moved with Percy, Claire, and Edward uh, and Jane Williams to a villa called, it's an isolated villa called Villa Magni at the sea's edge near the hamlet of San Terenzo in the Bay of La Ricci. Once they were settled in, Percy broke the evil news to Claire that her daughter Allegra had died of typhus in a convent. Mary Shelley was just, I mean, right? Like, it's yeah. just like a cavalcade. We just got dead kids, dead kids, dead kids, yeah. dead kids. It's just like, are they, are they, I think it's just the time, but like, I, are these people particularly it. unlucky? It's just like, damn, yeah. man. Yeah. Holy moly. Uh, going on, she was distracted and unhappy in the cramped and remote villa, which she came to regard as a dungeon. On the 16th of June, she miscarried, losing so much blood that she nearly died. Rather than wait for a doctor, Percy Percy redeems himself a little bit here, Brad. Mm. Sat her in a bath of ice to stanch the bleeding. An act the doctor later told him saved her life. Okay. 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 All right. Big save the cat moment for Percy. Yeah. yeah he should have like, done that. If he'd have done that earlier in his life. Then... <laughs> yeah. All was not well between the couple that summer, however, and Percy spent more time with Jane Williams than with his depressed and debilitated wife. Much of the short poetry Shelley wrote at San Terenzo involved Jane rather than Mary. Uh-oh. When the poet, when that eye of Sauron of the poet turns from you to the, the hot young thing down the street, yeah. you got a you got a poet problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're yeah. in serious trouble. You need to bring the ring to Mount Doom. <laughs> <laughs> Throw that ring into Mount Doom when the poet turns his eye, because you got to get that eye back on you. Yeah. Um, yeah. In any case, uh, the coast offered Percy Shelley and Edward Williams the chance to enjoy their perfect plaything for the summer, a new sailing boat. The boat had been designed uh, by Daniel Robertson, an admirer of Byron Edward Trelawney, who had joined the party in January of 1822. I'm introduced this uh, Trelawney 
fellow because he shows up a lot. He was a British biographer, novelist, and adventurer. You like that in your Wikipedia bio? Yeah, bio. yeah. yeah. Who is best known for his friendship with uh, Shelley and Byron. He was born to a family of modest income, but extensive ancestral history. Though his father became wealthy while he was a child, Edward had an antagonistic relationship with him. After an unhappy childhood, he was sent away to a school. He was assigned as a volunteer in the Royal Navy shortly before he turned 13. I think mm-hmm. I read somewhere that like they kind of liked him because he was like from the other side of the tracks. He was sort of ah. like he was a millet Navy guy and it was sort of like a earthy you know, yeah. yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with the Navy. Nothing wrong with no. sailors. They, no. they, they might have done better if he had been on that fucking boat, which we're coming to. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, on the 1st of July, 1822, Percy Shelley, Edward Ellerkin Williams, and Captain Daniel Roberts sailed south down the coast to Livorno. Uh, I mean, this is real the day the music died energy like for the time this is Mm -hmm. what this is what we're dealing with here um so let me read from the bio here about what happened let's see on the 4th of july a loving note to jane my dearest friend arrived at the villa from shelley together with a brisk and business business-like letter for mary she must have felt ready to weep when she read it he had not looked for houses at panano he could not say when he would return the rest of the letter was taken up with news of their friends um byron while willing to make a handsome gift of the copyright of his latest poem the vision of judgment for the first number of their new magazine was unlikely to be able to offer further support since he was preparing to follow Teresa's family into uh, a second exile. Four days later, despite uncertain weather conditions, Shelley, Williams, and their boy sailor set out for Larici from Livorno, carrying 50 pounds, which Shelley had borrowed from Byron. The conditions have been variously described, but it seems clear that the Don Juan sailed into one of the sudden summer squalls for which this part of the coast was notorious. With no deck and sails which were difficult to bring down in a hurry, a sudden gust was all that was needed to swamp it. Reports came later that either one or two of the Felucas, which regularly undertook the journey from Livorna to Genoa, had seen the little boat struck by baffling winds. Shouts to bring down the sails had been disregarded. At their next glance, the Don Juan had been engulfed. By the 11th of July, a Thursday, the three women at the Villa Magni, Magni were growing anxious. Only continuing bad weather kept Jane from having herself rowed to Livorno the following day. Friday was the day on which the week's post was delivered. It brought them a letter for Shelley from Hunt. Opening it, Mary saw that Hunt was asking for news of the traveler's safe return, having heard that the boat had left Livorno in a storm. The date of departure, 8th of July, was named, I trembled all over. Mary wrote in the long and harrowing account of the tragedy she sent to Mrs. Gisborne in August. Jane read it. Then it is all over. She said, no, my dear Jane, I cried. It's not all over, but this suspense is dreadful. Mm. And then it goes on. Uh, Let's see if I have. Yeah. The bad news had already come, although Mary did not know it. Claire, instructed by Trelawney to open the post in his absence, had read a letter in which Daniel Roberts said that two bodies, not yet formally identified, had been found. Acting as messenger was beyond her. 
She wrote a pathetic note to Lee Hunt on the 19th of July, asking for advice and ending helplessly. I know not what further to add, except that their case is desperate in every respect and death would be the greatest kindness to us all. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Shelly's dead. He's dead at, uh, I don't even exactly know what age. He's 29. Uh, I think he's 29. Something like that. Yeah, he was yeah. young, young, yeah. young, young. I've got this kind of book of letters here. Let me see if I... And it starts... Volume 2 here starts with... Uh, something here. They set off at once, death in their hearts, yet clinging outwardly to any semblance of a hope. They crossed to Lenchi. They posted to Pisa. They went first to Casa Lanfranchi. Byron was there. He could tell them nothing. It was midnight, but to rest or wait was impossible. They posted on to Leghorn. They went about inquiring for Trelawney and Roberts. Not finding the right inn, they were forced to wait till next morning before prosecuting their search. They found Roberts. He only knew that Ariel had sailed on Monday. There had been a storm, and no more had been heard of her. Still, they did not utterly despair. Contrary winds might have driven the boat to Corsica or elsewhere, and information was perhaps withheld. So remorse, uh, remorselessly, said Trelawney, are the quarantine laws enforced in Italy that, when at sea, if you render assistance to a vessel in distress or rescue a drowning stranger, on returning to port, you are condemned to a long and rigorous quarantine of 14 or more days. The consequence is, should one vessel see another in peril or even run it down by accident, she hastens on her course and by general accord, not a word is said or reported on the subject. Oh, boy. Okay. So Italy had apparently had these some weird laws about being quarantined. Probably yeah. has something to do with health reasons. Smallpox um, or whatever was going on. Then. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But Shelley's huh. dead. Right. She, Dang. I mean, yeah, Percy didn't make it out alive, dude. And just like literally it's big, big bopper energy. Right, you know, right, right. Like it's, yeah. it's, yeah, the music died. I think he was 30. Okay. He died in, let's see, eight, no, 29, 29. 29. So he's almost in the 27 club. Like yeah. He's close, close yeah. enough to kind of, you know, honorary. Right, right. You know, Jeez. but of course, in, in this period, 29, he's like 53 in our, right. in our years. <laughs> right. Yeah. He spent the last like several years, like, one side of Europe to the other, you know, just, like, <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Crazy it, babies. We don't know. Yeah. Is it my baby? Maybe it's Countless my baby. babies. Maybe yeah. it's a maybe baby. It's a maybe baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that a thing? Cause now it is. It's a maybe. Baby. Yeah, yeah. Maybe baby. Yeah. 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 I know the one that's coming to mind no, <laughs> in our family. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a hundred percent. I'm one hundy on that one. Yeah. 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 Good. yeah that's yeah, good. Yeah. That's where you, that's I mean, the, that's the position you want to be in. Yeah. 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 We want to be in a lot of positions. We yeah. want to guarantee that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's real stork hours on on Art of Darkness. All right. Yeah. Right. And her, her father kind of comes around. You know, I've got this business about her writing career here. And uh, he says of something she's written, it's the most wonderful work. And this is her father to have been written at 20 years of age that I ever heard of. It must be about Frankenstein. Yeah. You are now five and 20. And most fortunately, you have pursued a course of reading and cultivated your mind in a matter the most admirably adapted to make you a great and successful author. If you cannot be independent, who should be? All right. Mm. 
I love it. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to come into the kind of the final stretch um, here. Um, uh, but I am going to cover the rest of her life uh, briefly. After her husband's death, Mary Shelley lived for a year with Lee Hunt and his family in Genoa, where she often saw Byron and transcribed his poems. She resolved to live by her pen and for her son, but her mm. financial situation was precarious. That answers your question. Yeah. Um, but she this is still early days yet. On the 23rd of July, uh, 1823, she left Genoa for England and stayed with her father and stepmother in the Strand until a small advance from her father-in-law enabled her to lodge nearby. Sir Timothy Shelley... Percy's father had at first agreed to support his grandson, Percy Florence, only if he were handed over to an appointed guardian. Mary Shelley rejected this idea instantly. She managed instead to wring out of Sir Timothy a limited annual allowance, which she had to repay when Percy Florence inherited the estate. But to the end of his days, he refused to meet her in person and dealt with her only through lawyers. Mary Shelley busied herself with editing her husband's poems, among other literary endeavors, but concern for her son restricted her options. Sir Timothy threatened to stop the allowance if any biography of the poet were published. In 1826, Percy Florence became the legal heir of the Shelley estate after the death of his half-brother, Charles Shelley, his father's son by Harriet Shelley. Sir Timothy raised Mary's allowance from £100 a year to £250 a year, but remained as difficult as ever. Mary Shelley enjoyed the stimulating society of William Godwin's circle, but poverty prevented her from socializing as she wished. Oh boy, I've been there. She also felt ostracized by those who, like Sir Timothy, still disapproved of her relationship with Percy B- Bechet Shelley. Yeah, I give uh, her a break at this point for crying out loud. Totally. <laughs> Jeez. And you got this, you're raising the grandson of this wealthy dude, and he's being yeah. stingy because yeah. you're, you've embarrassed him. And yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. A yeah, real class. You, yeah, you can see a little bit why Percy's like, I don't want to be like you, man. Mm-hmm. See it. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. understand it. Totally. In the summer of 1824, Mary Shelley moved to Kentish Town in North London to be near Jane Williams. She may have been, in the words of her biographer, Muriel Spark, a little in love with Jane. Mm-hmm. Okay, who knows? Jane later disillusioned by her by go- excuse me. Jane later disillusioned her by gossiping that Percy had preferred her to Mary, owing to Mary's inadequacy as a wife. At around this time, Mary Shelley was working on her novel The Last Man. And she assisted a series of friends who are writing memoirs of Byron and Percy Shelley, the beginnings of her attempt to immortalize her husband. She also met the American actor John Howard Payne and the American writer Washington Irving, Irving, who intrigued her. Payne fell in love with her and in 1826 asked her to marry him. She refused, Hmm. saying that after being married to one genius, she could only marry another. Ouch. (laughs) Damn. Yo, yeah, that hurts. <laughs> let me down. Let me down easy. Yeah, I got a Wikipedia but, page. What do you want? Yeah, <laughs> you got a Wikipedia page because you proposed to me. Well, um, yeah, that's pretty okay. funny. Yeah. No, but it, listen to this. Uh, the Last Man is an apocalyptic dystopian science fiction novel by Mary Shelley, first published in 1826. The narrative concerns Europe in the late 21st century, ravaged by the rise of a a bubonic plague pandemic that rapidly sweeps across the entire globe, ultimately resulting in the near extinction of humanity. Hmm. It also includes discussion of the British state as a republic, for which Shelley sat in meetings of the House of Commons to gain insight in the governmental system of the Romantic era. 
The novel includes many fictive allusions to her husband, Percy, who drowned in a shipwreck four years before the book's publication, as well as their close friend, Lord Byron, who had died two years previously. And I sort of blew by his death, Lord Byron. Um, I, I really I don't even know uh, how he, he died. What happened? Yeah, he died. He was in Greece. Um, I'm not just going off memory. He was in Greece involved in some kind of campaign. Um you know, I've got it. I've got it right in front of me. Okay. They plan to attack the Turkish-held fortress of Lepanto. Byron employed a firemaster to prepare artillery, and he took part uh, of the rebel army under his own command, despite his lack of military experience. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Byron. Yeah. Before the expedition could sail, he fell ill, and bloodletting weakened him further. He made a partial nice. recovery, but in early August, he caught a violent cold. The therapeutic bleeding insisted on by his doctors exacerbated it. He contracted a violent fever and died on uh, the 19th of April. Okay, there you go. All right. Well, future Byron episode one day, maybe season five, season six. I don't know. Um, This is one of these episodes where we've we've, we've put our pin in Mary Shelley. Maybe I should rephrase that. Yeah. We've put our our pin next to Mary Shelley. Yeah. She's there in all her dignity and genius. Mm-hmm. And her, we're, you know what? We put our pin in Mary Shelley's monster, like yeah. a butter, like a butterfly yeah. Yeah. on a yeah. on a on a board. Yeah, we got yeah. him. Yeah, and now yeah. we've got all her monsters. Right, and right. I right. feel like we've cr- I've cracked open the door to this period. So if we want to yeah. do Percy, if we want to do mm-hmm. Coleridge, if we mm-hmm. want to do even Godwin, if we want to mm-hmm. do uh, Byron, we're right mm-hmm. here. We're mm-hmm. in it. Indeed. Aaron Burr. Aaron yeah. Burr, Patreon only banger coming <laughs> coming in. I don't know, probably not Aaron Burr. Um, all right, so moving on that that comeback. I can only marry another genius. Ouch! That's, yeah, especially you tell okay. that to a, a guy who's an actor, an artistic type. You know? yeah. yeah, rough. Payne accepted the rejection and tried without success to talk his friend Irving into proposing himself. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so let's see here. There's more. Let's see. In 1827, Mary was party to a scheme that enabled her friend Isabel Robinson and Isabel's lover, Mary Diana Dodds, who wrote under the name David Lindsay, to embark on a life together in France as husband and wife. With the help of Payne, whom she kept in the dark about the details, Mary Shelley obtained false passports for the couple. Uh, so there you go. There's a little episode. Nice. Um, Mary Diana Dodds has a Wikipedia. She was a Scot- Scottish writer of books, stories, and other works, and she adopted a male identity. Most of her works appeared under the pseudonym David Lindsay. In private life, he used the name Walter Sholto Douglas. Huh. There you go. So we've got a little bit of gender bending. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, so Got to move to France. This yeah. is fascinating. Yeah, this hmm. is a whole whole rabbit hole we could go down. Yeah. Later in life, Dodd suffered further attacks of liver disease. There is no clear evidence as to whether the relations between Dodd and Isabella were romantic. That is not impossible. It's called, why is this? Yeah, yeah. Well, there he asked a friend to have a mustache and whiskers brought to him in the contemporary style. He ended up in debtor's pr- prison. Ah. Um Interesting. Fascinating. Okay. Well, there's a little rabbit hole we could go. All right. Yeah. There you go. All right. Um, Oh, boy. Uh, In 1828, she fell ill with uh, smallpox while visiting them in Paris. 
she recovered unscarred, but without her youthful beauty. Uh, yeah, that'll wreck you. Yeah. So now during the period between 1827 and um, 1840, she wrote the novels, The Fortunes of Perkin Warbeck, Lador, and Faulkner, which is like, she's she was prolific too. Yeah. yeah. Um, Warbeck is an 1830 historical novel about the life of Perkin Warbeck. The book takes a Yorkist point of view. I mean, these are like researched. Peter right. Perkin Warbeck was a pretender to the English throne, claiming to be Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York, and uh, and on and and so on and so forth. I always like pretenders uh, to the throne stories. It's an interesting trope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lador is was also published under the title "The Beautiful Widow." It's the penultimate novel uh, that she wrote, and it is about power and responsibility within the family. The story follows the fortunes of the wife and daughter of Lord Lador who's killed in a duel uh, at the end of the first volume, leaving a trail of legal, financial, and familial obstacles for the two heroines to negotiate. Again, sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, this was successful with the reviewers. Um, so, yep. And then Faulkner without a U. So it's just like our boy Faulkner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And oh, he added William Faulkner <laughs> added the U. Oh, to did make he? It well, there you go. Fancier. So, yeah. 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 And this is the plot. As a six-year-old or orphan, Elizabeth Raby prevents Rupert Faulkner from committing suicide. Faulkner then adopts her and brings her up to be a model of virtue. However, <laughs> she falls in love with Gerald Neville, whose mother Faulkner had intentionally driven to her death years before. When Faulkner is finally acquitted of murdering Neville's mother, Elizabeth's female values subdue the destructive impulses of the two men she loves, who are reconciled and unite with Elizabeth in domestic harmony. Okay. Okay. All right. There you go. So just to give you an idea of her corpus, mm -hmm. um, she contributed five volumes of lives of Spanish, of Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and French authors to Dionysius Lardner's cabinet Cyclopedia. She also wrote, she's like a journeyman, like a working writer. She's like yeah. a, like a, like a real, like a master writer. Yeah. She also wrote, wrote stories for ladies magazines. She was still helping to support her father and they looked out for publishers for each other. In 1830, she sold the copyright for a new edition of Frankenstein for 60 pounds to Henry Colburn and Richard Bentley. It said 30 elsewhere, but in any case, mm. for their new standard novel series. After her father's death in 1836, at the age of 80, hey, hey he, made he made it. it. Yeah. Somebody made it. It's all that good. Clean <laughs> you know what it is? Yeah. He got he got it all off his chest. Yeah, that's right. He, to write about. Right. he just yeah, said yeah. no filter. <laughs> uh, yeah, God, he right. just let it all air out. Yeah. He just yeah. lifted the kilt, lifted the kilt, yeah. and just let it yeah. let it go. Not, nothing, let nothing go. can hurt you after that, right? And live to eighty years old. Meanwhile, these these babies, these toddlers, they got bad constances. Right. They have, you know, they're, <laughs> they just, you just drop dead one day. No, it yeah. is. It's so capricious and, and strange. You know, one yeah. guy gets to live to 80. Another, you, you get a fever in Italy, you're dead. Three years right. old, dead. Right, right, right. I mean, e yeah, yeah. Even, even more than the now, you can yeah. paint the picture of the monster screaming at its creator going, why? Why? Right. Why? Right. What is this? Yeah. yeah. Um, in any case, uh, she began assembling her, her father's letters and a memoir for publication. 
But after two years of work, she abandoned the project. I've got a note here about Frankenstein, page 407. Oh, that must be uh, maybe something from here. Let me see. She also, um, you know, kept the flame alive for for Shelley. Mm-hmm, sure. um, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is fine. Yeah, this is sort of about the revisions and the changes um, uh, that would happen to the the novel. Let me see here. Elizabeth Lavenza, Victor's cousin in the original 1818 novel, becomes in 1831 an unconnected orphan whose marriage to him could cause no reader to disapprove. Reduced to a more passive role, she is in line with the sentimental heroines of the annals to which Mary had become an assiduous contributor. The Frankenstein family's involvement in Victor's career is ruthlessly pruned, emphasizing his solitude and absolving them from complicity. Victor's father in the first version had encouraged his interest in science and demonstrated the workings of electric power on a small machine of his own. In 1831, Victor's interest in science is stimulated by a stranger, while Waldman, his second tutor at Ingolstadt, is positioned more powerfully as an evil influence on Victor's ambition, ambitious inquiring mind. Okay, I just wanted to read a little bit about that. These changes are not minor. It's not like mm. line changes. It's she's rewriting the novel between 1818 oh. and 1831. I don't know what consensus says is the best version or whatever, but I just right. thought it would be interesting to go right to the source and get the 1818 sure. version. Yeah. Right? yeah. And if you want to read more about sort of like a almost a scholastic level reading of like what are the differences, uh Miranda Seymour, her Mary Shelley biography, that's what I'm holding and that's what I'm reading. Um okay, almost there. Throughout this period, she also championed Percy Shelley's poetry, promoting its publication and quoting it in her writing. By 1837, Percy's works were well-known and increasingly admired. In the summer of uh, 1838, Edward Moxon, the publisher of Tennyson and the son-in-law of Charles Lamb, proposed publishing an edition of the collected works of Percy Shelley. Mary was paid 500 pounds to edit the poetical works, which Sir Timothy insisted should not include a biography. (laughs) Yeah. Shut it down. (laughs) <laughs> Mary Mary found a way to tell the story of Percy's life. Nonetheless, she included extensive biographical notes about the ah, poems. Ah, clever. <laughs> Very clever. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah Got gotcha. yeah. Nobody expects the footnotes. <laughs> Very it. fun. Uh, Shelley continued to practice her mother's feminist principles by extending aid to women of whom society disapproved. For instance, Shelley, ex- uh, Shelley extended financial aid to marry Diana Dodds, a single mother and illegitimate herself, who appears to have been a lesbian, and gave her the new identity of Walter Schulte of Douglas, husband uh, of her lover, Isabel Robinson. We talked about that a bit. Shelley also assisted Georgiana Paul, a woman uh, disallowed for by her husband for alleged adultery. Shelley, in her diary about her assistance to the latter, I do not make a boast. I do not say aloud, behold my generosity and greatness of mind. For in truth, it is simple justice I perform. And so I am still reviled for being worldly. (laughs) Mary Shelley continued to treat potential romantic partners with caution. In 1828, she met and flirted with the French writer Prosper Merimee. But her one surviving letter to him appears to be a deflection of his declaration of love. 
She was delighted when her old friend from Italy, Edward Trelawney, returned to England and they joked about marriage in their letters. Their friendship had altered, however, following her refusal to cooperate with his proposed biography of Percy Shelley. And he later reacted angrily to her omission of the aesthetic section of Queen Mab from Percy Shelley's poems. And Queen Mab is one of his one of his early, it's an 1813 poem. Uh, in nine cantos with 17 notes. And it's a large, it's the first large poetic work um, okay. that he wrote. Okay. Oblique references in her journals from the early 1830s until the 1840s suggested that Mary had feelings for the radical politician Aubrey Beauclerk, who may have disappointed her by twice marrying others. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Times. Oh, no. He married somebody else? Yeah. Again, <laughs> you're like you're putting up smoke signals. You're putting right. up flares. It's <laughs> oh. very interesting. Yeah, if your heart sinks when you find out somebody has gotten married, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, you're gonna yeah. that's gonna last a long time. Yeah, it doesn't go Not, away overnight, nope. does it? Nothing to do, and you don't do anything about it. Yep. You nope. You, just, don't, you don't send the fucking DM. No. no. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. <laughs> I'm so, so happy for you. I know we haven't spoken since, but I'm so happy for you. You look so happy on Facebook. I'm almost convinced. I know you're not happy. These are just like a series of DMs. Right. You're getting, you're getting, getting the second, bottle of, second yeah. bottle of wine. You can't be happy. You can't be happy. With him? Happy. With him? <laughs> he isn't even on Facebook. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. So she looked after Percy. That was her first concern. And she honored her late husband's wish that his son attend public school. And I think they mean private school. They mean private school. Public is private over there. All right. Yeah. You aware of that? Yeah, yeah I am. I, I never understood yeah. why, but I know that's the case. I I really don't know. With Sir Timothy's grudging help, had him educated at Harrow. To avoid boarding fees, she moved to Harrow on the Hill herself so that Percy could attend as a day scholar. Uh, though Percy went on to Trinity College, Cambridge, and dabbled in politics and the law, he showed no signs of his parents' gifts. Well, hopefully his life wasn't as gnarly yeah. You know, everybody doesn't have to be a world-spanning, century-spanning genius right. who's yeah, can, like also troubled and deeply wounded. Yeah, yeah. Could he just have like a reasonably content life, that, right? You know, with a career right. that contributes to society in some small way. Yeah. All right. He <laughs> also okay? got into Cambridge. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe that's expected. If you're in Harrow, you go. I don't know. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. That's yeah. a good school. Stephanie's over there right now. She's on yeah. a fellowship. Hey, That's right. know, there you go. Yeah. 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 Must we're gonna be, be we're gonna be so delighted to have her come back on the pod. We we you know really enjoy our uh, little community of podcast people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, here we go. Final years. In 1840 and 1842, she and her son traveled on the continent and she wrote about it called Rambles in Germany and Italy in nice. 1840, 1842, and 1843. I, uh, I really do. Sorry, I really do like the fact. So her son would be what, like twenty or something by then, something like that. I do like the fact that though she lost these children, she has this apparently really good relationship with her son. They're traveling, they're rambling. They're right, she's writing about it. Like that's kind of nice. Mm. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm going to look here. So four, including, yeah, Sir Percy Shelley, third baronet. And he was born in 1819. So, yeah. 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 Then he was like early 20s. Yeah. There you go. Cool. Yep. You can look him up. Yeah. I mean, he lived, he lived to be, this will maybe bring it closer to us. He only died in 1889. Ah, okay. So it makes these people feel so far away. But once you can kind of almost bring them into the 20th century, it's like, Right. You know, I mean, and there's a there's a picture of him, uh, like a drawing of him uh, on the Wikipedia where he's dressed. He could be he could be in going to a dinner party in New York, what he's wearing. Right. I mean, right. it's not that far away. Um. So, yeah. In 1844, Sir Timothy Shelley finally died at the age of 90, falling from the stock like an overblown flower, as Mary put it. For the first time, she and her son were financially independent, though the estate proved less valuable than they had hoped. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now they got they got a little money. So that answers your question. No, she's not like from this stuff. She's not making a living, right? Right? She's yeah, um, or not making a great living, right? Um, maybe she's making a living, but she's not financially independent. Let's just say that. Yeah. 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 Okay. In the mid-1840s, she found herself the target of three separate blackmailers. Oh, God. In 1845, an Italian political exile called Gadteshi, whom she had met in Paris, threatened to publish letters she had sent him. A friend of her son bribed a police chief into seizing Gadteshi's papers, including the letters, which were then destroyed. Shortly afterward, Mary Shelley bought some letters written by herself and Percy Bichet Shelley from a man calling himself G. Byron and posing as the illegitimate son of the late Lord Byron. Also in 1845, Percy Shelley's cousin Thomas Medwin approached her, claiming to have written a damaging biography of Percy Shelley. He said he would suppress it in return for 250 pounds, but Mary Shelley refused. In 1848, Percy Florence married Jane Gibson St. John. The marriage proved ha- that's great because every every word in that name is the name of like a guitar brand. <laughs> yeah, right. Jane Mary, or it's Jane Gibson Saint John. Saint John. Yeah, Saint John. yeah every uh, I'm playing my Jane bass. He's got his Gibson. He's on the Saint John's. Yeah. The marriage proved a happy one, and Mary Shelley and Jane is a musical family. Yeah. And Mary uh, Shelley and Jane were fond of each other. How many Janes okay. have we met? Holy Lots. moly! Jane everybody like in this the, thing, everybody in this story is named Jane or Mary if they're right. female. Yeah, everybody's Mary or Jane or Claire or Clara. <laughs> Mary lived with her son and daughter-in-law at Field Place, Sussex, and Shelley's uh, the Shelley's ancestral home, and at Chester Square, London, and accompanied them on travels abroad. So they got money. Mary Shelley's last year's. Go ahead. No, I said nice. That's nice. good. That's nice. good. Yeah. It's kind of a yeah. happy ending ish. Yeah, she's kind of getting it in. Yeah. yeah. Mary Shelley's last years were blighted by illness. From ah. 1839, she suffered from headaches and bouts of paralysis in parts of her body, which sometimes prevented her from reading and writing. I know Mary Shelley suffered the tortures of the damned well alive. Man. Right. And it doesn't surprise me that she wrote one of the all-time great banger stories about a monster. Mm, mm. Yeah. Okay. Let me see. I just want to make sure I get everything. 
And years had passed. Oh, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. Right. Years had passed since Mary had enjoyed more than a few weeks of continuous good health. Operations, homeopathy, long periods of rest, all remedies had failed to cure a, my- a mysterious and painful illness, which she imagined must be connected to her nervous and melancholy temperament. In the last cold weeks of 1850, confined to her bed at Chester Square and attended by a homeopathic doctor who Percy irritably observed did not do her the least good. She felt her left leg turning numb. Partial paralysis followed, but by the 3rd of January, her son felt hopeful enough to inform a worried Isabella Booth that their new doctors looked on the patient's chance of recovery very favorably. A week later, he wrote again to thank Mrs. Booth for offering to come and nurse his mother and to refuse uh, since there is no danger now. Percy's optimism was short-lived. On the 23rd of January, Mary had a series of fits, after which she lapsed into a coma. The last and most astute of her physicians, Richard Bright, deduced that the paralysis had been caused by some form of brain damage. Her case was now recognized to be hopeless. The coma lasted for eight days, during which no signs of suffering were apparent to her attendants. She died shortly after dusk on the 1st of February. Marianne Henry, the maid who had faithfully attended her for more than 10 years, was in the room to draw down the blinds and close the curtains. Percy and Jane were by the bed. Her sweet, gentle spirit passed away without even a sigh, Jane told Alexander Barry in one of the letters she wrote to give out the news. No medical records have survived, but the death certificate confirmed what Dr. Bright had already deduced from his patient's symptoms. Mary Shelley's illness stemmed from brain damage. A supposed tumor in the left cerebral hemisphere was noted to have been of long standing. Mm. And that's how she died. She died from a brain tumor at um, 53. Yeah, it's young. Yep. I mean, uh, we've had some younger younger deaths in this story for sure, but that's, yeah, she had a few more novels in her. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, just winding down, bringing us bringing us into the uh, the landing strip before we take a break and then do the after dark for Patreon. Uh, according to Jane Shelley, Mayor, uh, Mary had asked to be buried with her mother and father, but Percy and Jane, judging the graveyard at St. Pancras to be dreadful, chose to bury her instead at St. Peter's Church, Bournemouth, near their new home at Boscombe. On the first anniversary of Mary Shelley's death, the Shelleys opened her box desk. Inside, they found locks of her dead children's hair, a notebook she had shared with Percy Bechet Shelley, and a copy of his poem, Adonai, with one page folded round a silk parcel containing some of his ashes and the remains of his heart. Oh, man. Mm. Oof. These are romantics. Yeah. These people are romantics, the, man. You they're know. explicitly romantic mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and uh this is just an interesting little addendum days after mary's death percy and jane decided to exhume her parents bodies mary so jane told Maud brook years later had authorized the deed herself i would like to rest at bournemouth near you but i would like to have my father and my mother with me jane probably made this up during the same conversation she said that it would have broken my heart to let her loveliness wither in such a dreadful place. Um, so they es- they excavated her parents and moved them. Wow. Um, and uh, 
just something just just a little wild little story there yeah at the end. yeah yeah and that huh. and that and that dovetails into uh what we're going to talk about a little bit on on patreon we're going to talk about what ends up happening there's a letter uh what ends up happening to to shelly's heart here's what i've got for patreon then i will ask you the closing question but before i do brad that's the life of yeah. mary wollstonecraft Shelly, given the art of darkness treatment. Yeah, nice job, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, quite a story. And 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 Frankenstein, though it has never gone away, certainly should be further forward in the canon in some ways. Um, it's relevant. I th- I think that it lives in a weird nebulous kind of zone that where it's taken for granted. It's on, probably mm-hmm. on everybody's Kindle. It's in the public domain. You can yeah. get a copy of it. It costs you nothing. It's taken for granted. I don't know. Do 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 children read it in school? I was never assigned it in school. I it's was a never little mature. It's yeah. a little mature for high school. It's right. a little like murdery, right? And <laughs> right. and stabby right. and violent and yeah. yeah. And the cartoonish depiction of it in media gives maybe gives a certain impression that's not accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not quite indicative of the sophistication, the thematic sophistication that's going on. Yeah, interesting. Very good. Very good job, Kevin. Thank you so much. What a lot of fun. All right. And we will take a break in a few minutes uh, and come back for Patreon. Every episode we do, we do After Darks. For the core episodes, we prepare some juicy stuff. When we have Darkroom After, dar- uh, after Darks, we do the same thing. We prepare a little juicy tidbits. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, we, we come back. Really seriously, consider supporting this podcast. The only way that this is going to be sustainable year over year over year is if we get a consistent, steady, supportive stream of Patreon support patreon.com slash art of dark pod you get a ton of free stuff ton of free content over there brad dropped the first patreon only core episode so if you want an episode like this on the life of dennis johnson you gotta you gotta get the patreon Mm -hmm. um if you're one of these people who's like ah no i'm not downloading another app i can't be bothered i don't trust these companies or these people that's fine you can you can support us on pay uh using paypal too you go to artofdarkpod.com. there's a link if you really liked uh the david foster wallace episode Mm -hmm. You could you could send us some bucks and say, yeah, hey, why not? thanks for doing the David Foster Wallace episode. Keep it coming. Every yeah. every single new patron, every single little bit of money we get, it legitimately encourages us to continue doing this. Uh, and and we have we have big dreams and big ambitions for this pod. We we appreciate our listeners. Please keep sharing the pod. It doesn't yeah. cost anything. If you think somebody is probably going to be fascinated by the life of Mary Shelley, maybe doesn't might be into the Frankenstein business. They're into horror stories gothic stories uh literary history biographies share it with somebody and mm-hmm. uh you know spread the word because yeah this podcast is free by and large uh, the, the yeah. main body of the podcast is free and we, we love doing it and we uh we love hearing from people we get it's reached a point where we're starting to get notes from people pretty much every day yeah uh, that's cool. <laughs> which is super cool yeah. we hear from people all over the place mm-hmm. and uh it's a lot of fun if you want to get at us directly there's the telegram chat it gets wild in there sometimes yeah we yeah. you can find it t. hang on to your hats hang yeah. on to your hats t.me slash art of dark pod we try to stay on topic in there we try to talk about arts and creativity and uh, the dark side of creativity and the subjects and mm-hmm. uh sometimes somebody will say have you seen the the pornographic picture of Marlon Brando? Here's a trigger <laughs> warning. I'm posting a link to that. And we go, thank you for the trigger. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. maybe I don't, maybe I don't need to see that right now. Right. It's cool that he that he shared that. This is a very on topic. We did a Brando episode. Yeah, it's a, but a it's, historical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's nice just not to dump the picture right in the chat. And I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate our friends' yeah. uh, sense of decorum. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. You can also email us at, at artofdarkpod. Uh, so it's artofdarkpod at gmail.com. We're always taking yeah. requests for new subjects. Next year is planned. But Brad and I, we're agile. We'll pivot. Yeah. yeah. We'll yeah. pivot. Yeah. 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 Just like the tech bros will pivot. We'll pivot. We'll pivot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've yeah, been known to pivot. Yeah. Except, you know, we're not like defrauding anybody or anything. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. We're, yeah. Right. We're not <laughs> pumping the stock and then dumping on retail. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Eventually. Um, no, but for real. Um, let me tease the after dark. Here's what we yeah. got. So when we come back for the Patreon listeners, I'm going to talk about uh, Godwin getting phrenology done on Mary. Cool. Uh, okay. After mom mom dies, and well, okay. read my daughter's bones and tell me what she's going to be like. Yeah. Okay, that's fun. Yeah. It's a yeah. lost art, phrenology. They're not. Right. It's not so. Yeah. Uh, it's a it, phrenology would be considered déclassé now, would it not? I would think so. I mean, you said yeah. lost art, and it's in some ways kind of good riddance, but it's an interesting like cultural historical oddity, right? Like, huh, mm -hmm. I remember we used to read the shape of people's skulls. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it's nice because you're like you're like the phrenology cliff notes for yourself. Yeah, with your yeah. with your shaved head. Yeah, people could do it, it to me. People could give me a phrenological reading just like over Zoom. Just I'm like, drawing yeah. green lines all over your head in my mind right now. <laughs> Bro, you can't even rotate Brad Kelly's head in your mind. <laughs> I can't it's, take it's your... sort of, it just looks like a kind of a gray, vague gray splotch. Yeah. <laughs> he went to public schools. Private schools. Um, yeah, yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We're going to talk about when they, this Aldini fellow tried to reanimate the corpse of a hanged man or like at least shot electricity through him to see what, what, what would happen, fun. which I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, hang on. My zoom just got in. It just got embiggened. That's the technical Ooh, term. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to talk, we're going to do the Prometheus poem from Byron. Then we're going to read this essay from the end of the Frankenstein, uh, edition that I have. And we're going to mm -hmm. tell that little story about burying Shelley's heart Okay. Brad, what would Mary, what would Mary Shelley in her prime be doing today? Yeah, if she I mean, was still I think, alive. I think she keeps. I, I, you know, she took this thing. She had this moment after Shelley died, after Percy died, where it was like, well, I'm just gonna take care of my son, and I'm gonna make a living as a writer. And so I think she would have. I think she would have kept doing that. I was very interested to see that she sort of. She had some stuff that was uh, the last man. That's sort of in this. Uh, you know not science fiction, sort of science fiction, right? This sort of speculative fiction anyway. But then also some very much more conventional stories like her final novel, Faulkner, it very much sounded like a current day upmarket literary premise. So who knows? It's hard to say like what direction she would have taken, but I'd certainly think she would have been, you know, putting a novel out every few years in perpetuity, possibly revising Frankenstein to the up until the end. Can you imagine if she had lived to see Frankenstein put on film? Right. Like, wild, right? Her <laughs> mind would have just and she probably I wonder how upset she'd be. Didn't they do a version where De Niro plays the monster? And, it did, yeah. 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 It, it did and, try to that one, I think, did try to hew more closely to the novel. 
um, in appearance, like it was, you, you don't really see him that much, but like when you do, it's, it's much closer to what the descriptions are in, in Shelley's work. So I'll just never, I'll just never believe that Robert De Niro is eight feet tall. No, <laughs> I know too much. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back on the after dark patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Mm-hmm.